Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and normally when I introduce a bonus episode, I say this is a short little episode, but this one is more than seven hours long. And that's because it's all of the audio content from a conference which was held earlier this week, all about charity law, accounting, and regulation. So the way this is going to work is look in the show notes, and you can see each of the topics and the time that they start. I don't anticipate any of you will listen to the entire thing, but you can easily skip to the part that looks of interest. We were really lucky to have some amazing speakers and topics that they covered, so I'm sure that there will be something there that's of interest. I helped out by facilitating a session about impact investing and one about what to do if you're looking to wind up an organization. So do have a quick look through the show notes and see if there's a topic that you would be interested in. And also, you may know someone who's in a charity or not-for-profit who would benefit from having this shared with them. The kaupapa, or purpose, of putting all of this in one episode is to make it accessible so that even those who didn't attend can still download the content and learn. And a big shout out to the organizing committee that I was part of. It took us a couple months to pivot from an in-person conference at Te Papa to holding this as an online session where there were three different Zoom rooms all running at the same time. Now, it might be that you've stumbled across this episode because someone forwarded you the link. So just to let you know that usually what I do is interview inspiring people, talking with them about their backgrounds, their lives, and working out why they do what they do. So you might want to check out the back catalog because this is episode number 227. And there's lots more content at theseeds.nz. Now we're going to get straight into the opening of the conference, and then it will just flow from there. So check out the show notes to find out which of the topics you'd like to listen to. And I do hope you find the content both helpful and challenging. New Zealand Country Head Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand Ane te karakia timatanga. Tu tawamai runga. Tu tawamai raro. Tu tawamai roto. Tu tawamai waho. Kia to ai te muri tu. Te muri ora ki te katoa. Homie huie taikie. For our Australian participants, I've just welcomed you all and introduced myself in Te Reo Māori and recited a karakia, a Māori chant, to open the conference and to set us on a good path for this afternoon. My name is Peter Vile, and I'm the New Zealand Country Head of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this virtual conference. We are very pleased to host this conference again with the Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand. So this is a joint venture between clans and cans. And I'll be passing over to Professor Matthew Harding, who's representing CLANS, uh, shortly. First of all, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors. Uh, They're all listed on the screen there. I won't read them out, but we couldn't do this without them. And importantly, of course, we couldn't do it without the members of the conference committee who have worked tirelessly uh, all year to pull the conference together and have overcome all the constraints and restrictions that have come out of COVID. The last eight months have been remarkable for the legal and accounting professions, for regulators, for charities, and of course, for the whole world. The most severe economic downturn in both Australia and New Zealand since the Great Depression naturally represents a huge challenge for us all, for accountants, lawyers, regulators, and of course, for charities. The skills of chartered accountants were and remain as necessary as ever. 
The frontline mahi includes the work our members do for charities, from treasurer roles in small charities, small local organisations, through to governance and finance functions in larger regional and national charities. As a member organisation, we are, have also been challenged, as is everyone, uh, to quickly to support our members through COVID, um, and of course, to use the hackneyed phrase, to pivot like everyone else. We did so by providing extensive support for our members working in the not-for-profit and charity sector, including auditors, those responsible for governance and for accountants navigating the effects of, of the pandemic. Our Trans-Tasman Charities and Not-for-Profit Sector Committee produced guidance on the governance, strategic and financial issues needed to steer charities and, and not-for-profit organisations through the pandemic. We also held webinars and answered member queries. We advocated on issues relevant to the sector, including supporting the deferral of FRS 48 and submitting ongoing concern additional disclosure requirements. We supported the New Zealand Accounting Standard Board's proposals to defer the effective date of PBE FRS 48 on service performance reporting by one year. And obviously given that many tier one and tier two PBEs are, in, are impacted by COVID-19, this deferral will provide them with the time they need to implement the new standard. However, it still allows those PBEs that are in a position to implement the standard to the original timetable to do so, they can adopt early. And in terms of going concern, our submission to the New Zealand Accounting Standards Boards supported aligning the disclosure requirements in the accounting standards with those in the auditing standards uh, for PBE entities, including charities. Against the backdrop of COVID-19, obviously more significant judgments will be required to determine, to determine whether the going concern basis of preparation is appropriate, and there'll be more material uncertainties related to going concern. Transparent and consistent reporting will now be more critical than ever. Every year, Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand sponsors the Charities Reporting Awards. The aim of the awards is to improve New Zealand's charities' compliance with the financial reporting requirements and to benchmark best practice storytelling. Entries are judged on the effectiveness of their communication, their innovation, their compliance with the standards and their overall presentation. This is not just about best practice bookkeeping. Transparent and consistent reporting provides the opportunity for charities to communicate the value they provide and to tell their story to potential funders, volunteers and the broader community. And boy, Charities need those opportunities at the moment to tell their stories. COVID has tested charities, our society and economy in ways unimaginable this time last year. Looking back at last year's conference, the theme was future prospects for charity law, accounting and regulation. The conference considered some interesting questions last year. Do charities need to be regulated? Are charities able to advocate against government policy? And then a topic, accumulations or application, what to do about charities reserves. These were great questions last year, and they do tie into this year's conference theme of how we might build back better. But they do seem to be from a different world. Many of you might now be asking, what are reserves? Some of the questions we've had before us today are much more confronting and existential. When is it time to call it quits? Should we merge? Should we collaborate more? As we all know, COVID has been a wicked problem. The Lancet describes a wicked problem as one which is impossible to solve because of contradictory and changing requirements and ever-evolving social complexities. 
As such, there's no single correct answer. A wicked problem can't be solved. It can only be resolved. And resolution is complex because of something we're all well aware of, the interconnectedness of everything. Fixing wicked problems creates a ripple effect. Every action triggers a reaction with other wicked, wicked problems, such as poverty and inequality. For charities though, COVID is wicked in another sense. It has struck at the ability of charities to raise funds at the very time many of these funds, many of them need these funds the most. In one of our follow-up conversations uh, with the reporting award winners, John Ross, who's the CEO of Comprehensive Care, one of our winners, observed that the pandemic makes the work of organizations like his more important and at the same time more challenging. He said COVID requires new ways of working for us all and financing our needs, uh, financing needs are changing as a result. A recent New Zealand survey showing the effect of COVID on the community and voluntary sector described the sector post-lockdown as being in a precarious, finely balanced position. Nearly three quarters of the people who answered the survey had taken some form of financial hit. Only half of them had sufficient funds to maintain their staff and their activity uh, from six months earlier. The main concerns of the survey participants were lost income streams, financial uncertainty, immense pressure on operating costs, including staffing, IT, rent, and balancing and maintaining a level of service with reduced revenue. Of course, reserves being used now will be harder to replenish in the future. But there was also a positive side that came out of the survey, with central government and local government, philanthropy and communities being called out for increasingly working together. Philanthropists, council grants, funding for the arts, film and sports have also helped top up some parts of the sector. And many of the organisations surveyed remain upbeat. We must not view what has happened to charities and is continuing to happen in the wake of the pandemic as simply a financial crisis. It is a social crisis. This is another aspect of the wicked problem. COVID, as we know, has had a disproportionate effect on people who are already experiencing disparities in health and education and housing, all areas where charities are very active, filling the, uh, the gaps that the government cannot or perhaps should not fill. Charities not being able to do their jobs puts vulnerable people at even greater risk. I'd like to finish on a positive and I believe realistic note. The charity sector, I am quite sure, can build back better. For some organisations, the, the pandemic has given rise to new possibilities and the potential for positive change, including growth. Our tier four winner of the Charities Reporting Awards, the Reading Revolution, runs shared reading groups to alleviate loneliness and isolation. Since the pandemic struck, it has set up five online groups for its communities in Auckland and Taranaki in partnership with local libraries. So this is a great example of at a sector level an opportunity to reset. Before COVID, the operating models of many charities and not-for-profits were a bit outmoded due to a lack of um, reform across the sector and a slowness in responding to dis digitization in some cases during the past 20 years. So many of the topics we will uh, discuss today will spark and feed discussions and action, ensuring we do build back better. 
I'll now pa pass over to Professor uh, Matthew Harding, the chair of the CLANS conference and the conference committee. But before I do uh, so, may I wish you all a productive and energizing conference. When I've been to this conference in previous years, I've been struck by the passion and the commitment of everyone there, all the participants. participants. And I will, I'm absolutely sure I will feel that today, albeit we are meeting on a Zoom in a Zooey. No reira tenatato katoa. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks very much, Peter. Uh, kia ora, everybody. Uh, I'm just delighted to be joining with Peter in welcoming you to this marvellous online conference. Uh, as Peter has said, uh, I'm the chair of the Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand, and we're very pleased once again to be partnering with CANS uh, with the support of charity services and the sponsors to bring you this program today. Let me begin, as is customary in Australia, by acknowledging Indigenous ownership of the traditional lands on which I am located today, uh, the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And can I pay my respects uh, to their elders, past, present and emerging? And I'd invite all Australians who are here on the call to do the same in respect of the lands on which they are situated. And I also want to extend a very warm welcome to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders uh, who are here with us today. Well, getting to this point has been a very interesting experience for the organising committee. Uh, we had, of course, originally planned for a face-to-face two-day conference at Peipapa uh, to be held in April this year, in line with the past two successful conferences that we held there in 2018 and 2019. And then, of course, the pandemic arrived. And I remember very well the conference calls earlier this year uh, on which we had to discuss what might happen if borders were closed or if Tepapa was closed or if we had to go into lockdown. That all seemed so surreal at the time, but of course it became reality for us all quickly enough. But we were absolutely committed to bringing you uh, a gathering of some description in 2020. And I'm really proud on behalf of the organizing committee that we have done that. And I think you'll agree that a half-day webinar for $20 is pretty good value too. So as Peter has said, 2020 has been a hell of a year. A year we'd all rather forget, uh, but of course a year that we'll always remember. Um, and a year in which we've all experienced and seen hardship, in many cases as never before. I especially want to acknowledge the terribly difficult year that everyone has had in my hometown of Melbourne. We really did endure through a very long and tough winter. And being out and about over the long weekend that's just ended here in Melbourne and seeing people relaxing and socialising in parks and cafes again was a wonderfully special thing to see. It's a visible reminder of what people can achieve when they work together for the common good. Now, let me dwell on that theme for a moment because I think it will help to set the scene for our deliberations today. I just want you to pause and reflect on the achievement of five and a half million Melbournians, uh, or indeed five million New Zealanders back in April when New Zealand was in hard lockdown. Government officials told us to stop seeing loved ones, to close our businesses, to stop worshipping together, to stay in our homes to wear masks, 
we were asked to tolerate unprecedented intrusions on civil liberties that we cherish. In Melbourne, this went on for months and months, and to some extent it continues now. And the amazing thing is that we did it. In Melbourne, I could count on one hand the number of people I've seen out and about in the past few months not wearing face masks. People did stay home. They did stop visiting family and friends. They did risk financial ruin by closing businesses. Millions of people, mostly unmonitored by government or anyone else, more or less confined themselves to their homes for months in order to serve the common good. And in doing that together, we suppressed the coronavirus to the point where in Melbourne, we are now looking forward to a relatively normal summer, even as much of the rest of the world grapples with second, third waves of the virus. Again, I am so proud of that. And in fact, I'm humbled by it. It's a profound collective achievement and it tells us much. It tells us much about government led by evidence and science as opposed to post-truth lies and delusions. But I think it also tells us much about civil society, the multiplicity of not-for-profit groupings that sit between the family and the state and that are in many respects, the foundations of our political communities. Some years ago, the US sociologist, Robert Putnam, famously studied the relationship between civil society and the conditions that enable democratic government and economic prosperity. Putnam showed a correlation between a healthy civil society in which people actively participate and the sort of civic engagement and public trust on which democracy and economic development depend. Civic engagement and public trust, these are the key ingredients in the success of any political community. Now the Melbourne experience, the New Zealand experience back in April suggests strong, robust civil society, informing attitudes to public life and government, enabling citizens to mobilize in tandem with government to meet the greatest public health challenge of our lifetimes and succeeding. We only need to look to the other side of the Pacific Ocean to see a different story unfolding. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great 19th century French thinker, was amazed when he visited the US to see the flourishing of civil society there and the enormous contribution it was making to the work of cementing the new and at the time radical democracy of that nation. He must be turning in his grave today. The lesson in all of this is that we should cherish civil society and do everything we can to ensure that it can thrive and perform its important functions, including the generation and maintenance of the civil civic engagement and the public trust on which living together successfully as a political community under government and law depends. Which brings me back to the theme of this conference, build back better. As you reflect on the various presentations today, I would invite you to consider the question, what do we need to do to ensure that civil society in New Zealand can be revived from its current parlous situation brought about by the pandemic and the economic consequences of that. But not just that, to ensure that it can flourish. It's a critical question 
not just because a flourishing civil society is good for people and their relationships with each other. It's critical also because civil society is the glue that holds political community together. Without it, we could not have risen collectively and successfully to the challenge of COVID-19 over the past months. And without it, we'll be unable to rise to the many challenges that face us as political communities in the years to come. So I really look forward uh, to sharing in the deliberations and the discussions today with our shared purpose of trying to imagine ways, uh, conceive of ways in which we can revive civil society in New Zealand in the wake of COVID and its economic implications, but not just that, also uh, create conditions under which it will flourish. Thanks very much. Brent, I think I'm handing to you at this point for some housekeeping. Absolutely. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for those, uh, those kind words of introduction and, uh, and undoubtedly scene setting. Kia ora tato katoa, kia Brent, te kena te paikaukariki aho. Hi and welcome. It's a pleasure to have everyone on board. I'm Brent Kennelly, audit partner at Grant Thornton. And on behalf of the Charity Law and Accounting uh, New Zealand Committee, uh, it, it is wonderful to have in excess of 200 people online watching. As has been flagged already, uh, we were due to and, and, and be, be on target for a conference in April, May. So this is actually the fourth conference that we've managed to organise. The first two that ran, one that had the hiccup and now uh, here and online. So a, a big shout out both to the, the organising committee, but also to clans, to cans and to DIA charities, uh, all of whom without their assistance, we, we wouldn't be able to be here right now. The overall soundbite has been set. It's, it's how to build back better. Um, we want the session to be as interactive as we can. We want the session to have chat. We want the sessions to have um, discussion as much as they can possibly do in, in each of the respective rooms. We've got a, an awesome lineup with uh, 13 sessions to cover in the next uh, three and a half hours. It's going to be tight, but we want everyone to have that level of engagement and, and opportunity to, to, uh, to, to make their voice known, to listen, to hear, and, and as with all of the conferences that have been organised, to have ongoing discussion. What I'd like you to do for 30 seconds is to look to about the middle of the screen, the chat, that chat one just about there that we nervously click on and we think, will someone see what we're about to type, what we're about to put in? Let's go for it. Let's type something in and then I will, I think it's up to myself to be able to hit that chat button and see quite what evolves. So no, sorry, it's the other way around. Think of stopping to type and go for gold and already people are going for it. So let it go. Welcome whoever you want to from North Cape to the Bluff, across the Tasman, all around Australia and such like. And there we are. People are keen, people are enthusiastic, someone from Dargaville, someone to everyone, someone from the mighty Waikato, which is, which is brilliant. And of course, I can't help it from Wellington.
So brilliant that you are there. Technology is working. Uh, that's what it's all about. I have the pleasure of, of being the MC and trying to connect things in meeting room one. Good colleagues, um, Wayne and Stephen will be ducking and diving across to meeting room two shortly where there'll be other sessions after the first one. But in the meantime, Stephen, I'll flick it across to yourself just to, um, to, to kick things off and give us that overview. Cheers. Wanaka. Thank Fantastic. you very much, Brent. Well, kia ora koto, ko Stephen toku ingoa, um, it's uh, really great to add another welcome here. Um, you may be wondering, how is this actually going to work? Normally, I'd be at an a, at a in-person conference. I would walk and I'd bump into people. I would know the, the room that I was going into. So I'm just going to give you a little overview about how we're going to run this. Um, and actually, I want to imagine, think of it like you are at an in-person conference. Imagine you walk into the foyer and somebody's there welcoming you, you get your name card or name badge and you look around and there's different rooms that you can choose to join. And in room one will be one speaker, in room two will be another speaker and in room three will be a third speaker. And that's exactly how it runs here today. Um, what you're gonna be able to do is choose which of these three rooms that you go to. So um, in the chat, um, John's going to be sharing the link to access this. It should also be in your inbox. Um, if you're here today, you've clicked something to get here. Um, but you will be able to choose room one, room two, or room three. And the way it's going to work is that room one, um, which is the current room, we will be having an opening address, which is starting just after this. Um, and we're really fortunate we have the Honorable Justice Stephen Koch, who's going to be speaking with us. After that finishes at 1.50, it's a choice of where you go. You can choose room number one, as you can see, charities and business, sustainability, or distraction from the cause. Room number two, statements of service performance. Room number three, impact investing and how it can sustain charities. In the second session, from 2.35 to 3.10, there will be two sessions, two presentations in room one, how to be sustainable when asset rich and cash poor, and trust and foundations and their sustainable interrelationships. In room two, we'll be talking about when is it time to call it quits? And in room three will be community connection. Um, just to take a really brief moment here, we as the committee, we were thinking about conferences and lots of the magic actually happens in those times when you bump into people at the afternoon tea or over lunch. And we thought, how can we recreate something of that um, in an online conference? So that's what that session is. Um, we're gonna be posing some questions. We'll be sending you to breakout rooms and there'll be a chance to get to know some other people who are attending the conference. Then there'll be a break. There's gonna be a 15 minute break from 310 to 325 and come back and join room one, room two or room three for either charities law reform and Z accounting standards update, collaboration mergers and practical considerations of closing down. Then from form 15 to 445, we'll be talking about has the concept of charity had its day and we'll be wrapping up from 445 to 5 p.m. and finishing up. Now I know what you're probably all thinking and I see in the chat some people have asked this um, because it's not physically possible to be in three places at once. And we know that. 
So we are recording all the rooms, which means that about 48 hours after the sessions finish, we'll be emailing everyone who registered and you'll be able to go and watch the sessions that you really wanted to go to, um, but also wanted to go to another one. So that's how it's going to work. Um, we're also going to be releasing the audio, um, or at least some of it, on Seed's podcast um, as another way to access the content. So I hope that that's clear. Um, it really just think of it as you're now virtually within a conference facility, and you'll be able to choose which of the rooms you enter, which you come out of. And um, yeah, in terms of some more housekeeping, just quickly, you are welcome to pose questions. So using that chat function, which we all are familiar with and you've just used before, um, you can pose questions. We will try to answer as much as we can, but I happen to know that we have some world-class speakers here who have many things to say as well. So it's possible that we won't be able to get to every person's question, but do use that chat, fu chat functionality. Um, make sure you click everyone so we can all see the questions. And if we don't get to your question for some reason, I also know that these presenters are very engaged and they like to talk about these topics. So if you want to email your questions afterwards, um, then I'm sure that we can um, pass those on to the speakers. There will also be a feedback survey which gets sent out um, and it would be really appreciated if you can fill that in and help us improve for future events. Um, yeah. In the chat, can you also mention who your question is for if there's several speakers, just so it's easy for the person who's emceeing. Um, so that's it in terms of the how this is going to run. Um, it's all within that program, so feel free to go from room to room. And now I'm going to pass it back to Professor Matthew Harding. Thank you, Matthew. Pleasure uh, to introduce our keynote speaker, uh, the Honourable Justice Stephen Koch. Um, Justice Koch is one of New Zealand's most um, senior judicial officers. Uh, since 2016, uh, he has been the president of the Supreme Court of the Court of Appeal of New Zealand. Apologies, uh, but he was uh, appointed first to the High Court of Justice in 2011, and then to the Court of Appeal in 2015. Uh, prior to being elevated to the bench, Justice Koch had a long and very distinguished career as a solicitor, and then at the Independent Bar being made Queen's Counsel in 2007. I now invite Justice Koch to deliver the keynote address to us this afternoon on the evocative topic of murky waters, muddled thinking, charities and politics. Thank you, Justice Koch. Thank you, Matthew. Tanakoto Katoa. As it happens, I'm speaking to you today on election day in the United States perhaps the most momentous election in that country since 1932's contest between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. Because today's election embodies such a dramatic clash of opinion and approach, it feels like a referendum on democracy itself, one by no means confined to the constitutional borders of the United States. It seems also an appropriate day to express some views to you about the relationship between the law of charity and ostensibly charitable organisations that have a political dimension. I'll make some introductory remarks, look briefly at three important cases, and then offer some observations about the mess the law has got into and how it might extricate itself. Now, charity law's exclusionary political purpose doctrine excluded a political purpose from being a charitable purpose. 
It emerged from the House of Lords decision in Bowman and the Secular Society, where Lord Parker said that equity had always refused to recognise such objects as charitable, because the courts had no means of judging whether the advocated reform would be for public benefit and thereby charitable. Well, the accuracy of that statement was questionable from the outset. The Rosetta Stone of the modern law of charity, the Statute of Elizabeth of 1601, contained no political purpose exclusion. Hardly surprising, given the time and politically charged context in which it was enacted. The statute was passed to encourage private philanthropy in the wake of the ousting of the Catholic Church and the English Reformation. From inception, the modern law of charity has been tied to the state in political action. Indeed, in the 19th century, organisations advocating for social change were held to advance charitable purposes. One such example was William Wilberforce's Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, known more snappily as the Anti-Slavery Society. Although advocating both reform of the law and the dispossession of personal property rights, could a more charitable purpose really be imagined? Yet even today it has been doubted, at least judicially, that organisations whose primary purpose is the achievement of international peace or nuclear disarmament may not be charitable. The 19th century was less cautious, recognising as charitable the Howard Society for Penal Reform, which sought reforms of a liberal nature, the Lord's Day Observance Society, which of course sought reforms of a conservative nature, and certain societies advocating for temperance law reform or the abolition of vivisection. There was no bright line between politics and charity. Despite, despite that body of case law, Bowman considered the political purpose exclusion beyond doubt. To, to borrow the words of Paul Michel, from Bowman, the political purpose doctrine sprang fully grown like Athena from Zeus's forehead. In due course, Lord Parker's dicta found favour with the House of Lords and the National Anti-Vivisection Society and in the Revenue Commissioners. In that case, Lord Simons considered the proposition lacked authority simply because it was so clear that little authority was needed. The society in that case had the political aim of preventing cruelty to animals through the political means of effecting legislative change. And so it was held its purpose could not be charitable. An admirable dissent was entered by Lord Porter in which he famously observed this, I cannot accept the view that the anti-slavery campaign or the enactment of the Factory Acts or the abolition of the use of boy labour by chimney sweeps would be charitable so long as the supporters of those objects had not in mind or at any rate did not advocate a change in the law, but became political and therefore non-charitable if they did so. To take such a view would, to me, be to neglect substance for form. Greater specificity as to what acts were political can be found in a case called McGovern and the Attorney General, with which you will be familiar. In it, Justice Slade set out five categories of trusts for political purposes that would not be charitable. Ones that further the interests of a political party, procured changes in domestic or foreign laws, or procured the reversal of domestic or foreign government policy. That doctrine was adopted in Australia, albeit with some reluctance. So too in New Zealand, although with slightly less reluctance. In the 1940s, promotion of New Zealand's acceptance of the League of Nations and of temperance through legislative change were both ruled political and non-charitable. In 1981, in Malloy and the Commission of Inland Revenue, the Court of Appeal considered both advocacy for and against law reform on issues of controversial character 
to be political and non-charitable purposes. That case, of course, concerned the deductibility of donations to a society called SPUC, which opposed the greater availability of abortion. What then was the justification for the political purpose doctrine? First, deciding whether the political act advocated was for the public benefit was considered to be beyond the institutional competence of the courts. Courts were judged ill-equipped to determine the merits of proposed law or policy change. Secondly, and rather mystifyingly, it was said that the law would saltify itself by holding it was for the public benefit for the law itself to be changed. Both justifications were the subject of significant commentary and criticism. The political purposes doctrine is framed as neutral, but it is anything but. With rare exceptions like Beloy, the underlying policy of the doctrine supports organisations seeking preservation of the status quo. Such entities tend to be free of the taint of advocacy or law reform sentiment, despite the eminent 19th century charitable model of the anti-slavery society, which did both. Moreover, the abdication of judicial competence to determine public benefit despite the explicit terms of the fourth pencil head, led to the remarkable consequence of a court refusing to rule on the public benefit of advocacy to abolish torture. So I turn just uh, as briefly as I can to three important cases that touch on this topic. There is Australia's Aid Watch case, a decision of the High Court of Australia, which found political purposes no longer mutually exclusive to charitable purpose. That society involved the delivery of humanitarian aid, research into the effectiveness of aid and campaigning to improve aid delivery. Prominent in the reasoning of the majority in that court was the importance of Australia's constitutional arrangements. It was said that those required communication between electors, elected legislators and officers of the executive. They demanded the very agitation for legislative and political change that the doctrine had foreclosed from charitable status. Justice Kiefel, now the Chief Justice of Australia, dissented. She also rejected the political purpose doctrine, but she held that the public benefit of the Trust's activities must still be proven. The mere assertion of views as practiced by Aid Watch was not charitable without proof of those, that those views were of benefit to the public. It's a very significant decision. Not only did it remove the political purpose doctrine, but also accepted the political advocacy had a public benefit. But the extent of the public benefit was not clear from the judgment. Was it purely in the generation of debate or in the charitable purpose debated or both? The majority sidestepped that issue. But I think it is strongly arguable that although the constitutional underpinning of the majority reasoning was important to that decision, it does not necessarily amount to a distinguishing consideration from New Zealand law, given the terms both of our Bill of Rights Act and other elements of our supposedly unwritten constitution. The second case is a New Zealand decision, um, the Greenpeace decision, which is a decision of the Supreme Court. And that concerned Greenpeace's bid for registration under the uh, Charities Act of 2005. The majority reasoning delivered by Chief Justice Elias also rejected the political purposes doctrine. It considered that not all advocacy for legislative change could be excluded from charitable status. Advocacy held the majority was to be considered as part of the public benefit test, but cause advocacy would often, perhaps most often, be non-charitable. 
and the majority adopted the dissenting approach taken by Justice Kiefel in Aidwatch. They put the overall test in these terms. Assessment of whether advocacy or promotion of a cause or law reform is a charitable purpose depends on consideration of the end that is advocated, the means promoted to achieve that end, and the manner in which the cause is promoted in order to assess whether the purpose can be said to be a public benefit within the spirit and intendment of the 1601 uh, statute. As a consequence, Greenpeace has created the inevitable possibility that future courts will have to assess the public benefit of more controversial cause advocacy. Without the, public, uh, the political purpose doctrine, they may, lead, may be led into what my friend Matthew Harding has called murky and unfriendly waters. The Supreme Court implied in its decision that it was unlikely when it remitted the issue back to the Charities Board that Greenpeace would in fact qualify um, as a charitable organisation, particularly in relation to the most substantial purpose that Greenpeace stood for, which was protection of the environment. And following the Supreme Court's judgment, the Charities Registration Board again denied Greenpeace's registration as a charity. But on appeal, the High Court held Greenpeace's advocacy for the protection of the environment was a charitable purpose. So there we are, that is the Greenpeace decision which involved what might be described as a liberal charity. More recently, my court has had to deal with uh, what could be described as a more conservative one, the family first uh, decision, which was delivered by uh, the Court of Appeal earlier this year. I did not sit on that case. It too was a long running affair. Uh, it had been uh, uh, denied uh, charitable status. The High Court had turned that uh, had uh, turned down its appeal, but Family First advocates for on issues uh, of families and marriage from a decidedly conservative and traditional perspective. My court, by a majority, allowed Family First's appeal and held that it had both educational and general, generally charitable purposes. It did, the fact that it promoted traditional family values did not prevent that end being a public good, in particular because there were a large number of traditional families in New Zealand. Advocacy on a specific position regarding euthanasia could be charitable, though not on other issues such as abortion, which were considered to fall outside what the majority called the penumbra of the recognised public good, that is supporting the institutions of marriage and family. In a reasonably stinging dissent, Justice Gilbert considered that Family First advocacy provided no tangible public benefit to families uh, and uh, considered, therefore, that it was not a charitable organisation. Leave has been sought to appeal from that decision to the Supreme Court, and I'm not going to indicate uh, my view uh, of that case. And even more so, will I not comment on the Better Media Trust decision of the High Court, because that case is on its way to my court. But I want to make at this point some observations. Uh, my first is that the abandonment of the exclusionary doctrine of political purpose in Aid Watch and in Greenpeace is to be welcomed. The attempt of creation of a bright line between charity and politics in the early part of the last century was judicial legislation undertaken in defiance of history. William Wilberforce's anti-slavery society undertook inherently political work but patently for the general public benefit. This was a great cause. Its work was done at an abstract level through advocacy rather than through more tangible direct action. 
Secondly, tangibility of benefit should not obscure the analysis. The Supreme Court appeared tempted by the concept of tangibility in Greenpeace. And it is true that public benefit is more easily discerned by, for example, direct acts of generosity to, say, the poor. These are both publicly beneficial and self-denying, which are the twin hallmarks of charitable endeavour. But why should tangibility determine the meets and bounds of what is charitable? What is the public benefit gained from exposing charities to loss of status because they move from direct or tangible treatment of symptoms to more systematically addressing causes? Should a society devoted to the prevention of cruelty to children not be permitted to enlarge its focus from dispensing aid to discouraging family violence, including by legislative reform? And is not the debate itself something of great public benefit as the majority in the High Court of Australia recognised in Watch. Thirdly, there is something rather unsatisfactory about the reasoning in cases like Greenpeace and its successes in focusing not only on ends, but also means and nature of the promotion and, and of means. As Justice Mallon observed in the second Greenpeace decision, this is where all the difficulty lay in that case. The charities board and then the courts are placed in the unhappy task of policing the methodologies of an organisation, for instance, devoted to preservation of the environment and reducing climate change, and marking them according to unhappily vague criteria that in the end of the day encourage conservative policy making and appeal after appeal, because so very much depends on the eye of the beholder. And yet the jurisprudential basis for this ends, means and ways analysis is itself obscure. For myself, I do not find means and ways particularly illuminating in deciding whether an entity serves charitable purposes, which historically at least focused upon the existence of demonstrable public benefit and the ends pursued. Fourthly, one can only wonder why we have tied ourselves up in jurisprudential knots from which we now struggle to release ourselves over politics as an overlay to three of the four pencil heads when the other head, religion, gains a comparatively free pass. In many respects, it is hard to distinguish between religious proselytizing and political advocacy. Religion tells people how to live their lives and informs their values and priorities, which one might th think are inherently political objects. True, religion involves a particularly spiritual dimension, but established churches now increasingly participate in the secular world and what might be thought of as politics, even party politics. Just two weeks ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the, Archbish the Archbishops of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland wrote to the Financial Times. You'll note that they didn't write to the Church Times, but the Financial Times presumably had a larger audience, condemning the Brexit-related internal market bill, legitimising domestically at least potential breaches of international law, as the Archbishops put it, a disastrous precedent. Fifthly, it is tempting and no less accurate for that to say that the courts have made something of a hash of things since Bowman. The muddled thinking I refer to in my title involves the familiar story of the common law seeking to give definition to equity and then making a mess of the exercise. That, I think, describes exactly Bowman and McGovern. In the process, we have lost any sort of cohesive theory of what charity is. Charity is not, and never has been, confined to the fulfilling of particular needs tangibly, 
A fifth of the way through the 21st century, the great causes continue to mount up, and notably slavery remains one of them, albeit less prominently. The task of equity now is to restate a cohesive theory of charity based on a combination of a demonstrable public benefit and lack of private benefit. The former will continue to depend on evidence if the task continues to fall to the courts. The latter offers at least some constraint on direct political enterprise and the PAC funds that have come to dominate United States political activism. But further constraints here really work for Parliament to accomplish. But finally, Parliament itself has rather sat on the sidelines here, watching equity's turmoil. As the Supreme Court noted in Greenpeace, Parliament avoided any sort of fundamental reform of charitable status in the Charities Act 2005. That might, I suppose, connote some approval of the current law. But another view is that if it was proving too hard for the courts, Parliament thought better of joining the melee. But this leaves untended what Justice Glazebrook has called the elephant in the room, the benefits of being deemed a charity. Charitable status carries both legal and tax benefits, as well as a mark of societal approval, which may in turn help a trust raise funds. The benefits of charitable status are not abstract. In short, courts ultimately determine the extent of charitable status, but it is the executive and then the public ultimately who foot the bill. All the more reason then, ladies and gentlemen, for equity to grasp the nettle and rediscover a cogent, cohesive theory of just what is, in this century, to be a charity. For my part at least, and taking as I do a long view, I think there is more to be said for the majority approach in AidWatch for all its tentativeness, rather than the half-measured revision advanced by the minority and applied here in this country in Greenpeace. So I wish you all the very best for this conference. My thanks to the organisers and to you all for your kind attention today. Kia ora rawa atu. Um, tēnā katoa katoa i tipu ake oki o tōtahi, ko te pukiahu, tāku kainga, ko nā rātanga ko papa atapai, tōku rapu mahi, ke um, he kaiwhakahaere ahau, ko Andrew Phillips, tōku ingoa. Um, I, um, hello everyone, um, I currently manage the regulatory group at Charity Services of the Department of Internal Affairs, but I've been at Charity Services for about eight years and have been in the organising committee of this conference since its inception in 2018. And I'm really honoured to be able to speak at this conference and set out this really important discussion, um, arguably just as um, important as the one Justice Cobbs um, covered. Um, I think it's important to kick off before we go any further, um, distinguishing certain types of business activity that we'll be discussing today. Um, so today we want to talk about um, business activity that fundraises for charitable purposes. Um, a lot of charities operate like businesses, um, hospitals, private schools, um, but their activities are directed towards charitable purposes. When you're doing an unrelated activity, like say selling breakfast cereal, there are different questions at play. Um, since the 1960s in New Zealand and since 2008 in Australia, um, courts have confirmed that charities can carry out business activities to fundraise for their charitable purposes. The Income Tax Act also provides explicitly that business income for um, used for charitable purposes is exempt from income in certain situations. Um, today, some of the most some of the biggest and most iconic businesses in New Zealand are held by charities. Household names like Shot Over Jets, Lisa's Hummus, and Hamilton's The Base Shopping Mall are either currently owned by charities or charities have a significant um, ownership stake. So their income supports 
significant charitable purposes in the community. Um, a good example is Naitahu. For the year ending 31st of December 2018, um, they distributed almost 37, um, 35.7 million through its um, charitable trust. Uh, but in New Zealand, there's no strict rules around how much income must be applied to charitable purpose. And the largest 25 to 30 foundations established by single donors or families control assets exceeding um, 1.7 billion that are primarily um, business assets. And those assets grew by almost 6% per annum from 2015 to 2017. Um, business and charity is also growing. Um, our stats aren't perfect, but from 2013 to 2017, we've seen a growth of approximately 70% of income received from trading operations, with roughly the same number of charities reporting that they do receive income from trading operations. This shows both the importance of business activities to the sustainability of the sector, but also the significant scope of activity in New Zealand, um, and which is particularly important in this period of time of building back better. Um, this is probably one of the most divisive issues in charities' jurisprudence, both worldwide, where approach, approaches and rules differ, um, and in New Zealand, where the issue has been addressed in discussions about modernising the Charities Act, um, the Tax Working Group report, and even in a recent spin-off documentary. Um, today, we have three influential thinkers in this field to discuss the potential issues and come up with all the answers. Um, Professor Fiona Martin is an internationally recognised tax academic operating out of the Business School of University of New South Wales. Um, and she is going to give a bit of context to these issues by discussing the seminal word investments case in Australia. Um, Stuart Donaldson is a principal policy analyst at Inland Revenue, who has previously worked for the New Zealand and Australian charity regulators and used to publish a blog on charities data, which was great and I recommend Googling. Um, he is going to identify some of the common challenges raised for business charities. Um, finally, Murray Baird, previously the Assistant Commissioner and General Counsel of the Australian Charities and Non-for-Profits Commission, um, from its inception in 2012 to 2019, um, and now a legal practitioner and advisor specialising in law governance and regulation of charities, is going to provide some responses to the common, um, common challenges raised. And then we'll open up for questions. If at any time during the session you want to put a question in the chat box, I'll keep a bit of a record and um, ask it to our illustrious speakers at the end. Um, I, should, I should also note, we're all discussing these matters, drawing on our experience, but by no means representing the organisations, um, our organisations and the views that we express. This is an opportunity to have an open discussion on the issues and cutting through some of the myths, if that's into public discourse. Um, so without further ado, um, Professor Martin, um, enlighten us about the Australian experience and I will share my screen so you can have your presentation up. Uh, yes, thank you everybody. And I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am situated, the Gadigal, uh, the people of the Gadigal nation of the uh, Gadigal country of the Eora nation. And I acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. So yes, today I'm very fortunate. You could, uh, uh, someone's just asked, will my handouts be distributed with the recordings? I'm very happy for them to be. That's terrific. So uh, today, I am very happy if I can go, I don't seem to be able to go forward. Are you able to move me forward? Oh, thank you. So what I'm going to do is just to introduce you all to the situation in Australia regarding charities and carrying on businesses. Now, as you know, we have a Charities Act in Australia, but it doesn't deal with this issue at all. It really deals with charitable purposes and the boundaries of charitable purposes 
and what sort of entities, you know, the, the traditional requirements that charities have to be not-for-profit, have essentially charitable purposes and can't be a political party, That's that type of thing. So Australia has followed the co common law in this area. Can a charity carry on a business? It's been an issue, although not, I don't think, as significant uh, and, or controversial an issue as in New Zealand. Certainly in Australia, it was dealt with by the Productivity Commission that looked at the question of whether there was competitive neutrality because charities carrying on a business don't pay income tax as opposed to businesses that do. However, the Productivity Commission, as Murray, I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail, said from a purely economic perspective, charities weren't gaining any particular advantage because in a general open market, they would be charging the same market rate as anybody else, so not undercutting their for-profit competitors. So we have that situation, but we also have the emerging issue that current economic climate for charities, and probably worse now due to COVID, means that charities can no longer rely on donations from the public and government grants. And in fact, in Australia, it's a bit different regarding donations. I won't go into this in detail, but we have uh, a more restrictive approach to what charities are eligible for tax deductible donations. So not so it's uh, unlike the New Zealand situation. So a lot of charities are really only able to gain funds through perhaps donations that are not tax deductible. And these would be churches, churches, uh, donations to churches as such are not tax deductible. And also government grants. But government grants are usually for carrying on a particular activity. So some charities have traditionally engaged in commercial activities that are really related to their charitable purposes. You know, and we all know about secondhand shops carried on by such wonderful charities as St Vincent de Paul Association or the Salvation Army or other types of charities that provide, you know, say a small fee at a small fee accommodation for, uh, you know, low income people, homeless people, that sort of thing. So those sort of activities are seen as quite related to the activities of the charity. But other charities have broadened their scope in order to raise funds for their charitable purposes. And this became an issue in 2008 with the High Court decision in word investments. So the question is, is there a line to be drawn? So if I could get, oh, great. So word investments, it's a very interesting case. I didn't know anything about this particular organization, Wycliffe. So this is a picture of John Wycliffe here, who was a 14th century evangelicalist. And he promoted the idea, which was heretical at the time, that the Bible be available for everyone in their own language. So translated into English and then subsequently distributed around the world and translated into the particular native country of the country's occupants. So now it's a worldwide organization. And as such, it's a charity for religious advancement. So there's no problem with that. There's never been any problem that's certainly carrying out religious purposes and solely religious purposes. But Word was one of the members of the Wycliffe Group. It was established, first of all, it's a not-for-profit. 
And its purposes were all charitable, but its activities were to raise money, first of all, or to carry on a business or businesses to raise money, all of which must be then returned for charitable purposes. So it's quite clear in its constitution that all the money has to go back to charitable purposes. So that's very significant, that the purposes are in the constitution, that it is a not-for-profit, and that all the money goes back into charitable purposes, either of Wycliffe or of similar organisations. So what happened was, after a while, Word had been raising funds through investment, but it started to carry on a funeral business on commercial terms. And this funeral business was available to everybody, not just Christians, not just members of the Wycliffe organisation. And, and as I said, all the monies raised by Word Investments went to Wycliffe, Wycliffe or other entities for their charitable purposes that were similar in nature, so similar religious organisations. Now, so it went all the way. This case started as a tax case, as they often do. So the ATO said, well, no, you're no longer a charity. We've let you be a charity for quite some time, but you're no longer a charity because you're carrying on this business. Now, this hadn't come before the court, before this issue. And it started off at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is our lowest tribunal where tax matters often commence. Then it went through the federal court, the full federal court of Australia, and then to the high court, which contrary to your situation in New Zealand, is the highest court in Australia. So we have the, the ultimate word, I shouldn't, sorry for the pun, the ultimate decision being made by the High Court of Australia. Now, the court looked at the situation and there were a number of issues, but the main one was the commercial activity of word investments. And the High Court said that word investments and its charitable uh, activities did not uh, prevent it from being a charity. Word endeavoured to make a profit, but only in aid of its charitable purposes. So the court was very clear that there should not be a, a melding, if you like, of activities and purposes. You don't isolate the goal of profit and say that it's a, it's a purpose. It's not a purpose. The purpose is not to, to gain a profit. The purpose is to actually aid and advance the, the religious beliefs of this organisation. The raising of funds is just a way, just an activity in a way of trying to support that. And it made a very nice, I, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but it said a very nice thing like, you know, charities these days can no longer rely on cake stalls and lamington drives. They can't anymore. They can't rely on that to gain any income. They have to be a bit more commercial, a bit more entrepreneurial in order to sustain themselves. So I might just, I was going to actually, uh, I was going to actually, um, read out a quote, but I won't worry. So in conclusion, what we have here is that we have entities that are essentially charitable. They have to have a charitable purpose. They have to have a solely charitable purpose, except for some ancillary 
uh, purposes. So we need to delve back, don't we, into the charitable status of the organisation and leave aside the purposes for the moment. So we have charitable purposes. We have the not-for-profit status of the entity. So we don't have shareholders. We don't have dividends being distributed. And very importantly, this is a big distinction between charities and for-profit businesses. There is no way that a charity can, in, can raise capital through investment. They couldn't, they can't have other organisations or other entities, I should say, investing in word investments, buying shares in it. That just doesn't work. It's no, it would no longer be a charity in that case. So in these situations, you can see there is an inherent difference, even though you might look on the surface and see that a for-profit and a not-for-profit appear to be engaging in very similar or very much the same activities. But fundamentally, they are different creatures. And this really does follow the common law. There was no problem, well, no real drama, I should say, or no conflicting case law as there is in the aid watch situation. It's just that it hadn't come before the courts before. But of course, there are political issues that work against this. And we have, of course, the community, commercial businesses that inherently feel they're a bit hard done by because they can't carry on a business without having to pay income tax. So in Australia, as I said, we have got the common law quite clearly on the side of charities, but it doesn't overcome the problem that charities face with not being able to raise capital through investors. So what we find in Australia, because we don't have any sort of social enterprise type legal status, is that often we will find charities entering into a hybrid arrangement where they might own a business separately, have some sort of you know, majority or shareholding interest in a business, but the business is for profit. And I could talk about that, but I, I don't have time today, but uh, that's a bit of a workaround that charities have found in order for them to be able to A, protect their own business assets, which is an issue, and secondly, be able to raise capital through investors. So thank you, Andrew and everyone. I think that's enough from me. Over to the next speaker. Thank you, Fiona. Um, and now I'll invite um, Stuart to, to give his thoughts. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Um, hi, everyone, Kiora. Uh, thank you for the invitation to speak today on the topic of charities and commercial activities and tax. For the next seven minutes or so, I would like I'm not going to represent the government and I'm not going to represent inland revenue. My goal is simply to open your eyes to what it might be like to be a new minister of revenue coming to grips with their portfolio. A new minister who perhaps has always been supportive of the charitable sector, but who has never had to seriously think about whether a charity's commercial activities should be taxed. As most of you will know, New Zealand has just had an election and we have a new minister uh, of revenue who officially starts on the job this Friday. So I want to have some fun and I want to role play. What I want to do is get you to imagine that you are that minister and you have tax officials in your office and you've set aside seven minutes to talk about charities and tax. So that's my, that's the scenario. So um, it's a bit like the program, Yes Minister. Lesson one, um, public perception. 
All ministers are lobbied by the public. Before even meeting your tax officials, your staff have pointed out you have received several emails about tax and charitable businesses. Some are from academics, most are from businesses, tax paying businesses, asking you to consider changing the law and make commercial entities owned by charities pay tax. Because if you don't, these privileged tax exempt businesses, which are their competitors, are gonna drive them out of business and they are already hurting from COVID. So you need to do something urgently because not taxing their competitors is unfair. You're surprised to hear this is such a hot topic, but your staff say it's not uncommon for ministers of revenue to receive these types of letters. At one point, the previous minister was receiving several of these letters each week from different constituents. This also reflects submissions made to the tax working group in 2018, where the majority of submitters were tax paying businesses who asked the working group to recommend removing the charitable business exemption because it confers an unfair competitive advantage. So you realize this isn't a topic you can ignore. You have to reply to all these letters. Um, You're going to have to make a decision about where you stand. Lesson two, New Zealand history lesson. Your first question to the official is the obvious one. What is the rationale for not taxing commercial activities of charities? Um, Immediately, the official politely corrects you. Actually, in New Zealand, there is no blanket exemption for charitable commercial activities. Since as far back as 1940, the tax law has taken a different approach to taxing business income compared to investment income. While investment income is automatically tax exempt, business income is taxable if it's put if it's used, sorry, to fund any overseas charitable purposes. The official reads out the rationale from the policy files, which boils down to three principles. Business income should be taxed differently to investment income because charitable businesses are in active competition with tax paying businesses. Secondly, tax exempt businesses have a definite advantage over competitors. It doesn't mean they'll undercut prices of their competitors, but what it does mean is that they can Um, they can grow a lot faster than other businesses. Now, thirdly, it's okay for a charitable business to have the advantage of tax exemption, as long as it benefits Kiwis. To the extent that the charitable business benefits foreigners, and just to be clear, that includes Australians, uh, the business must pay tax in New Zealand. So now you realize that some charitable businesses in New Zealand actually do pay tax. That's not a point that's often made in our media today. There's a general assumption that all charitable businesses are exempt, they're not. Um, But um, you might ask, well, actually, is that 1940s policy setting still right today? The official points out that the current policy setting has been challenged in almost every significant review of the New Zealand tax system, starting from the 1966 Ross Review, the 1982 McCaw Report, the 1987 Roger Douglas proposals for charities, and the 2001 discussion document issued by the then Minister of Revenue, Michael Cullen. All of these reviews recommended taxing charity commercial activities like any other business. The typical reasons were to limit the scope for charities to be used for tax avoidance and to reduce the advantages accruing to charities which operate in competition with taxable businesses. You wonder why none of these recommendations were adopted. However, you also recall that in February last year, the New Zealand Tax Working Group concluded the underlying issue is about the extent to which charitable businesses and charities themselves are distributing the surpluses from their activities for the benefit of the charitable purposes. If there is to be a change, perhaps a policy option may be to tax retained commercial surpluses rather than all commercial surpluses. Lesson three, international context. You feel as though you need more context. So how does New Zealand compare to other countries? 
that's where you ask your official. The official smiles, he anticipated this question, and he points, pulls out of his briefcase, um, a very recent and large uh, paper from the OECD dated October 2020, so just last month. Um, after surveying 38 OECD, OECD members earlier this year, the OECD concluded that only New Zealand, Australia and Malta exempt unrelated commercial uh, income completely from tax, only three countries. All other OECD countries in the survey either tax some or all of the charitable commercial income, or they restrict charities from engaging in certain types of commercial activities. Does the OECD report provide any insights into why New Zealand and Australia are outliers? So the tax official summarizes key takeaways from that report. The OECD said there is widespread concern internationally that exempting commercial income may create an unfair competitive advantage. The OECD acknowledged there's a range of complex and less complex policy options to tax charity commercial activities. And the OECD concludes this, an, this is an important area for policymakers and that countries should reassess the merits of providing tax exemption for commercial income of charities, at least insofar as this income is unrelated to the entity's worthy purposes. Lesson four. New Zealand context. So, okay, although the overseas context is interesting, you ask what makes New Zealand different. The official notes that New Zealand has a lot of commercial businesses in the charitable sector, compared to other countries, both large and small, ranging from hotels, dairy farms, some of the largest in New Zealand, to retailers and wineries. Some charities will acquire large businesses and then sell them. So it's not uncommon for businesses to move in and out of the charitable sector and the tax base. Other charitable businesses are established as part of for-profit groups with complex related party transactions and very low distributions to charitable purposes. In addition, a number of significant charitable businesses are funding iwi charities established from treaty settlements that support the Maori sector. So we have our own unique aspects in New Zealand. You ask how much tax revenue is foregone. That's a really difficult question. Officials hate answering that. No country in the world publishes how much tax is foregone as a result of business tax exemptions. But if you look at the uh, charity services statistics, you've got about 24,000 registered charities um, who reported, I think, for 2018, 1.2 billion worth of surpluses. About half of those were trading. So, I mean, it would be significant. It would be in the tens of millions, if not more. Lesson five, is there a compelling case to act? At this point, your seven minutes is pretty much up. Um, you've, oh, at least the seven minutes you've allocated to discussing charities. You've drawn several conclusions already from what the officials said. Taxing charitable business is a topic the public has an ongoing interest in and it's unlikely to go away. Secondly, the current New Zealand tax framework does treat business income different to investment income. Um, and um, some of that business income is actually currently taxed. Thirdly, you conclude the New Zealand tax reviews tend to conclude either business profits should be taxed or at least business profits that are not used for charitable purposes need to be closely scrutinized, primarily in the interest of promoting competitive neutrality and preventing tax avoidance. Uh, next, New Zealand and Australia are OECD outliers. Uh, that doesn't mean we're wrong, of course, we could be OECD leaders, but we are OECD, outli OECD outliers in this area. And lastly, New Zealand has a wide range of commercial, commercial entities and the amount of accumulated income appears significant. So you ask if there's a compelling case to take action. With less than 30 seconds left to answer the question, the official offers the following advice. The New Zealand tax system is based on a broad base low rate framework, so a decision must be made about how much support charity commercial activities receive at the expense of erosion of the tax base, particularly where commercial surpluses are not being distributed to charitable purposes.
Um, however, taxing charitable businesses may have unforeseen consequences. For example, the government may be asked to supplement the drop in net funding income by providing more grants to the charities affected if any tax was introduced. Uh, the integrity of the tax system is potentially compromised as well, where there is a high volume of commercial activities accessing unlimited tax exemptions. That seems to be the case um, in New Zealand largely. However, the official does point out that international experience needs to be considered and international experience tells us if a tax system is changed to tax unrelated commercial income, this is a concept that's difficult to define. Little tax is collected from that sort of tax internationally and that can be due to a number of factors including the width of exemptions and sophisticated tax planning. Also, these types of taxes bring significant compliance costs to the, to the sector. Anyway, your time of thinking about taxing charities is up and you realize that the tax policy decisions are not easy and you're gonna to have to meet officials again. You move on to the next topic of the day, the tax topic that is, providing it's not so, um, perhaps it's not so difficult. And the next tax topic, the next seems to be, um, how do you find effective tax ways of taxing the likes of Google and Facebook? Perhaps that's a lot more easy than figuring out what to do with charities. Uh, that's me. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Stuart. Um... And now Murray, for who I, I imagine is going to give us a quite different um, take on some of those issues. Yes, uh, thank you, Andrew, and good day, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be with you today, and I pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm physically present, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Our conference theme is Building Back Better. It contemplates how charities damaged by pandemic can once again be sustainable, can once again be vibrant and healthy and contribute to the public benefit. And in doing so, relieve the burden that would otherwise fall on government for the welfare of citizens. So minister, here's another lobbyist, uh, albeit a foreigner. In New Zealand, the Modernising the Charities Act discussion document from Internal Affairs in 2019 said this, all charities need sustainable sources of finance to carry out their work. Charities are relying increasingly on income from trading goods and services. And I submit that it's more so with dwindling government and philanthropic support. Now, tax acts in Australia and New Zealand both confirm that income derived directly or indirectly from a business carried on by a registered charitable entity is exempt income, provided there's no diversion of advantage to its managers. And, and this is confirmed in cases like uh, Carey's Drapery, Call the Construction, Auckland Medical Aid Trust, uh, and Word Investments in Australia. Yet, there is continuing agitation, especially in New Zealand, that there's some unfairness about allowing charities to raise funds in markets where there is competition with those who are raising funds for their shareholders or their owners. Now, taxation is of course a statutory construct. And, and if a surplus can be identified, it can be taxed. Therefore, the revenue can be given legislative power to clip the ticket on the journey to a charitable destination. Charity status need not be locked into tax preferment. The present question is not, can charities run businesses, but should charities run businesses? Now that modernizing the Charities Act discussion document asked about the risks of 
unrelated business activities and queried registration and reporting requirements concerning them. It references Canada, where charities may not conduct unrelated business. England and Wales, where unrelated business must be carried on through a subsidiary. And it could also have referenced the United States, where unrelated activities are taxed. These are some of the objections to the current arrangements. Firstly, that charitable assets may be jeopardised by having too much business risk. Secondly, that business arrangements may not be transparent because of consolidated accounts. And thirdly, that it's unfair to taxpaying business to have to compete with charities. So Minister, here are my responses. The first reason concerning business risk is redolent of a patronising attitude to charities of past eras. They should stick to their knitting. They should stay in the kitchen and they should never be creative or entrepreneurial. It implies that charity governance is amateurish and naive and needs to be protected from itself. And that donors are not prepared to support entrepreneurial activities recognising risk, return and sustainability. I appreciate the transparency argument, although we don't require the same from business. No doubt that can be addressed in reporting requirements. And now the unfairness argument. I submit it has little merit. A charity entering into a business comes with the disadvantage of not being able to raise capital in the usual way. There are few concessions in the train of sourcing supplies sourced in the same market as commercial enterprises. There are no concessions in the cost of processing with the same labour costs as any other and in the marketing through the same supply chains as the other. And that's perhaps why Kellogg's cornflakes and sanitarium cornflakes sit on the same shelf at my supermarket with similar pricing. It's only at the end of the process that profits either go to private benefit or public good that the taxation decision is made. And the for-profit businesses can also make the decision to give to a charity rather than to their shareholders and thus avoid tax. Both types of entities seek to maximize output for a given cost. Whether or not there's an income tax exemption, the output and pricing decisions to maximise surplus for shareholder or charity are the same. I suggest that competitive neutrality is a term laden with value judgment. It may be appropriate to government competing with business, but falls down when appropriated by business as rhetoric against the charity sector. This was the conclusion of the Australian Industry Commission report on charitable organisations 25 years ago. It was confirmed by the Industry Commission in its report on contribution of the not-for-profit sector a decade ago. But the objections still linger on. Finally, the usual solution to these supposed ills is to distinguish between active investment and passive investment. Related and unrelated uh, business is another distinction made. Experience around the world shows that attempts to distinguish between related and unrelated business are complex, artificial, 
burdensome, and at times ludicrous. In the recent Scottish case of New Lanark, it appears that whether an ice cream outlet in an historic village polluted a charitable purpose depended on a glass window where tourists could see the ice cream being made. That made it a charitable purpose. In Canada, charity shops must not repair any donated goods, even if just a touch of paint may restore value. They must ensure a high ratio of volunteers to employed staff, and they may only apply resources where they have excess capacity uh, to um, earn income. Canadian Revenue publishes complex guides of what is in and what is out. In Australia, Treasury officials gave up exhausted trying to define what was related and what was unrelated. And it was freely admitted by the Australian government when all was said and done, an unrelated business income tax would not raise $1 more tax. This was a doctrinal issue, not a revenue exercise. And the sky has not fallen in the wake of word, word investments. So in conclusion, if charity is good for public benefit, let it flourish, let it take risks and decide whether it deserves tax preferment because of the good that it does. Do not tie its hands behind its back on the pretext of protecting it from itself. If the real mischief is public benefit, target that rather than find proxy targets. So, Minister, to quote one great socialist from the past, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred ways of fundraising contend. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Murray. Um, as usual, eloquent, um, as always. Um, right, so we've got a few comments in the chat box, but no um, questions other than um, Jennifer Petroni has asked if Stuart, you could provide a link to the OECD paper, but as far as I understood, that's um, not available. Am I correct? Um, oh, sorry. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I um, can't provide a link. It's in draft. I think the OECD is looking at um, finalising it. Um, I think it's about next um, February, March, actually. Even then, I'm not sure how much does go in the public arena or not. Uh, maybe it, most of it does, I think. Thank you for that. Um, I suppose a, a question for you, Murray. Um, so what what would you do about um, um, having your previous regulatory um, experience? What would you do about a situation where you saw um, a charity um, that's, that where the, um, where the assets of the charity seem to be flowing the other way, basically propping up a business arm? What, what do you, where do you think that fits in the big um, equation? How should that be dealt with? Yes, I think that the, the real question to ask is what's really going on here? Uh, His Honour spoke of uh, the need to keep the purpose in mind rather than you know, means and methods along the way. And so what is the purpose and is it really being carried out in a bona fide way? There will be times when uh, you will need to capitalise a business with the potential for great profit and great support in the future. 
just as there will be times when you need to accumulate your surpluses because of your grand plans for the future. So uh, let's not simply say you mustn't do that. Uh, say what's really going on here is this genuinely charitable or is there something else going on is this not bona fide and is this really about uh, private benefit um thank you for that that's that's a really useful answer i'm just wondering Stuart, whether you have any thoughts on that kind of um scenario not really because it doesn't really come up that much in the in the tax situation um so yeah, no, not really. I mean, I, I mean, you can obviously, if you were briefing the minister, it's something that you could raise because it's an example where if you were briefing a minister, you'd almost want charity services to be there within land revenue so you could provide the minister a fuller picture of the of the sector and the commercial activity examples. Hmm. Um, um, if I could just make a yep. comment. <laughs> Sorry, hi, Andrew. Uh, just, uh, it was made very clear by the High Court that the monies raised through the commercial activities of word investments had to go towards charitable purposes, either of the Wycliffe organisation or a similar charity. So I'm not quite sure what you mean by propping up the business, but as such, I don't think the funds can flow that way. You know, that's not what they were talking about. They're very clear that it, the funds have to go from the business to the charity. Thanks for that. That's quite, that's quite a Yeah, you know, one thing I've always mused about, can, can I add to that, Andrew? I mean, one of the things I've always been curious about, Fiona, with that sort of example is, is how that works in practice in New Zealand when you have so many businesses that are coming into the charitable sector and then going out. So sure, at one point, uh, for-profit, providing profits to, to for-profit shareholders, then they get acquired by a charity, the profits go to the charity, then they're sold and the profits go to to private benefit again. So we have quite a lot of movement in and out of our sector. And I, I mean, maybe that's just not the case in Australia. It's just curious to see there might be a difference. That's a very interesting point. But my understanding, and it is something that's being considered, I know, by the ATO, is that once you're a charity, you know, and if you then deal with charitable assets in any way, they have to, the, you know, the profits have to go back to the charity. And if it's wound up, for example, then that all has to go to the, well, the, a new charity or a similar charity. So you can't just return any of those funds to sort of private investors. Mm. But that is a, there is a case. I know, I think, um, is it Anne Robinson's got a case where that situation did happen and it's been going on for years and I don't think it's been resolved. Mary, do you know any more about that? Well, the, the Bread Institute was an organisation that encouraged research to make better bread for Australians. It was a, uh, an initiative of uh, grain growers and, and, and bread makers. And uh, the board dwindled to three people and then suddenly the company was, was um, uh, transferred into private, uh, a private holding. And the question has been, if it was charitable, how can it just be converted to private benefit? It seems to, and the, the case is still not washed up after a decade of, of debate. But it occurs to me that if, you are, um, if a charity is dealing with an asset, it ought to deal with that asset uh, at arm's length and that the profit that comes in or, the, uh, or the, um, uh, the, the transfer fee that comes in must be applied to charitable purposes. It can't be uh, 
um, spent on private purposes, and that if in fact a special deal's been done, attack that problem, attack the bona fides of a lack of um, of a breach of trust at that point. Um, it's interesting that in word investments, the uh, how do you pull yourself up by the bootstraps? How do you start a um, a funeral business which has fairly uh, fairly low barriers to entry? Actually, you just need a um, a big station wagon and a big fridge. But the the seed capital was provided by Wycliffe. Uh, they put the seed capital in so that they could have uh, an ultimate uh, harvest uh, of profits. Okay, thank you for that, Murray. That was a really little useful little chat we had. Um, but I think now I think we're out of time. So I um, really like to thank everyone who contributed and and thank you very much for the people who. Um, um, provided questions. Sorry, we didn't get around to everyone. There were a few little bursts of questions at the end of that came to me, but um, um, I think I'll have to hand over now to Brent and thank you again for that really rich conversation. Thank you. Look, and on to the third session, uh, 2.35 to 3.10 in room one is the how to be sustainable when asset rich, cash poor, and the trust and foundation and the sustainability interrelationships of that. Let's not forget if you are thinking, when's it time to call quits or community connection, um, they are across in meeting rooms two and three. And I think I can only wish you all the best of luck in uh, community connections, because I know that uh, there's some great stuff lined up where we're, um, where they're going to be splitting you. Stephen has got the art of splitting you into even more groups for, for that discussion. So think local conference, local part, and see where that goes. It is here though, and it's with a great pleasure for the ongoing conversation in regards to sustainability. Um, we have Bruce Anderson from uh, Christian Savings Scheme to think and look at the cash rich, asset poor, and then in about 15 minutes, we'll also dive across to Tim Watts, uh, an, an outward bound uh, client of ours, where for a number of years, we've watched foundations versus trust and, and that whole interrelationship develop and things there. So we'll have a, a rounded conversation in, in relation to that part. But Bruce, first of all, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here and on board. And um, yeah, such a common problem, such a common um uh, piece where organisations find themselves to be, and, and I'm absolutely sure even more over the next uh, 12, 18, 24 months to, to have that asset rich, but actually that for the accountants out there, statement of cash flows and or cash, uh, where's that part holding up? So Bruce, your, your knowledge, please. It's great to have you on board. Thank you. And thanks for that, Kia ora, everyone. And if I don't mind, I am going to share my screens. I do have some slides. So if you could just let me just set that up for you rather quickly. Hopefully that will all start coming through. Hopefully everyone can see that. Brent, are you giving me a thumbs up? Then I will be happy to proceed. Excellent. Thank you so much. So uh, as I work uh, with uh, a CEO who is a lawyer, he did ask me to put a slight waiver in there. And this is uh, sort of not quite tongue in cheek, but um, I do want to say that this is not... Uh, my advice to you as a professional, but rather just some of my comments around what I've seen and some possible recommendations. And I, I do advise you where possible to obtain um, professional advice. So um, a little bit of a waiver and hopefully James is happy with uh, those legal words that I've put in the front there. And just a little bit about myself and rather quickly, um, I am a member of the uh, 
Chartered Institute of Accountants, and I am also a CIMNA. I did spend some time in South Africa, hence my strange accent in inland revenue uh, as a conscience objector, actually, which was interesting. And I spent most of my time, which is where you'll see this pre presentation going, looking at banks and insurance companies. Uh, in New Zealand, I've spent some time at UDC Finance, both as a financial controller and also as a board member, ultimately, and then moved on to ANZ Bank, where I did spend some time as head of finance for the commercial and agri division. I have also have another life in where I was a financial controller for a large charity being Rima Media and ended up being on the board of that and also um, ultimately as chair for about seven years. Spent some time at the parenting place as CEO and now you find myself at Christian Savings as the CFO and also CFO of community finance. So certainly have had my feet in both camps from a commercial perspective and also from a charitable perspective as well. So talking about charities and asset rich and cash poor, and there is some issues that we're facing at the moment, and I won't go back into discussing those because we were all blatantly or painfully aware of what those are. And in this environment, it does make us make or have to make some decisions. And these decisions may or may not be easy to make, but a lot of charities find themselves with a significant amount of assets However, not necessarily a significant amount of cash. And I thought this was appropriate. And um, this is from the movie uh, Moneyball about the fact that we can be concerned because I don't have to mention to you or explain what it's like not to have a cash flow or what's in your bank account. So that side of it's pretty straightforward. We may or may not have cash to run our current operations to meet our current purpose. Simplistically, our expenses are growing pretty rapidly. Um, but our revenue is not necessarily growing. And uh, I was really interested in the previous discussion around tax, and I won't go into tax at all, but what if we also ended up having to pay tax? And I'm certainly not going to go there in this discussion. So assets, what are assets? Well, assets should be a resource that's an economic value. We own it or we control it, and it should provide a future benefit. And hopefully that benefit is a cash flow. And that cash flow could be used to support operations, or it could be used to reduce expenses. That's what our assets should be. However, what we are finding is that our assets that we have in charitable sector could be more like a millstone. Expenses around insurance are going up, maintenance costs, and making sure that these assets that we have, which are a tool of trade of what we're doing, still fit our purpose. In other words, are they still doing what they were set up to do? Or are they delivering a return that you can use to meet your purpose. And if they're not, what do you do about that? The second thing to think about is, do we have to own those assets or continue to own those assets? Could we rent the asset that we perhaps might be in? And I'm referring specifically here to perhaps property. If the answer is no, and you were to think it from a holistic perspective, what could you do with the proceeds of disposing of those assets? And this requires some honest answers to some perhaps difficult questions, specifically those of those amongst us who are sit on perhaps boards of large organizations controlling large amounts of assets. So here's the challenge. To make a radical change requires courage and innovation. Looking at the assets that we have, what are we gonna do with those? 
You know, it's interesting. One of the most popular shows is The Repair Shop. I'm not sure if you've had an opportunity to watch it, but I'm always interested by the things that come up that people bring into this repair shop to be repaired. And, you know, it's interesting that the thing in itself isn't, it's interesting and the, the skills that the person uses to repair it is, is fascinating and brilliant. But the real thing about the item that's brought in is the memories, is the, the connection between the item and the person who's brought it in. Now, the question I ask in this session is, what are you going to do for the next generation? What do we do with these assets that we have for the next generation? How do we create something that's more enduring than what we have right now? And I guess that's what requires the courage and innovation. So let me talk a little bit about partnerships. Um, you may or may not remember this. Uh, this was about our uh, Olympics during the 2004 Olympics. There was an eight women, women's eight crew and, um, and apologies to those in Australia. Um, Sally Robbins decided to give up rowing during the final. And at that stage, I think Australia were in the lead. Now, no one knows there was a sort of mental health and what happened and why that person did it. The key is, though, that if they continue to row together as a team, they may have won. They may not have won, but they may have won. But certainly, when one person in that boat decided to stop rowing, there was no way that that boat was going to win. Now, I think, I sincerely believe as charities, we can do much better when we work together as charitable organizations. We may have assets that one charity can use or another charity could borrow or perhaps pay for. So how can we look at our assets that we have and what can we contribute to the wider charitable sector? What can we offer, give to support others? Or it may also mean obtaining a cash flow. So let me talk a little bit about a case study where I currently work, which this works very well. A number of charities, one particular one was looking for a new head office. They looked around and couldn't find an appropriate building. Suddenly realized if you've got a couple of charities together, we could all work from one building and share the resources that were in there. And yes, this is about preserving cash flow rather than spending all that you have in order to have your own building in terms of ownership. So we share a common boardrooms, we share common amenities, and we actually we get together and often to share common challenges. Because charities working together works better than us working as individuals and on our own. You do need careful planning. You do need to structure it correctly. But if it's done properly, it can be done really, really well. So income producing assets and social enterprise. A couple of examples here. Um, I'm aware of uh, an organization that has a cafe on site and also a what's called small fries or a childcare. Um, and in fact, just interesting listening to the uh, case in Australia, they actually also just started a funeral business and it is a church. So you've got a church that sort of goes from, I guess, from cradle to grave uh, in one organization and it is related. Um, but they took a stock take of what was on site and that was what was around about them. And in fact, the Small Fries was a McDonald's franchise and hence the name Small Fries. And so that went up for sale and the church chose to purchase that franchise and turn it into childcare. The success behind it was doing a viability study with a childcare work in that area. They got really good advice from, hopefully from some good accountants and lawyers. And they planned and they planned and they planned. Because ultimately we need to be good stewards if we're on these boards of what we have and what we use. Absolutely critical and vital. 
and not doing it your own. If I can quickly mention another sort of collaboration effort, and we talked a little bit about impact investing, because everyone wants to look at attracting new funds. Perhaps the purpose that you have could attract an impact investor, somebody who wants to invest in what you're doing more than just to get a return, or in fact, get a return and to create some social benefit. And we've just recently, newspaper just talked about a, a, a collaboration between community finance, the Salvation Army, and the KiwiSaver Fund, providing the funds we need to help the Salvation Army to build some homes for homeless people. So I think you can attract new sources of funds or cash flows because of what your purpose is. So reflecting back on who you are and what you are set up to do is important. There is additional impact reporting from that, but I think that's on us as accountants and lawyers to make sure that we are reporting back to fund holders and stake managers or stakeholder managers so that we can do what our purpose is. And finally, just to sort of quote something from someone who has uh, probably no time left, I guess, but none of us have an endless supply of time. So while we lock about assets and we talk about cash, at the end of the day, we do have to make sure we make good use of the time that we have. So I would suggest deferring decisions or delaying may or may not be a good idea. Uh, we need to move now and move quickly. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Bruce. No, thank you. Just, just a, a quick query before we go across to Tim on on, on that, Bruce. In it, in it, it involves how we connect because I think the the Lighting Hub one is is fantastic and it's it's neat to see shared resource and use of resource. Um, in all organisations, we have management on that side that can, you know, let's pretend, see the logical need to and, and go and do. And we've got governance on the other side, who, as you say, are, are those good stewards. How, in 30 seconds, do you get both, both parties, um, you know, on, on the same song sheet? How do you get them both going in, in, in one direction? I think it is about selling the vision and the purpose for what you're doing. Um, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the courage that probably comes in the part of the, the board and the trustees and the governance, the innovation is management because they live and breathe every day of the week what the purpose is of the organization you're in. So I've been able to go to the board or to go to the governance side and saying, we passionately believe this is possible. Here's the research that we've done. Here's the reasoning why. And to be fair, it's almost in that session in room two, which is probably the hardest session to go to about when's it time to call it quits. Um, who would want to make that sort of call? I'd much rather go there going, here's a vision about how we don't have to call it quits, but in fact, we can take this asset that we have, or we can use this asset for this purpose, um, which is a lot more innovative and courageous than perhaps calling it quits. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that's, yeah, it, it is all about the positivity piece, isn't it? It's the selling piece. Um, and, and I think it's a really valid piece on asset cash that spreads across the entire sector. It's not just in, you know, the immediate thought-based ways will go to, you know, a, a number of faith-based organisations uh, or, or old established organisations. But in fact, it's, uh, it's across the board. Yeah. Fantastic, Bruce. Thank you for those insights. Let's park that one slightly on, on hold for a second. And I'm sure there'll be some other, other questions and uh, inquiries that come in as well. As I have the, the pleasure to also introduce into the, the, the session, 
um, on sustainability and, and things, Tim Watts. Now, Tim has um, been involved with uh, TalentWire, has been one of, of, of multiple organisations that have come up and through, but also is currently sitting uh, as Deputy Chair for Outward Bound and is on the board for Outward Bound Foundation. One of the reasons I gave Tim a call to stop and, and, and see and think is just a little bit of soundbite background as Tim's very diligently got there. Outward Bound's been there since 1962, which is phenomenal. I had the pleasure of being involved with them. Um, uh, gives the age away, obviously. Um, it's birthday. Um, and, and as part of their 40th birthday, they launched this foundation. And it was going to be, let's stop and, and, and hold that as the investment part or the, the growth part, the fund for the ongoing sustainability. Great to be able to report almost 20 years later that obviously, uh, despite COVID, things are still here. Um, but it's it's been there. It's been a journey, Tim. Um, mm. I'm really interested to start to hear some of that journey of when the foundation was first set. Um, you know, some of the struggles. Some of the was there a need for a lot of governance discussion to get it across the line, and or has it evolved almost 20 years on to be something that was originally thought of or has it morphed as the, the years, dates and, and, and pressures have come along? Yeah, absolutely. And um, thanks for the introduction, Brent. And um, thank you all for, for um, having me as part of this uh, fantastic conference you're putting on uh, today. Um, look, Outward Bound is an incredibly special organisation and I can speak for hours about how great it is. But um, if we're talking about the interconnection between our foundation that was set up in the, uh, well, the idea of setting it up in the late 90s, but officially coming into being in the early 2000s, really came as a catalyst of the exact point of the session you're doing about sustainability. Um, the organisation was at a, was in a situation where um, its sustainability looking forward was in question. And it had one of two choices, either it um, looked at its future and whether it was going to be able to be there, or we looked long and hard about how we could ensure that we could be sustainable for the next 50 years. So yeah, some wise heads got together um, we already had some funding, a small amount of funding that was there by way of bequests. Um, that was more tagged funding for scholarships. And then um, with a gift of some shares um, in an organization called Rangatera, um, the foundation was born. So I think from, from our point of view, yes, an absolute need because we weren't going to be sustainable going forward. And there were going to be situations or crises in the future and we've just been through one of them which we'll talk about shortly um where we needed to know we had a backstop that we could actually rely on to work through um those tough times so yeah we, we've gone from a, a million odd dollars um when we set up the foundation in 2001 plus some shares um to a valuation now of about 18 odd million um and as you said, Brent, sitting on the board and foundation, um, we always need more. And I'm sure that's the same for everybody on this call. Um, we, always, we all need more security and we all need more funding. So, you know, 
it needs to be an actual fact, probably twice the size of what it is for us to really um, say that we're completely comfortable and we don't have to focus on it. Um, yeah, go. Yeah, and, and, and with it, Tim, yes, I guess some of that original discussion was around, you know, and it's, it's, it's one that's always, uh, always broached with organisations. Should we just tip it into one? You could have equally easily held it as the outward-bound trust full stop or, as you did do, set up a separate entity, um, in part twice the compliance, twice the rigmarole, twice the, the legislative uh, need to look after and think of, but maybe risk uh, se separated, uh, maybe maybe um, you know a different aspect to it. Was was there discussion in regard to just holding everything in one, or was it always let's go trust and foundation route and uh, and, and grow grow both? Look, it's a very good question. Um, and without relitigating what happened in the early 90s, we had a very decentralized um, organizational structure, probably not too dissimilar to many charities um, in New Zealand at that time. Um, quite a branch network where each of our branch chairs um, effectively became our board or our, um, our members council. So quite a behemoth, if I'm honest, um, and probably not the best kind of governance structure um, that would allow us to be nimble and allow us to sort of be um, on the money um, with changes that were happening and being totally across where we needed to be as an organisation. Um, at that time, we put a proper board structure in place with independent directors. Um, and there was a lot of talk about whether the fund should sit within the trust or as separately in a foundation. Now, two, two um, areas there. Um, one is the trust actually operates a school, which is an Anakiwa, which is where the gold happens for us. Um, and the workings of that school um, are quite specific. So having that, having the foundation uh, merged in with that didn't feel as if it was appropriate for us um, when we're talking about things, everything from health and safety, um, everything from um, enrollments, sales, marketing, were quite different functions to what we were requiring to do about building a foundation. It also, so operationally, it, didn't, it wasn't the right structure for us. But then also, if we think about it from good governance, um, we wanted to make sure there was appropriate checks and balances um, between the trust and the foundation. So, you know, it could have, if we had it in the trust, it could have been quite easily as a overdraft facility um, or the way it was viewed or looked at um, could have over, over the period of the last 20 odd years um, could have been looked at differently than what it is. But having that extra layer um, Yes, you're right from a compliance point of view, and our auditors tell us this as well, that you could simplify things. Um, but I think it's actually been the essence of how we've got the foundation to where it is now, how our management team have um, operated around good process, around when they need extra funding and support. Um, and it provides us an opportunity when we're going out to funders in particular, um, that they know that they have an option of putting um, funds into the into the foundation and it can be tagged to different areas rather than just all being thrown into the trust where it potentially could be used from everything from OPEX, CAPEX um, or scholarship funding. So yeah, I think it's part of it. It's a jewel. It's really the jewel of what we did, um, having it as a separate um, legal structure. 
Sure, and 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 you mentioned the ATM uh, management team, and you know they know it. They know it's there and such like. Um, I can only start to imagine the pressure uh, from a, a, a trust, a, a board point of view of the foundation and the, the the management team thinking. And I've got to raise another four million dollars this year because you're always on the you know out there needing to raise funds for equipment, input, education, children, subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. What's the yeah. like between the management team and, you know, and, and, and access to? Oh, look, I think um, it, 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 it's, a, uh, it's a good question. And I think we're incredibly fortunate to have such a close relationship um, and have such competent people uh, working for us um, within the management team. Um, I won't lie, there are, are times when, and if I look at COVID in particular, um, where we could have taken a very operational view. Um, to put it in perspective for, for others that don't know us, we run um, an education facility in the Marlborough Sounds. Uh, uh, when we just went through COVID, um, we couldn't operate any courses, so we had to shut the school. Um, which then effectively, we didn't know when we were going to be able to reopen. We had staff, um, 60, 70 odd staff across Wellington and Anakiwa. And that was, we were, we were seeing very quickly, um, you know, our financial position becoming difficult. So, yeah, we could have, you know, the team could have taken a very operational focus and said, don't worry, we've got a foundation, tap into it, let's not worry. But we also, the purpose of our foundation um, is to ensure that Outward Bound is delivering and supporting um, people through these experiences uh, for the next 10, 20, 30 years, rather than getting us through the next three or four months. Um, so look, it, it, um, we, we were lucky. It then put the pressure back on the management team and they did an incredible job of going out and um, raising other funds themselves to, to, to help them through it. And then what we put together um, was a package that actually supported them in the extraordinary circumstances that we're in. So, yeah, I think there are always challenges and pressures, but um, it's about transparency. It's about good communication. Um, and what we try and do each year is sit down with the management team um, from a foundation perspective and going, this is how our investments are doing. This is what we're forecasting. This is the grant we think we are able to pass through to the trust um, to fund everything from our largely scholarships, which allow students to go on courses or discounted, but also operational grants if, if are required. So, but no, we haven't we haven't um, had any uh, deep issues um, that I can recall. Um, but yeah, I think the more we can communicate and be open with each other, the easier these things are. It, it's an interesting point because, you know, when you used within that explanation that the, the setting of expectations and, 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 I, and I tip my hat to you for sitting down with the management team as, as you know, sit, sitting down with a, a separate organisation effectively and setting expectations of what, what's available, what's not, so that everyone can have the buy-in. And I think that's a a really interesting soundbite for everyone on the call of when was the last time you went to your funder, one of your funders, one of your stakeholders, whoever it may be, to have a, a, a conversation. And particularly in times of 
you know, 1% return or, and those sorts of things, um, that conversation is going to become even more important, I would have thought. Yeah, it's, we were in a, you know, back, back to a COVID scenario, we were looking at a foundation that was 18 million that over a period of a few weeks was down closer to 12, 13 million. We knew that wasn't going to be a permanent shift because um, we've got a number of astute financial brains uh, involved with the organisation. But again, you know, say if this if it was going to carry on, um, that would have seriously impacted our ability to support the trust. Um, so, yeah, I think the other thing which is a bit unique with us is we have, you know, as you mentioned at the start, is I'm deputy chair of the board, the trust board, but I also sit on our foundation. So there's crossover of directors between our trust board as well as our foundation board. So it means that our, um, but we still have an independent or independents that sit on the foundation board who aren't on the trust board. But what it does is it allows um, the foundation to have real exposure to the pressures that the trust is under um, and where they need support. So, you know, it's not a completely separate board. There is crossover. And I think that is part of the gold of what we've created as well. So, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before, Tim, that yes, it started off at a million and in a, a bit. Uh, it's grown to 16, 17 and things where it sits at the moment. In, in the last couple of minutes that we've got there, Thoughts of of that level of growth going forward. Where where if we dialed into a clans conference in twenty years time? <laughs> hopefully we're to, yeah. Right, I, I, hopefully we're all, all okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, COVID will be a distant memory, I'm sure. But um, no, a good question, Brent. Um, look, we don't receive um, general government funding. Um, you know, we have relationships with a number of different funders, operational, strategic, as well as a very strong um, bequest program as well. Um, we need to impact more New Zealanders. We want to impact more New Zealanders. And if anyone's got a bricks and mortar type operation, they're getting more and more expensive to operate as opposed to not, uh, let alone the changes in increased health and safety uh, compliance costs that we're working in. So the environment's becoming more difficult to traverse, as well as in costs associated to delivering what we do continue to increase. So we need to be, I would say, at least twice where we are now. Um, the things that the board are working on right now is about, okay, so how is that achieved? Because it's very easy for us to be focused on getting a student onto a course but then at the same time, how do we try and increase the foundation size to be from 18 to 25 to 30? So, you know, how do we better resource our, um, our fundraising team? Is it more dedicated fundraising um, support just for the foundation to grow it versus operational support? Those kinds of things. But it's all very well to throw numbers out there, but we need to be able to try and um, achieve them. And in this environment that we are in, and that is going to be around for at least the next three to five years, it's incredibly challenging um, to be setting illustrious um, goals of foundation sizes. So, yeah, very much a work in progress, but we need to be twice what we are now, I think, to have truly become sustainable. In, 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 in good insights and, and sound bites, because I think in part it's what's the finance look like, because we're accountants, 
but actually it's, <laughs> it's and dialing back from both your own and, and Bruce's commentary of it's actually what are we going to be doing differently and how can we help and support and grow that is going to give that sustainability rather than is it necessarily 18 or 24 or 110 or, you know, at the end of the day, that's the number bit, but it's actually the actions happening behind it and that support of, in, in your case, as you're saying, the, the, uh, some of the team, in Bruce's case, actually collectively coming together to be tipping it on its head and doing it differently in the, in the Lighthouse Hub and such like. Yeah, we, and, and, and a, probably a final point, when we, um, you know, we sat around as a foundation um, about two years ago and said, what is our purpose? You know, are we, are we sitting here um, providing scholarships and purely operational in focus? And there, in being honest, there's been a period where that has been our sole focus. And we had to really reset around what was required and what we needed. And we're on that journey. Um, no means that we got there. Um, but providing more robust communication and plans um, that what our management team and board can, and trust board can have around them is going to be helpful. Um, but then again, you know, putting the plan in place or the different people in place that allow us to achieve um, growth in the foundation is important for us. So work in progress. Yep, yep, look. Yep, always work in progress and people, it's its the people of the unrecognised asset, aren't they? People of the unrecognised part in, in all of our organisations across the sector that help to, to get it there and get it across the line. I'm looking at the clock and it is saying 10 minutes past three. And uh, at that point, I would like to be saying to uh, both yourself, Bruce and Tim, Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for those insights. And there's, there's those gold nuggets that sit within both of those conversations that organizations on the, on, online will, will be able to stop and look and think and be able to take to their organization, to their management team, to their governance team to stop and think, how can we apply this? So not only is it that um, you know, the conversation is helping uh, yourselves, but also it's, uh, it's how we're going forward. So, hey, a, a massive shout out and thank you. It thank you very much, Brent. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely, thanks. Fantastic. Tēnā koutou katoa, nō te whanganui a tārau, he roia takumahi, ko Subaka takawingawa, tēnā koutou katoa. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Sue Barker, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to, to today's conference and also to introduce the speakers for the Charities Law Reform Panel. The first speaker will be Dr. Jane Calderwood Norton, who is Senior Lecturer in Law at Te Whareiwānanga o Tāmaki Makaurau, the University of Auckland. Jane will be followed by Tai Ahu, who is Kūrai Ture General Counsel at Te Ohakau Moana, and also a member of the Māori Advisory Committee for Te Akamatua o Te Ture, the New Zealand Law Commission. Tai will then pass the rākau to Mihia Rangipiripi, who is Tumuaki, Director at Fire Legal. And Mihirangi will be followed briefly by myself. Over to you, Jane. It says I can't unmute myself. I have to wait for the host. Oh, uh, so thank you. Um, thank you. So tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tato katoa. Ko Rangitoto te maunga, ko Waitamata te moana, ko Ngāti Pākehā te iwi, uh, no Tamaki Makoto Ho, 
ko Libby Cohen Emery, Rawa, Grant Norton, Akumatua, ko Jane Norton, Taku Ingoa, Norera, Tina Koto, Tina Tato Katoa. So, hi, I'm Jane Norton, Senior Lecturer at the University of Auckland Law School. This is the first time I have ever given a conference presentation uh, via Zoom, so uh, it's a little bit uh, of a learning experience for me. Uh, and I must say, I'm also uh, having to remind myself to breathe, given that the US election uh, results are coming through as, as we are uh, um, all meeting. Uh, so thank you for the chance to speak to you. Uh, the brief that we have for this part of the conference is looking at the reform of charity law, what are the challenges and what are the opportunities. So my interest in charities law is particularly around organizations that engage in advocacy. So uh, the, most notably where these organizations are advocating for uh, viewpoints that are controversial, um, so there's strong disagreement about them, and this ties in an interest that I have also uh, in uh, freedom of expression and uh, human rights law. Now, this topic of uh, charities that engage in advocacy is um, topical now for two reasons. So the first is that, as many of you no doubt are aware, it's no longer possible in New Zealand to not consider whether organizations whose main purpose is advocacy for a cause uh, can be granted charitable status. So uh, we are now permitted to consider uh, whether an organization that is engaging in advocacy for a cause can be granted charitable status. So previously the courts and also the regulator was able to avoid considering uh, this due to uh, what's known as the political purpose doctrine. Uh, so this is the doctrine that says that if an organization's main purpose is political, it can't be charitable. And now, as uh, you'll no doubt be aware, as a result of the Greenpeace decision, political purposes and charitable status are not mutually exclusive. And we've seen recent litigation involving Family First and Better Public Media in New Zealand that has um, uh, shown this. So that's the doctrinal reason why this is topical right now. And the second reason is that, uh, is a practical reason. And so, uh, it's topical because the nature of charity law is changing. So more and more organizations are engaging in non-tangible activities such as advocacy for causes rather than uh, fulfilling the purposes themselves. So Greenpeace being uh, just an example. Now, there are obvious advantages and opportunities uh, presented by political purposes being able to be recognized as charitable. So let's start with so starting with the advantages. So uh, many worthwhile organizations can now be granted charitable status. So uh, we can see, uh, so, so organizations that might have otherwise been knocked out uh, from charitable status uh, can now uh, be granted it. So uh, if you think that protecting the environment, securing the release of prisoners of conscience, procure, uh, procuring, um, sorry, preventing uh, torture or, or degrading treatment, uh, promoting the family, preventing cruelty against animals. If you believe all those things are a good thing, then uh, you might be pleased to know that um, those purposes uh, might now able, be able to be charitable. 
Um, well, at least they can't be knocked out by the political purpose doctrine. Now, the other advantage of, of this, uh, the changing nature of the law in this area, um, and some might actually argue that this is a disadvantage, um, is that organizations whose purpose is advocacy for a cause, uh, which might previously have violated the uh, political purpose rule might now uh, be able to have charitable status. So uh, for those who think that advocacy for changes in law or policy uh, provide a public benefit, this can be welcome. So it might be welcome because the cause or the end uh, that is advocated for uh, might be seen as beneficial. So world peace, environmental protection, uh, we might think that those ends are beneficial, and so we're pleased now that advocating for them uh, can potentially be uh, a charitable purpose or achieve charitable status. Um, or else we might also uh, think that it's welcome that uh, uh, organisations that are advocating for a cause uh, can achieve uh, charitable status because we think that there is a benefit in the very nature of the advocacy itself. So the means, uh, the means, not the ends. So the nature of the very advocacy itself. So uh, to quote, uh, so 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 someone like uh, so Matthew Harding uh, might uh, say that uh, political expression contributes to a vibrant political culture on which a representative and responsible system of government depends. Um, a culture of free political expression could be seen as a public benefit. Uh, we might also think that um, these advocacy organizations are, are, um, are uh, contributing to a free marketplace of ideas. So a range of political views are all put out into the marketplace to battle it out. Um, so charitable status helps to advance freedom of expression. Okay, so those are the opportunities that I've just outlined. Now some challenges. Uh, first, uh, it can be difficult to identify uh, what actually the benefit to the public is uh, from uh, advocacy alone. So after all, an advocacy organization is not performing uh, the charitable act itself. It is asking others, usually the government, to do it. So this was one of the concerns that was um, raised in the Better Public Media case. And where the viewpoint uh, or the position that's being advocated for is controversial, uh, we might, uh, uh, it might be difficult to assess the benefit of the ends sought. And this was something that had to be navigated in the Family First case. Now, a second challenge, um, which is also related to this, is that without the political purpose doctrine, the court and the regulator uh, must pass value judgment on the end sought by the organization. So Family First, uh, again, brings this problem into stark relief. Uh, because the court has to find uh, public, or the regulator has to find the public benefit in the ends sought by the organization, not just the benefit of the means of advocacy. Uh, what they did, uh, although Sue might disagree with me, is that they, they, they whitewashed what Family First actually does and went so far as to actually give credibility to what Family First advocates for by presenting its research as valid and valuable. 
So at one point, the court cites unquestioningly uh, the claim by Family First that there is clear empirical evidence that the best environment in which to raise children is the biological two-parent husband-wife family. Uh, at one point in discussing the purported uh, educational purpose of the organization, the court says that its research is valuable in promoting public knowledge about marriage and families and the many issues that affect the family. Uh, finally, um, the final uh, problem uh, or challenge uh, that we're facing at the moment is that the guidance given by uh, uh, the Court of Appeal in the recent Family First case is uh, unworkable, either by the charity's regulator or the charity itself. So the, the court notes that there may be positions that are advocated for or the opposition to those positions that are not self-evidentially in the public benefit or able to be assessed uh, by the evidence. Um, reasonable views on these matters may differ. So the court uh, then gives this vague statement about the question being the penumbra of the relevant public general good. It's not clear how that guidance would be applied. Um, and the court also warns uh, that uh, in Family First that there might be positions where it advocates which it advocates for that may, may fall outside advocating for family and marriage as it's currently recognized in society. Um, the advocacy regarding divorce, alternative forms of marriage and abortion. Um, and this, the court hints, might be a problem. Um, but the court only weakly warns family first that it needs to bear this in mind as it determines its priority. Uh, priorities and activities for the future. Again, I'm not clear how uh, this uh, guidance, sparse guidance, uh, can actually be uh, applied by the regulator or the charities themselves going forward. Um, so just uh, to conclude, uh, New Zealand now permits advocacy for a cause to be a charitable purpose, or it doesn't uh, prohibit it, um, but how the public benefit will be determined under the fourth head of charity. Uh, remains to be seen. This is a really exciting area to be working in right now, at least from the perspective of an academic, maybe not so much uh, from a practitioner's perspective. Um, we know that the Attorney General is, has appealed the Family First decision. Um, so uh, watch this space, or has applied for leave to appeal, I think, right? Uh, so, so watch this space. Um, and I'd hand over now to uh, Taya Hu uh, to take over. Uh, kia ora. <clears throat> Firstly, I'll just ask Sue, can, can you hear me, Sue? Ka pai. Um, tuatahi ake e mihi ana ki a koutou katoa, a koutou ko whakawā tēnei, a koutou ki a honohono mai ki tēnei, papa kōrero i tēnei wā. I was actually a little bit nervous about presenting uh, this afternoon, and I was going to spend my 10 minutes um, taking up my time with a mihi mihi and a waiata and leave it all up to you guys to interpret what I'm talking about. Um, but I decided against that and um, thought I would spend my time today talking about how tikanga principles might inform or be infused in a uh, reform of charities law in New Zealand. And I wanted to start by just making some introductory comments about the place of tikanga uh, Māori in the law generally because I think whenever you undertake a process of reforming the law, you always start with the landscape as it exists and what needs to be changed. 
The other reason why I wanted to talk about the place of tikanga in the law generally is there's been some really um, important recent developments that I think have kind of changed the landscape of law in New Zealand as it relates to the place of tikanga. And I want to talk briefly about that and then um, go into why I think it's important that a reform of charities law uh, infuses principles of tikanga within it. And just to start, I think the orthodox position in New Zealand law is that tikanga Māori or Māori customary law uh, can be taken into account or applied in New Zealand courts um, in a way that's similar to foreign law. And what that essentially means is that for a court to take into account tikanga or take cognizance of tikanga, um, tikanga Māori is put to a burden of proof. It needs to be proven by qualified experts. And if tikanga is to be applied in the law, it needs to be shown that it's not inconsistent with the general law. So some of the early cases of public trustee and Lowesby uh, that set essentially a three-step test to the incorporation of tikanga in the common law. Now, I think there have been a few quite key cases recently that have moved slightly from that position. So just this year, the Court of Appeal in um, a case that is under appeal to the Supreme Court at the moment Trans-Tasman Resources Limited case. Um, the Court of Appeal in that case described tikanga Māori as an integral, integral strand of the common law. Even as regards trustee duties generally, uh, in 2012, the Supreme Court in the Takamori and Clark case, a case which concerned the duties of an executor uh, of an estate, uh, basically held that tikanga Māori doesn't override the common law but that in certain situations it is entitled to great weight and might well prevail on a certain given set of facts. So the way that I think about trust law and specifically charities law is that it's a space or a legal environment where tikanga is given quite a bit of room to breathe. And that's particularly the case where a statute doesn't cut across or rule out tikanga related considerations. So some of you might remember a, a case called Aaron Mason, which concerned whether or not tikanga could apply to um, a decision on whether or not a um, defendant was guilty of a conviction under the Crimes Act. The court in that case had said that because uh, that area of law had been codified so comprehensively by the Crimes Act, there was no room for tikanga to breathe. Um, but it does have room to be considered when it comes to matters related to sentencing. So I think that's kind of the general position now, but there's been an increasing recognition that tikanga is an important part of New Zealand law and where it can be considered by a court, there seems to be a willingness uh, for it to be considered. So against that background, why is it important for uh, charities law reform to include or think about tikanga principles? Well, as I've just said, tikanga firstly is, I think, an important source of law in New Zealand. Māori consider it to be the first law of Aotearoa. And interestingly, the Charities Act 2005 doesn't refer to tikanga Māori or even the Treaty of Waitangi, which probably these days is more of an anomaly rather than the norm. Um, but the law seems to be clear that the fact that it doesn't refer to tikanga or, the, or even the treaty and law doesn't mean it won't apply. The other reason I think that incorporating tikanga Māori is important as part of a reform is that I think it could actually influence decisions around things like the registration of charities uh, and how the charitable purpose test is to be applied. And I would argue that charities 
services has arguably taken a fairly narrow or strict interpretation. Uh, the second thing I think it could influence is the actual administration of charities. Uh, for example, uh, the distinction between um, uh, public and private benefit um, might potentially be modified when we take into account the notion of, of whanaungatanga uh, or collective obligation. Uh, the other thing I think is important to consider in relation to tikanga is the structure of charity services as an initial regulator or decision maker. And I think if tikanga were part of a reform, uh, there are other models that might be considered that could help charity services better consider tikanga related considerations. Uh, one example um, is the Māori Advisory Committee that's set up uh, to advise the Intellectual Property Office of New Zealand to help give it some expertise and capability in terms of what the relevant tikanga might be on a, um, on a given set of facts or a particular situation and how they can be appropriately applied so that they're not taken out of context. Uh, a couple of other things why I think this is an important issue is that I think tikanga can help in terms of improving governance standards and guidelines around the quality of information to Māori communities. Because one of the big problems, and I think my colleague Mihi Arangi might talk a bit more about this, is the lack of understanding or knowledge about the limitation of charities amongst a lot of Māori communities. And finally, I think including tikanga as part of the reform process will improve the uptake and utilisation of charities by Māori communities because Māori communities often don't actually register formally as charities, but nevertheless organise themselves in a way under tikanga uh, that I still think could be considered charitable. And one of the kind of issues in the current environment is post-settlement governance entities. So those are entities that receive settlement assets on behalf of EMA groups. Um, there are limitations, for example, in terms of Crown policy around whether PSGs can actually be established as charities notwithstanding the fact that they operate according to Māori principles that are very akin to charities. So what are the kinds of principles I'm talking about? And I've had a little bit of a discussion with uh, Sue Barker and um, Justice Joseph Williams and, and other Māori who work in the field. And I think they can kind of be boiled down according to two key principles. The first principle I'd describe as aroha. And the principle of aroha, I guess, describes an emotional connection or a type of love or compassion that a person has for another. Um, and I've just, just before this uh, presentation, actually, I was looking at uh, whether or not there's any precedent in tikanga for aroha being used to describe charity in particular. And I came across a letter that King Tafiao, who um, who was the second Māori king in my tribe of Waikato, uh, published in Te Pakeo Matariki, which was a Māori newspaper. And he said, Koe aui meae, kawaka e whakarerea tēnei mea te aroha, he, maha, he mahara ake nāku e haereana ngā mahi a tērā e hui te tahapākea ka mahue te aroha o koutou tūpuna tānemi o koutou tūpuna wahine. And what he's talking about there is, after all of the Waikato land was confiscated and pushed all of our people south of the Mangatawhiri River and into the lands of the Maniapoto, there was a real feeling of resentment amongst Waikato uh, about foreigners that had essentially set up a legal system to take land and individualised title. And he was saying to his people at that particular point in time, 
don't forego your compassion or your charity or your kindness to one another, notwithstanding um, the circumstances that face the Waikato people. Um, the second kind of tikanga principle I think about is atafai. So atafai describes kind of notions of kindness or generosity, benevolence or hospitality. And I actually really like this. I actually think this is the fundamental principle for charity according to a Māori way of thinking. Um, back, in, back in Waikato, um, a lot of our pokai, what's often said on the pipeline is a saying, of King Tafiao, which is Kianifa Tingako Kitifakaui which basically says be strong and resolute in your heart about standing up for what is good. And I was thinking about this, these two principles and um, discussing them with Justice Williams and others. And I kind of lost the debate because I said, no, nah, I think Atafai is the key one. Because if you if you think about principle and action, I think Atafai catches kind of the charitable purpose as well as the activities that you might do. So when you understand Atafai as a manifestation of aroha, um, I think it captures with a lot more clarity the notion of charity, whereas aroha has the risk of being confused for love and other um, more emotional uh, type feelings. Um, anyway, just winding up, what are some options in terms of incorporating these principles into a reform of charities law? Well, there's kind of three. Uh, first option, I think, is just to reference it into a statute and define what it might mean. And there's precedent for that in the Māori Land Act, uh, which defines principles like ahika. Um, I think where it's used in a statute in that way, and there's any issue about what it means, then it's just a matter of statutory construction. So a judge can look at a dictionary or look at other um, tools of statutory interpretation to work out what it means. So it's pretty limited really in terms of understanding the context of those words. Uh, the second kind of approach is codifying a tikanga into a statute. So putting more content into the statute to guide judges, which has the benefit of um, limiting any risk that a judge might take a, a strange interpretation. Uh, but the kind of issue there is the inflexibility of that approach. Um, one other approach is to refer to it in a statute, but not define it. Just make it clear that if an issue of interpretation arises, then um, it is effectively an incorporation of Māori customary law. And I think that gives us enough ability to have faith in the uncertainty that that might bring and um, I think do greater justice to allow tikanga Māori principles to be the subject of debate and when we're talking about what a good translation of a charity's law reform bill might be and we were discussing aroha and atafai you know I was really for using that word atafai because of my own Waikato heritage and the whakatauki that I talked about earlier um, I wanted it to be called Te Ture Whakauinga Mahi Atawhai um, because that, that allows debate. Why can't it be that? Um, so I'm just going to leave it there and thank you all for listening. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to my colleague and friend, Mahi Arangi Piripi. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Mahi Arangi Piripi tōku ingoa. Hiri a hau nō te taitukirau, ko te rāroa rāua ko ngā pohi tōku iwi. Um, uh, so my name is Mihi Arangi um, and I'm a director at Fire Legal um, and really interesting um, to come in on this court at all, particularly on the back of 
um, of Ty's corridor. So, so thank you everyone for coming along um, to listen. I suppose my interest in, um, in charities law uh, is really around um, the fact that um, I've mainly worked uh, with Indigenous organisations, um, both in New Zealand and in Australia um, for the majority of my career, working career. Um, and, um, you know, when we think about why um, charity law is important, particularly in Te Ao Māori in New Zealand, um, that's because many post-settlement governance entity structures have um, a charitable arm um, in their structure, in their post-settlement governance entity structure. And I think as Ty alluded to earlier, um, it's not always uh, the, the PSG upon establishment that's a charity, but generally within the structure, there is a charitable entity. Um, and that's because many, many iwi organisations wish to carry out um, charitable objectives um, for the iwi. So um, for many of our clients, there is a, a charitable arm. Um, there's also um, many charities that exist as pre or negotiation entities. Um, and so there are often transition issues um, from going from your existing negotiation entities and transitioning into um, a post-settlement governance entity structure. And so lots, um, there's often uh, legal and tax advice around how, how that transition occurs. And it's often assisted by legislation, but by settlement legislation, which can sometimes free um, uh, entities from charitable status or, or assets from charitable status. Um, and then we can't forget the, the many, many um, smaller entities, uh, you know, the, the various Madai trusts. Um, and now in my own um, area of Te Rarua, we have 26 Madai. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the smaller um, Madai trusts or other um, charitable, um, charitable entities. So in Te Ao Māori, um, the use of charities is, is extremely prevalent. And so I, I was going to um, discuss with you all today um, some limits on uh, or some, some challenges perhaps that I've faced advising some of my clients in this space um, and then to focus on some of the real practical issues um, in relation to, uh, yes, in, to, in relation to things like registration and, um, and reporting. So um, some of the the issues around charitable purpose, and it's really interesting um, listening to, to Jane's corridor around the political purposes um, and the, the fact that there is no longer a, a blanket prohibition on, on political purposes. Um, but it is a gray area for, for Māori organisations. And I think, as Jane had pointed out, um, you know, litigation continues in that space. Um, but by way of example, um, many Māori organisations have an element of a political nature, and that might be um, Waitangi Tribunal claims, it might be participating in other advocacy forms. And so for some of the, um, some clients, or in some scenarios where we've given advice, the, the restriction on the inability to participate in that space means that they don't um, use the, the, um, the vehicle of a, of a charitable entity um, to, to undertake because of that, because they don't want to be, I suppose, shackled in a way um, if they do need to advance um, what, what might be political or, or advocacy purposes that might fall outside of that. So fantastic that there has been um, a shift um, in the law on that. But I think um, the fact that it is a grey area, uh, uh, you know, one of the practical implications of that is that 
often legal advice is required um, at the time of considering what activities can be undertaken or not. And so from a reform perspective, I think it would be useful for there to be some clarity around exactly what that might mean so that there's not the need to, to obtain legal advice around, around activities like that. Um, and then there are other, um, you know, uh, there's many um, PSG structures that, that some of the older structures are, are in fact, um, or most of the entities within that structure is, is charitable, including some of the, the business arm. Um, and that, I suppose, the, the Māori authority regime um, has changed that. And so I think the trend now is that there's a charitable um, entity within the structure, but not necessarily the entire structure is charitable. Um, but of course, there is um, concern around the, the level of business that can be undertaken um, and how um, and how that and whether or not that's that's any risk to, to, to entities charitable charitable purpose. I think I'd alluded to earlier around the permanency of a decision. So I often um, am giving advice to organisations to, to Māori organisations that um, that are, have become charitable without appreciating that the decision is very permanent. Um, and so um, they're, they're stuck with a structure um, that's not workable for them. Um, and then that then requires the setup of, of additional entities within a structure. Um, and so, yeah, I think just kind of understanding the, the permanency of that decision. Um, and also that um, you may, from a registration perspective, um, while your objects can be drafted in a, in a way that meets the, the charity services um, registration test, the fact that activities, um, the actual doing needs to reflect the purposes. And so often um, I need to give advice around, you know, yes, your purposes might meet the test, but you also need to ensure that the activities you want to undertake will also meet, um, and, you know, you won't fall foul of the, of, of the charitable, um, of, you know, acting outside of your objects. Um, in terms of some some kind of real practical um, issues, I I have um, and, and Ty no doubt will agree a lot of times have um, advised picked up a a, a trustee or or some form of uh, you known corporate society's rules or some other form of um, constitutional governing document, and even now. Um, there is a lack of appreciation that an entity needs to be registered with charity services. So it may well be charitable at law, but it hasn't yet gone through the registration process. Um, and so I think there needs to be um, yeah, more information out there as to how that can be accessed. Um, we're often also engaged to, in addition to reviewing trustees and constitutional documents, but also assisting with the actual um, registration process. And so um, not that it's a, a massively difficult process, but I certainly think that there is a reluctance or a, um, not a fear, but almost a, 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 it's seen as a, as a difficult um, process to engage with. Um, and just on that note, I think it's, um, what while I wouldn't say that a template deed would work for everyone, and while there are template clauses on the charity services website, um, it would be, in, in my view, um, it would be beneficial if there were some some more templates in terms of, of draft deeds um, for, for organisations to use, particularly perhaps some of trusts, which can be changed, obviously. I mean, you know, a template deed, you know, they're going to obviously have to change things that are particular to their organisation. 
um, but it would be a nice starting point. Um, and then lastly, I had just, um, uh, uh, some feedback we get is the reporting process can be difficult, particularly for not so much for the large PSGE um, or, the, or the bigger Māori organisations, um, but more in relation to um, those smaller trusts where they're largely on a volunteer um, basis. And so the, the reporting process is, is daunting. And again, you know, seeking help and help from a lawyer to, to undertake that process, you know, I don't think that that should be the case and it should actually be, should be easier and less daunting for them to, to report. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I, I think I kind of come in from a time I had a discussion this morning and it was, it's been really useful to hear both, both him and him and Jane speak, but I, hopefully I've given a, um, a practitioner's view working in Te Ao Māori um, and that's been useful for everyone. So I think um, the next person that I pass on to is Sue. Thank you very much to you and Ty and Jane for your um, for your wonderful kōrero and for your insights. Um, I'm very grateful to you for um, your contribution to the conference today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm the Director of Charities Law, which is a, a boutique law firm based in Wellington, specialising in charities law and public tax law. And I'm also a member of the core reference group for the government's review of the Charities Act, which you will be aware started in May 2018, but um, was paused in May 2020 due to um, COVID-19. Um, in 2019, I was awarded the New Zealand Law Foundation International Research Fellowship to Karahipi Rangahau Atayo, which I'm honoured to say is New Zealand's premier legal research award. The research topic is what does a world leading framework of charities law look like with a report due by September 2021. The fellowship particularly means a lot to me because it says that the charitable sector matters and that it's worth taking the time to try to get the legal framework right. Specifically, the purpose of the grant is to assist the undertaking of research into the charities law frameworks of jurisdictions comparable, comparable to New Zealand, as well as to critically examine how the current regime is working in New Zealand, with a view to providing an independent perspective on what a world-leading framework of charities law might look like. The aim is then to feed this information into the government's current review process to assist with the development of law reform in this important area. In my view, one of the most important things we could do um, to maximize our chances of being able to build back better in response to COVID-19 is to get the legal framework right. And we did see during lockdown um, in response to COVID-19 um, how a high trust model might work. And, and the question occurred to me at that time, where would we have been as a country during lockdown and beyond without the charitable sector? But the charitable sector is often invisible. Its value is not well understood. Um, but a clear message that seems to be coming through from politicians is that it's important to devolve decision-making to local communities. Communities know best what communities need. Government cannot do, its, do all that is needed to be done in response to COVID-19 or at all <laughs> itself. How could we, um, or could we be strengths-based rather than deficits-based? Could we... Um, unlock the potential of the charitable sector, unlock the balance sheets of um, philanthropy and um, allow uh, charities to reach their potential. Um, as part of the research, at the start of the research, I prepared a draft bill that would amend and restart, uh, amend and restate the Charities Act. The thinking was to have a starting place for discussion and then subject that thinking to challenge over the course of the research. 
The goal is to consult with key stakeholders first, drawing on their collective expertise to make the draft as robust as possible, and then to consult more widely with a view ultimately to developing a proposal for reform that could genuinely meet the standard of being by the sector for the sector. Um, no one of us has all the answers as to what a world-leading framework of charities law might look like, but I do think if we all put our heads together, we might be able to come up with something amazing. Um, as part of the research, I reached out to uh, Justice Sir Joe Williams. Um, you'll recall, those of you who were at the conference in April last year, that um, Justice Williams delivered a very um, thought-provoking talk, or kōrero, about the, uh, the charitable sector, PEMSL in the Pacific, and he very generously convened a team of tikanga experts, um, and we um, met over Zoom during lockdown, where we had some zānanga zui, <laughs> uh, talking about what... Um, how best to infuse tikanga principles into charities law. And Ty, it's interesting your discussion about um, aroha and artify. Um, and I remember Justice Joe Williams saying that it's a great debate to be had. We have chosen a, a, a Maori name in the draft bill, but basically as a starting point for discussion. And, and I, um, I think it is a good, it's great to, to have the opportunity to have this discussion. So really think about what are we trying to do with this regime and, and how best um, would the legislation reflect that. Um, so far, we have consulted with approximately 200 people. We're consulting one person at a time. I'm very grateful to all the people who have, who have so generously given their time and comments on, um, on the draft bill or generally on what a, what a world-leading framework of charities law might look like. And um, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the support that we've been receiving. And I, I'd just like to say that a couple of the, one of the key things I'm trying to do with the bill is, is can we simplify it? You know, I think to some extent we're overthinking some of these issues. Um, I think that the, the key theme in the draft bill that we've drafted is that charities have a duty to act in the best interests of their stated charitable purposes. And I actually think that and when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to accumulations, when it comes to businesses, whatever the question might be, whatever the activity might be, the actual question is, can the charity demonstrate that that activity is in the best interest of the stated charitable purposes? If it is, then, and if the charity can demonstrate that, then do we really need any more? And is this a good use of our resources, charitable resources and taxpayer resources, arguing in the courts with a, um, whether the advocacy is, um, has caused the charity to lose its eligibility for registration or whatever the issue might be. Um, I, um, I think it's important to bear in mind that we have in New Zealand one of the most comprehensive set of financial reporting rules in the world. Um, that is certainly the hypothesis I'm working with at the moment. I haven't seen anything anywhere that challenges that, but if, if that is wrong, I'd be great, very grateful if anyone could let me know. But a lot of the issues that other jurisdictions seem to be struggling with seem to be answered for us in New Zealand by these very comprehensive transparency and uh, disclosure rules that we have in place. So I'm concerned if we look to other jurisdictions and try to reinvent rules or import rules, potentially out of context, that, that we may be um, uh, perhaps a better use of our resources would be to focus on using the rules that we actually already have. I think 
the regime or the Charities Act regime is about accountability. It's about a forum for, for accountability, for charities to make their information available so that any stakeholder can decide for themselves whether any particular charity is worthy of their support. It's not about regulation. It's not about government control. Charities know best how to further their charitable purposes. And I think we should, we should let them get on with that. <laughs> um, and most charities are small. They don't have capacity to bring in expensive legal advice over whether this advocacy um, meets these complex subjective tests or whether this business activity meets these complex subjective tests. I think we can simplify it basically by going back to first principles. Is this activity in the best interest of the charitable purposes? Um, I'm just about out of time, but I just wanted to make one last point, which is that as part of the research, I'm 100% committed to um, uh, consultation and to uh, developing a pro proposal for reform that is, could meet the standard of being by the sector, for the sector. And as part of the research, we are um, looking for a wide range of stakeholders to participate in a co-design sprint process that will be led by the Centre for Social Impact. Uh, Mally Wendt is going to facilitate it for us. And the focus will be on the ideal legal framework for charities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, the topic of the workshop is co-designing the ideal structure to best support charities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So for the first workshop, we're specifically looking at two questions. What is the best structure for the agency that administers the Charities Act? Is it a charities commission? Is it the current structure of charity services in the Charities Registration Board? Or is it something else? And if so, what? And the other limb to that question is, um, what advocacy framework can best strengthen the voice of for-purpose organisations and government? Um, how can we, um, I think if, if charities had a better um, voice that speaks directly to government, that would really help with getting better law um, and better policy, because I would argue the last 15 years have been characterised by piecemeal reform that is often rushed through under urgency without proper consultation that's full of unintended consequences. And I do think we can and must do better, particularly if we're going to build back better. So we're calling on people to volunteer to participate in either a full sprint process of sprint participants, which will be held in Wellington in person on Thursday, 26 November, followed by a half day Zoom meeting on Friday, 27 November, or as challenges, which would involve one to one and a half hours by Zoom on both days. Um, we're sending out an on online invitation, which will be asking people to register before Monday, 16 November. We have uh, consulted with 200 people, as I've said, but if you would like to be involved and you might not be on the list, please do get in touch. We, we welcome all stakeholders. The objective is to be entirely inclusive. Um, the registration will ask you to indicate your preference through the ticket type. And once people have registered their interest, we will finalise the list in the roles of, excuse me, participants and advise the specific details for the workshop. And um, I appreciate that Thursday, 26 November is fast approaching. Um, we were a little bit constrained with time for this particular workshop, um, but we do have a core group of people. So, um, but anyone else who can join us will be very welcome. But if the timing for this workshop doesn't work, we are looking at holding some more in 2021. And if you'd like to be kept in the loop about these, please do let us know because um, we would love to welcome you there. Now we do have, um, that was all I was planning to say, we do have a little bit of time for questions. Um, and I see that some have come through. <laughs> um, 
So we've got one here that says they, um, they agree that the registration process, I'm having trouble uh, navigating that. I agree that the registration process is often daunting for clients and there is still a lack of understanding on what is actually involved or what it means for clients. Um, yes, I think Charity Services did say at the recent sector group meeting that they are doing a triage, they're implementing a new triage process that hopefully might facilitate um, the registration process for some. I mean, I would imagine that most applications are straightforward and could go through, um, but that still doesn't resolve the issue of the tension that we currently have between um, the, the way the definition is being interpreted currently and the potential um, that we could have if we interpreted the definition more widely. And actually that does feed into the next session. I don't want to uh, jump the gun. The next session is a question on has the concept of charity had its day? And I actually do think that the definition in New Zealand is much wider than, um, than the way it is currently being interpreted. If you look at some of the cases before the um, Charities Act came into force, like the Medical Council case, the Incorporated Council of Law Reporting case, the Latimer decision in the Crown Forestry Mental Trust case, there are a number of decisions that would, um, I would argue the definition that um, existed before the Charities Act came into force was incredibly wide. In fact, the Inland Revenue Department in, in its 2001 discussion document um, complained that it was too wide, it was too easy to be a charity, and um, uh, put forward three options for narrowing it, and one of them was that it would be allowed to just deem who, who should be a charity. Um, and it, it's very clear that the Charities Act was not intended to change the definition of charitable purpose, so it is um, interesting to examine how we've managed to get to where we've got to at the moment. And um, Jane and Mihirangi, I know you went online for the um, start of the conference, but um, when the when the recordings do get sent out, you might be interested to have a look at Justice Stephen Kosher's um, uh, corridor at the beginning. He gave an excellent talk on the issue of advocacy by charities. And, and I think he made comments like, um, the, the law has made a bit of a mash of it, <laughs> I think was what he said. And he also said, um, we, we need to restate cohesive theory we actually uh, it doesn't need to be this complicated and uh, it, it, is there really a difference between um, tangible activity and non-tangible activity particularly if we look back to the um, uh, original charities that, that were to remove slavery well hopefully <laughs> that's a question is whether perhaps we need them back again but um, I don't know if you want to comment on that Jane we've got a couple of minutes I think um, yeah, no, just to say that, yeah, I would be really interested to um, to hear Justice, uh, or to read and hear Justice uh, Kosher's uh, paper, yeah. Um, my understanding from private chat with um, someone who I will not name just now said uh, there's a preference for the Aid Watch Australian approach, um, which is interesting, yeah. Yeah. Yes, the majority approach, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually also think that so the, the um, proposition that New Zealand had a strict political purpose exclusion in, in its law prior to the Charities Act actually needs to be critically examined because I think if you look at the Crown Forestry Rental Trust case where um, the Crown Forestry Rental Trust was providing funding to claimants to bring claims before the Waitangi Tribunal and IRD in that case argued very strongly that that was a private benefit and that that just this 
um, it disentitled them to charitable status. But both the High Court and the Court of Appeal said, no, the, the wider public benefit uh, is, is charitable, despite the fact, or the wider public benefit in, in settlement of treaty grievances is, is charitable. And um, that was despite the fact that the treaty settlement process, particularly at that time, was highly controversial and always, without exception, ended in an act of parliament. So I would argue that actually, if we're coming back to first principles, I would argue the question is always, uh, does the purpose meet the public benefit test? But the problem in New Zealand is that we don't have a trier effect. That is one of the unintended consequences. I think one of the most important uh, changes we need to make is reinstate a trier effect to give charities a chance of proving that their um, purposes operate for the public benefit. Um, and then if you, with respect to activities, the question is, is that activity undertaken in furtherance of your stated charitable purpose? And if there is, then there's no difficulty. I think actually um, there's a lot of complexity that we could potentially do without. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe on exactly that point, that could be where we need to be able to wrap up that that part of the discussion on charities law, law reform, if, if that's okay with yourself. Yes, absolutely. Can I just say thank you very, very much to Jane, um, Tai and Mihirangi. Um, I really enjoyed your kororo. I'm very grateful for your contribution to the conference. Thank you very much. Thanks. So thanks for having me. Kia ora koutou, kia ora whanau, uh, tukiri and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to, uh, to room two in this, uh, this online conference that we're having. Um, so I did say kia ora whanau, and I think that's appropriate because um, we are a family. We're a family connected by a, a purpose and a, and a passion for uh, not-for-profits, for charities in some way. So I really want to do, extend a warm welcome to you. Um, Today's uh, session is around statements of service performance. If you're looking for something else, you're in the wrong room. Uh, you'll be looking for room one or room three, but we're gonna explore statements of service performance this afternoon. And I've assembled, uh, we've assembled four very uh, experienced and interesting speakers coming from different perspectives on that topic. So I'll introduce them uh, shortly. Uh, just reflecting back on 2020, and I guess uh, uh, a bit of support for some of the words we've heard already, um, you know, who could have predicted where we would be now um, come November last year? November last year, coronavirus, who'd heard of coronavirus? It might have represented a, a, a hangover on a Sunday morning. That might have been what you thought it was. And here we are having gone through this most significant challenge of our times and, and our not-for-profits and charities are dealing with that as well. So really looking forward to an interactive session this afternoon. I'm going to introduce the, uh, the speakers uh, just quickly now. So first up, uh, we're going to have Craig Fisher. Craig Fisher, who is, uh, is looked at service performance from a number of hats as an audit partner with RSM uh, on the XRB uh, as a board member of various charities. So Craig's going to talk a bit about the why, why is this a good idea, why are we doing this, and the who, who should be involved. Uh, then we're going to hear from Joanne, um, Joanne Scott, uh, who is the senior project manager from the XRB. And Joanne's going to outline the what, the what needs to happen and the when. Uh, Joanne will then feed um, on to Sharon, Sharon Orr, who is the Finance and Ops Director for Fred Hollows Foundation. So Sharon has been in the thick of implementing this, uh, and so she's going to share her perspectives on the how, the how to, uh, to go about this. Uh, then we're going to have Henry McClintock, who is, a, uh, is with BDO and is an audit and assurance partner and the head of NFP there. And he's going to look at the how as well 
and have, I guess, a bit of a, an audit and assurance angle on that. So there's four different perspectives uh, going to be uh, coming to, at you this afternoon. I mean, personally, I'm passionate about this topic as well. I've, uh, it goes back to the 90s, my experience in local government when uh, statements of service performance first came in. And I guess it answered the question around, uh, well, if it's a not-for-profit, then it's obviously for something else. So we should be reporting on that something else that we're doing. And I guess just reflecting back on COVID again in 2020, never before has it been more important for some organ for the, our organizations to be asking the question, why do we exist and what are we trying to achieve and how are we going about achieving those things? So those questions that are core to service performance reporting have been amplified, if anything, by um, COVID-19 this year. So just before we head off to, uh, to Craig to kick us off, just a reminder that the event is being recorded. So um, this will be available again after the, uh, the session. Um, you have been, your microphones have been muted on entry um, and there's no uh, identifiable details will be published as part of this recording. So we, re we really want a free exchange of ideas through the chat box fun functionality as well. So if you have questions, what we're gonna do is we're gonna hear from each of the speakers. Then at the end, there's gonna be time to address um, some, if not all of those questions um, that we get um, during the presentation. So I'm gonna ask you to put them in the chat box uh, but the present presenters will continue with their presentation and we will wrap up those questions and address those at the end. Um, if we can't get to them all, we will also look at those post, post the webinar today, the conference, and I get back to you about that. Um, as, as was suggested as well before by Stephen, if you've got a specific question for a speaker, please um, address their name to that as well. So without any further ado, I'd like to pass over to the first on the panel um, that I mentioned before, and pass over to Craig. Thank you, Craig. Kia ora tato, whānau. Ko karioi toku manga, ko whaingaroa toku moana, ko Craig Fisher toku ingoa. Uh, I'm coming to you from uh, lovely sunny Raglan, so um, yeah, lovely to be together here, te whānau. Um, as Wayne says, I come at this particular topic with a number of different hats on. I've been very involved in the, the standard setting side of service performance reporting, but probably because I've also been very frustrated as an auditor uh, over the years, seeing organizations report what I think are the wrong things and having unusual decisions made about them. Um, but also uh, as someone who's actively involved in governance and I, I have to um, declare my interests here. Uh, I am uh, the chairman of the Fred Hollows Foundation. Um, we are an early adopter of service performance reporting and we've had that audited. Um, we're also the winner of the Tier 2 Annual Financial Reporting Awards, um, thanks to the fantastic work of Sharon Orr and the rest of the team there. Um, I'm also a trustee of Sustainable Coastlines, another early adopter of service performance reporting. So you might see a theme here. Um, and why have we done that? Well, because both of those organisations, their boards, their management, totally recognise that good service performance reporting is actually just great stakeholder communication. It allows us to tell our story really effectively. So Wayne's asked me to, uh, to talk about the why of service performance reporting and then who needs to drive it. So let's look at the first point there, the why. Quite simply, charities do not exist to make a profit. That's not their primary purpose. Um, they exist for their charitable purpose, whatever that charitable purpose actually is. And you know, if we go back to the accounting piece, and you know, all of the accountants online here will be very happy with this. Um, you know, accounting's been around for quite some time. 
Luca Piccoli, uh, or Pacioli, uh, the Italian 14th century gentleman, commonly uh, referred to as the father of modern day double entry accounting. But the accounting that he devised back in the 14th century was to account for profit seeking enterprises. And over the years, we have um, been very good at developing accounting standards. We have developed them primarily for profit seeking enterprises. Uh, but that hasn't always served charities well. And in fact, I'd go as far as to say it's actually been a disservice to charities. I've seen lots of decisions, funding decisions especially, made about charities where people have looked at the wrong metrics and the wrong things. Service performance reporting is a way of addressing this by showing the, the really important things. Um, and it was really brought home to me by uh, one of my clients years ago who went along to their significant funder and we had a big discussion after this, uh, after this meeting and I said, how did it go? He said, it was great. We took along our annual report. Um, we showed them, here's our 45 page annual report, but actually this is the page you need to concentrate on because this is the page that shows why we exist and what we've actually done this year. And it also shows that we can do lots more if we can have your help. Um, now that was a long time before service performance reporting um, has been brought in and is a requirement for registered charities. But to me, that really summed it up. Here was an organization that had focused their funder on why they existed, how good they were doing at what they were doing and why they needed support. So service performance reporting done well is a fantastic stakeholder communication vehicle. Um, we've put together uh, an accounting standard on this in New Zealand and now uh, an audit and assurance standard. Uh, we are revolutionary in the world. No one else in the world has actually done this. Um, and to give credit to our accounting standards team, um, it was probably the most radical accounting standard that has yet been developed in New Zealand. Um, it's very, uh, and I'll get told off for this, uh, Joanne's coming on after me, it's very loose. Uh, the accounting standard is very principles-based. Um, and not rules-based. And yet most accounting standards are very heavily rules-based. We like to know if things go on the left or on the right. This accounting standard basically says, hey, tell us why you exist. Tell us how you deliver that, how you set it up to achieve what your purpose actually is, what your measurements are, report on that for us. And it needs to be very principles-based and very loose because there is such a variety of different organizations out there and different charities. Um, Wayne, I'm sure, will have a wry smile when, uh, when I re reflect this and that the most common question we were asked when tier three entities were required to do statements of service performance for the first time was we were rung up as a, uh, as a firm at RSM and people saying, hey, can you just give us the model, please? Can you just give us the template? And we had to keep you know, politely saying to people, no, no, we can't, because actually this is about you and your organisation communicating your uniqueness in your own way. Um, now we're able to actually show people lots of examples of different people doing this really well. And, and that's, to me, the point. There is no one model, there is no one template. This is about organizations showing their uniqueness. Um, if there's one other point in terms of the why, uh, to me, the proof is always in the pudding with something. And what I've found is that, uh, and we've seen this now for a couple of years since this has been in place for the tier three and tier four entities, is that funders generally love this information. Um, wider stakeholder groups, donors love it. We know anecdotally from uh, the Fred Hollows Foundation that most people look at our 
delivery metrics, the, the couple of pages of our service performance, rather than um, the detailed financial statements. Um, and that's great. So to the second point, who to drive service performance reporting? Uh, again, when this requirement was first brought in, most organizations tossed this task um, to their accountant, uh, the person that did the annual financial reports. I'd like to say to you that's wrong because this is not about a one person task here. Good service performance reporting is actually about summing up all of the value of the organization and therefore bringing all of the skills in the organization to bear. Uh, I did a, uh, a workshop years ago with um, uh, a client, Coast Guard, Northern Region, and they've always been very good at their stakeholder communication. Uh, and you know, it was a beautiful workshop because we'd managed to get in the room the finance team, the CEO, some board members, the communications team, the operations team. And actually when we discussed the concept of service performance reporting and what they should be measuring and how they could communicate that, it was a really great balancing exercise because it brought everyone's skills and expertise to bear. You know, if we just had the comms and marketing team doing it, we would have had a great pretty sell document. Uh, if we just had the operations team doing it, we would have had um, very detailed how many things that we'd done, how many rescues that we'd uh, achieved and all those good things. If we just had the finance team, probably we would have focused on some of the cost of it. Um, so it, it brought us to a, a lovely joined up place. Um, so just in, in summary, uh, get as many people involved in this process as you can if you really want to get a good result out of it. And what I'd also say is that those organizations with a laser-like clarity in terms of what their purpose and vision actually is and their strategic plan that clearly states how they're going to do that, for those organizations, doing a statement of service performance actually is pretty easy because it's just a summation of what you're doing. For organizations that come to this at the end of the year and then go, right, now what are we going to report? Sorry, folks, this is hard. And it will be doubly hard when uh, the auditors come along and say, hey, show us your systems for recording these things and how they've worked throughout the year because we need to now get our heads around this. So think about it early and think about it with a, a combined team uh, involved. What I'd also say is that the experiences of early adoption, it's not been entirely easy, um, but it's actually not been as hard as many people thought. And what's really interesting is once you've done it one year, the next year is much easier. It's about refinement and improving rather than uh, reinventing the wheel. So I'd now like to um, pass over the talking stick. I think I've used my seven minutes um, to uh, who's talking next, Joanne Scott, who I think is coming to us from Nelson, who's going to give us a, um, a standard setters perspective on this. And um, she'll probably berate me later for things that I've said about standard setters. But they're wonderful people. Joanne, over to you. Hinako to everyone. And thanks very much, Craig. And no, I'm not going to berate you. Um, so I've got seven minutes to talk about an accounting standard that was probably seven years in the making. Um, I'm not even going to tell Craig off for saying that it was loose. I, my, my phrase would be that it's, it's short but strong. Um, any reporting that you do needs to have parameters, and we have some in this short standard. So just to be clear what, which standard we're talking about, P2020 
PBEFRS 48 Service Performance Reporting, it's one of the standards in the suite of PBE standards that are applied by Tier 1 and Tier 2 PBEs, including charities and public sector entities and various other um, PBEs. So it was originally issued to be effective from 1 January 2021. It's been deferred by a year, but as all because of COVID and acknowledgement of the stresses that that placed on some organisations that were midway in their planning. Um, but as Craig has mentioned, that you need to get in early and I'll also touch on that. Um, I think the deferral might well be useful to some people, but it doesn't actually give you any more time. You really need to be getting into this now. Early adoptions permitted. Some entities have chosen to do that. And even with the deferral, early adoption remains um, possible. So it was issued November 2017, which is a while ago, um, but it was actually, it was at least five years in the making. And people were talking about having a standard on service performance reporting for about 20 years. Um, it was just hard and there were always other priorities, but then we got to the point that we had a nearly complete set of standards and the big gap was the standard on service performance reporting. We had a few tiny set of requirements um, set out in PBIPSAS 1, but really they were very short and they were aimed mainly at, or they'd been written with public sector entities in mind. So we needed a standard. It's a very short standard, so why did it take us, say, five years to get there? I think because it went through a number of drafts and iterations, and there was a lot of consultation. And the first few drafts probably had much more detailed requirements. But when the board went out and talked to people, they'd say, oh, this doesn't work for us because we have these requirements, or we think of it this way, or we use these frameworks, or we use this terminology. And in order to make it work for lots of different types of entities and to actually get somewhere, we've ended up with quite a short principles-based standard. So there aren't that many requirements in it, um, but I would suggest that you read it through carefully a couple of times. Because there's not that many requirements in it, some of the paragraphs, you actually need to read them and think about them and what they mean for you. And as Craig said, there's no template for this. Um, everybody has to think about what it means for them and how they're going to report on their service performance. So Craig's already mentioned some of the things it requires. It does, it requires what it calls contextual information. And that's just so that people understand your context. Why do you exist? What do you do? How do you go about it? Um, and if, if you've already got a lot of detail about that in other documents, then it can be quite short in your service performance reporting. Um, you know, if, if people know what you do, then you can just summarise it. But people do need to understand that. And then it requires information about what you've done during the period and working towards your broader aims and objectives. It doesn't say that you have to report on your outputs. It doesn't say that you have to report on your outcomes. People will report on outputs and outcomes and impacts, but it's up to you to tell people what you mean by those words and what you're reporting on. So you do have quite a bit of choice, but you have to stand back and think, is this consistent with the principles and the overall requirements and the standard? Because there are requirements 
that you think about giving an overall picture, a balanced picture, um, and that you can back up what you're reporting and say, yes, we did do this. So the standard requires you to use performance measures and or descriptions to explain the link between your service performance reporting and your financial statements. Um, so if you've got big cost areas, you know, what were you doing? Use, you know, where, where did the bulk of your money go? Or where are you making, how are you making the best use of your money or what's changing in how you use your resources? And it also requires comparative information. So not that many requirements. Um, and it doesn't even tell you how you have to present the information. You've got quite a lot of choice there as well. You do, because you've got quite a few areas where you're having to make judgment calls, the standard requires that you stand back and have a think about, for someone reading this information, what do they need to know about the judgments we've made? You don't have to disclose all the judgments you've made. You have to think about those that have the most significant effect on what you've reported and that are relevant to a user's understanding. So even the disclosure of judgment section is what some people might call loose, um, and I might say it's principles-based. Yes, people need to know about the judgments you've made, but don't give them pages of judgments. Think about what are the key ones that they need to know. And I've got that blue box about principles um, because there's principles at the beginning of the document and there's principles running all the way through it. And I'll talk about those a bit more on the next slide. Um, thanks, Kimberly. So implementing the standard, that's a very um, simple timeline there. What should jump out at you? And as Craig said, um, you not only have to report on your current year information, so you can't wait till the end of the year to report on that. You need to start collecting data and deciding how, you know, what you're going to collect and how you're going to report. Um, but you also have to collect your comparative information. So that pulls you back a year. So I think rather than saying to yourself, oh, the standard's been deferred, I've got heaps of time. Some of you, your comparative year is rushing up to meet you. So I think probably if you look at your comparative year timelines and when all the decisions that you need to make to start collecting your comparative year information, that's probably going to drive the process. The first point I've put in there is plan, consult, discuss, because when you go through that standard and think about what it means for you, you're going to, it's going to raise quite a few questions and they're questions that no one person is probably going to be able to answer on their own. So you're going to have to Think about things within your organisation. Talk to some of your users. Think about you know which which measures can you use? Can you collect the data? Is it going to be verifiable? So there's going to be quite a few discussions. There is a new phrase in the um, standard: appropriate and meaningful. And the board did have some debates about whether that was it was useful to add that phrase in. The reason it's in there is that there's quite a few principles in the um, standard and including the qualitative characteristics that underpin all of the accounting standards. But those terms aren't really useful when you're trying to have a discussion with people that aren't accountants. So they don't, their eyes are going to glaze over if you start talking about qualitative characteristics. It might be um, easier to begin your conversations by talking about 
trying to pull together information that's appropriate and meaningful for your organisation and throwing in the words like, you know, relevant, un unbiased, overall picture. Um, so you're trying to give users an overall picture, um, the good and the bad. Um, and you're, you're also having to think about, you could report on heaps of stuff, but you don't want to swamp people with detail. So you're having to try and focus on what's material and that's really going to come out of discussions. So no easy answers here, I'm afraid. It's a short standard and it throws quite a lot back on you. But because every organisation is different and it's trying, it's a standard that's going to be applied by different types of entities, um, that's really where we were always going to end up. Um, so hopefully the principles that are in there, you can find ways of communicating those to the people that you're going to have to discuss this with. And as Craig said, it's probably not going to be accountants driving this, um, but you're going to have to kind of mesh your, your financial statement reporting and this. Um, so that's probably enough on implementing. It's a, a quick brush over of something that's going to take a long time and months of debate probably for you, but enough for this session. There is some guidance available. There's an explanatory guide AG10 that's available on the XRB website. It was really written with tier two not-for-profits entities in mind. Um, I would suggest that you have a quick skim through it. It was written for people that are getting started and haven't had these conversations or thought about the standard much. It's useful to have a quick read because it, it's a bit chattier than the standard and it looks at some of the ways that you might meet some of the requirements, but it is for people that are getting started. So if you've already um, some way down the path, then you might look at it and think, yeah, I know, well, listen, we've already made these decisions and had these discussions. Um, so up to you, you know, how long you spend looking at that, but I think at least the first few sections might be useful to have a quick look at. Um, you might also look at that guidance and think, but I could write something better for our organisation, and I'm sure you could. So, I mean, if you and possibly like-minded entities would find it useful to have guidance, you probably need to think about getting together and drafting it yourself, because the standards high level, it's always going to be high level. This guidance is very simple and aimed at a broad audience. Um, you're the ones that are probably going to have to say, this is how we're going to implement the standard and what it means for us. And if you and other like-minded organisations want to get together and prepare, you know, documents to help guide your, your processes, then, you know, go for it. Um, we'd welcome that. So all I can say is we, we wish you well. And I'm sure in five years time, we might look at the standard and we might see some improvements that could be made. But for the next few years, um, please, let's all show it some goodwill and use it in the spirit that it's intended to help you put together some credible and useful information for your users. Thanks. And so now next in our session, I'll hand over to um, Sharon and Sharon's going to explore the how. So how to go about service performance reporting from a preparer's perspective. Thank you, Joanne. So I'm Sharon Orr, and I'm currently wearing two hats at the Fred Hollows Foundation New Zealand, that of the acting CEO and the finance and operations director. 
And can I say that we're very lucky to have Craig heading our governance team as chair of our board. Uh, this is some insight into how we went about the service performance reporting process, the learnings and the challenges uh, when we decided to early adopt the standard for inclusion in our 2019 financial statements. As Craig stressed, a really important piece of advice is to make sure that you have a laser-like clarity of what your purpose or vision is. This makes compiling the statement of service performance easy. Well, perhaps not easy, but not as hard as you think. We have a clear, focused, direct vision, and because of that, the outputs come naturally. If you've done the hard work in getting that laser-like focus on what you were doing and why you were doing it, why you exist as an organization, then it's easier to build everything in and around it. In telling our story about what we do, it was important to be very clear on what our pillars meant. We restore sight to the needlessly blind, uh, transforming lives by not only giving sight back, but independence as well. We also train local doctors and nurses and specialist eye care so that they can restore sight in their own communities, providing sustainable and local solutions, uh, helping people to help themselves. As well as this, once our eye doctors and nurses have been fully trained and are back in their communities providing eye care, the medical environments in which they work do not often have the facilities, equipment and supplies necessary. So we support them through our graduate programs to ensure they have what they need to successfully help their communities. We also assist in strengthening the local health systems and we drive innovation and research into eye care. A good quality annual report is all about stakeholder communication. It's not just a compliance exercise at the end of the year. It's, it's like a segue into a digital report which speaks to a higher mission. It's about telling stories about patients, donors, supporters, key events, how we're building a long-term sustainable solution. Having a clear strategy is also really important. We can show how our short-term outcomes feed through our medium-term outcomes and ultimately our long-term outcome. Having this makes it easy to formulate our annual work plans, which in turn translate into budgets, and then ultimately our annual report. And as Craig said, it's, it's really not just the accountant's role nor the comms role, it's actually every, everyone's role, which is why having a clear strategy to all work uh, from is so important. It needs to be an integrated system that is good for the organization as a whole throughout the year, as opposed to just one report for the year. This is an example of how we reported on the outcomes and outputs of our pillar one, for instance, which is restoring and preserving site. As you can see, we completed over 84,000 eye care consultations, nearly 5,000 eye surgeries, and dispensed almost 12,000 pairs of spectacles, all of which contributed to increased eye care services. We purchased over $400,000 worth of ophthalmic medical equipment and supplied over 5,000 pairs of spectacles and sunglasses to our graduate nurses, both of which were outputs of our spend on clinic equipment and medical consumables. About 90 to 95% of stakeholders are interested in higher level reporting and probably 5% will dig into it. And what we did find on the journey is that we, our first two pillars, which is restoring sight and training doctors and nurses, they were probably the easiest to report on as they were um, more quantitative. We had lots of outputs and outcomes for those. 
However, when it uh, came to our remaining two pillars, which is strengthening the local health systems and innovation and research, these were a little bit more difficult as these were more qualitative. But referring back to our strategy, it became clear. It was when we could see that Pacific Ministries of Health were providing their own budgets for eye health care that contributed to eye, increased eye health planning and financing. And what did we learn? Well, there was lots of learnings from this process. We made a conscious decision to early adopt the standard as it gave us an opportunity to tell a story about the Fred Hollows Foundation. It showed that as part of our DNA, we were committed to providing excellence in our financial reporting and that we were cheerleading for the profession about the importance of good information and accounting. We saw it as an opportunity to really engage with our stakeholders. And we learned that we needed to have a really strong governance process to make sure that we got the, uh, the right key performance indicators. One of the really great outcomes was it encouraged a culture in the organization that we have to measure and report on everything and that it allowed us to integrate output from our systems to report to the general public um, and to our institutional donors, our partners and stakeholders. And it wasn't just for our annual report. There are too many organizations out there saying they are doing good, but they don't measure it. I think we've been brutally successful with a really simplistic message, but it was important that it translated to a huge impact. And it became really evident that our auditors learned a lot more about the foundation, which has made for a, a really stronger relationship. This was the very first time that they'd audited a chari charity that had adopted the standard early. So they probably learned just as much as we did. They certainly spent much more time doing that part of the audit than they initially estimated, but they were very, very generous when it came to billing and ended up absorbing much of the cost uh, as they saw it as an investment in their learning. Uh, challenges, yep, we had lots of those as well. Um, firstly, getting the right targets and KPIs as we need to be, we need to make sure that we were measuring the right things. So go back to your strategy to ensure they tie in with your vision and purpose. Being able to verify the information from an audit perspective, that was really, really important. Uh, the auditors have got to be able to look back and drill down the same way in which they do financial information. They've got to be able to verify the, where the information is coming from. So you've got to ensure that the same internal controls were in place as for our financial audits, um, you know, like separation of duties between those preparing and checking the information. It helped us to uh, identify some of the gaps in our system. So uh, we know that this is going to be, you know, an evolving process um, and we'll get better at it over time. Another challenge was having information presented in consistent ways. So we were receiving it in various different formats from our clinics that we engage uh, employees in the Pacific and those that we just support. So what we're doing now is developing standardized templates for that data capture. Some of the information was from our own managed clinics and from the clinics that our graduates work in, where we had no control or authority to demand that information. So the key here was to encourage our graduates that having these monitoring systems in place would ultimately assist them in getting budgets for eye health care from their own governments in the future. And yes, there is a cost to capturing the data, but we've made it appropriate to the size of our organization and can really see that it's an investment for us. It demonstrates that our systems are robust and credible 
and it would ultimately lead to better information for our really savvy donors, which in turn will hopefully translate into them choosing to donate to our charity. And yes, the whole process was a cha challenge, but we found that as we got into it, more people got swept along the journey of providing good quality impact reporting and the benefits that accrued from that. And finally, it's an evolving process. We will continue to mature our processes. We don't profess to have everything absolutely perfect, but now that we've dipped our toes into the water, we know it was absolutely the right decision to early adopt the standard. And please feel free to check out our 2019 performance uh, report on our website and the charity services website. Thank you. And next up is Henry, who will talk about the how from an auditor's perspective. Great, thank, thank you very much, Sharon. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Wayne, I know you'll be nervous because I think we've got uh, five minutes left and that includes time for questions. So I'm going to try and be very short and sharp uh, from an auditor point of view. It's good to see there's been a bit of chat um, going on around how auditors will approach this. <coughs> Excuse me. So first of all, first slide is just to remind you, obviously, you've got an accounting standard that Joanne's uh, talked about, uh, PBE FRS 48. We also now have an auditing standard, which is what we're required um, uh, to follow uh, and, and to ensure we do all the right things from an auditing point of view. So that the third slide is I'm just going to cover that off. I'm not going to give you a detailed uh, technical audit session, but it's just helpful information to know what we're going to be looking for. Um, can you just pop onto my next slide, um, uh, please, Kim? My first point is what will auditors be thinking about? So when I read a statement of service performance, um, what I want you to do is I want you to forget about auditors for a minute. I know you, those of you who get audited love to think about your auditors all the time, but just forget about your auditors. I am not reading a service statement of service performance to see, hey, how easy is this going to be to audit? I'm reading a statement of service performance to say, right, do I understand what this organization is trying to achieve? Does it explain to me what it's trying to achieve in the medium term and what it has done this year to move towards those goals? And do I go, ah, this is what this organization is trying to achieve and has done. That's ultimately what I'm looking for initially. Yes, that the danger is that we'll put the cart before the horse and start thinking, right, what's easy to test, what's easy to verify, what's easy to audit, and then produce your statement of service performance. So if you remember nothing else from an audit point of view, remember this picture, don't put the cart before the horse. If you think about it, that's like doing financial statements and just including in cash and bank, which is very easy to audit, but only tells a tiny bit of the picture. Um, I'm going to answer one of the questions that's been asked as well. We'll give my two two cents worth on it in terms of the length of an SSP. If you think about your financial statements, you manage to summarize your profit and loss account usually into one page and your balance sheet usually into one page. That's a sort of aim then. How can you um, try and summarize what you've achieved in the year into a couple of pages? It's going to be very different. Lots of organizations are very different. Lots of organizations are a project based. For example, I've got a PHO that tries to do a lot of things around the community. So it is going to be a challenge but as much as possible, people will read a one or two page uh, statement of financial performance and balance sheet. So how can we summarize that information um, in the same way? That's the challenge we've got to um, uh, meet uh, head on sort of thing. Um, final slide then now, as I say, I'm skipping through really quickly. So this is a very brief summary of the auditing standard that we're required to follow. Again, there's been a bit of chat around how auditors are going to upskill to audit statements of service performance and the comments that have been made are quite right. 
service performance information has been around for a long time in the government sector. So we've had a lot of experience working with the OAG and how to audit non-financial information. Uh, obviously, tier three and four, uh, the last three or four years, we've got used to it as well. But there is still learning. AS1 is a new auditing standard. So it absolutely is a journey and a partnership, as Sharon des described. Uh, but it's an really cool journey and partnership it's really great having the conversations with clients about what they've achieved as opposed to how they recognize this revenue or what it might be so auditors as auditors we're really enjoying the conversations that we're having with you and hopefully you'll enjoy those conversations with us so very quickly what the standard requires so you're aware when you're preparing your requirements we're required initially to understand your processes just like any other audit uh, we're required to do understand how you've pulled the information together that's included in your service performance information. Um, secondly, we're required to evaluate whether the criteria are suitable. So you're required to determine what you include in your service performance uh, report, and we're required to determine whether it complies with the standard. Again, this is going to be a key issue. It's been covered before. Um, Craig used the word loose. I think uh, Joanne said short and strong, which I agree with. It's principles based. It will require a lot of judgment. And so that's going to be a key area. You want to engage with your auditor pretty early on so that you agree what is the right information to include in there. One of the key questions, as I said before, from us is, is it complete? Has it got the most important information in there? We're not going to sweat the small stuff. We're not worried about the, the tiny detail. We want to make sure this shows a really cool picture and a true and fair picture uh, of what the organization is trying to achieve overall. Third point, obviously, we have to obtain evidence. So ensuring that you've got um, appropriate evidence to support what you're saying. As I say, I go back to my cart and a horse picture don't start with thinking how do i obtain evidence start with thinking how do i show uh, the story of this organization then we'll work on the evidence sometimes it's quite easy sometimes it will be more difficult uh, one of the challenges for example is are you relying on information from other people how do we uh, ensure that we can uh, rely on that information and finally then we obviously report um, uh, and uh, as to whether the information is uh, true and fair meets the requirements of the standard and we have been able to obtain uh, all the appropriate audit evidence uh, in there so that's my quick, very quick summary, uh, Wayne. I think we're almost uh, back on time, but I'm not sure if there's any more time for questions. Uh, but yeah, really engage early with the auditors and really start that conversation. It's a good, good conversation. We love having it uh, and it produces really good results in the end. Sure. Thank you so much, Henry, and all of the speakers. Um, I have been told we've only got a very short time uh, left for questions, unfortunately, which is actually, though, a fantastic uh, reflection on the fact of the interest shown in this topic. Um, we've, we've touched on a few things in the discussion there, and I've given some quick responses to a couple of the questions. Um, there was one question, maybe just uh, I thought was a really good question around, you know, what we do has longer term impacts than just on an annual cycle. How do we go about uh, measuring that and reporting on that when, it's, when it, there's a multi-year um, impact going on? So I don't know if somebody on the panel wants to have a, a um, reflection on that. Uh, shall I? I've got one example, uh, Wayne. Um, I've got a client called Capital Kiwi, a cool client. They've got a five-year aim to try and uh, bring back Kiwi uh, to the south coast of uh, the South Island, Wellington, and they're in about year two of that aim. So the question is, what do we talk about? In the end, nothing really matters other than what they achieve in five years' time. So yep. the conversation we had is, what's the appropriate information? You must 
you've got something to demonstrate you're moving forward, such as the traps you've put out there and whether you're reducing the population of um, predators and that sort of thing as you move on that journey. So it's a case by case basis. But yes, agree. Proving outcomes is not always perfect uh, in a year, but there must be some steps towards that. And, and that's how the standard is described. What are the steps you've taken in this particular year to move towards the outcome? Well, doesn't use outcomes to move towards what you want to try and achieve. So I think it's case by case, but there should always be things you can report on, even if your your goals are going further out sort of thing. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, the other interesting one, one was around, uh, you know, how long should it be? I know you touched on a little bit about that as well. Maybe Sharon might want to comment on, you know, how did you go about deciding what's in or what's out in terms of the service performance? Thanks, Wayne. Um, it was, um, uh, as I said earlier, sort of, you know, looking back at our, our, our pillars, that sort of really drove it and uh, our strategy. Um, what was what was the key drivers to um, you know why we exist and things like you know there, there, were, there were some really really easy ones. Uh, the, the the big thing that the foundation does is we train um, doctors and nurses to become eye health professionals, and um, you know the, the number of graduates the graduates that we train obviously is really important. Um, and the number of eye health surgeries that we do. Uh, and, and when you start drilling into it, you, um, you actually find you know, a multitude of information, but it's sorting out what's material, what's, what's relevant, what is demonstrating the most impact. And, um, so, and, and it's really working with the whole team to, to make those, you know, those decisions. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Yes, I've been advised we do have to wind it up there. So, but I'll just have some closing comments. Well, firstly, to say we've obviously just scratched the surface on a, on a very important, very interesting topic. Um, and thank you, Sharon. Uh, I just wanted to, I thought there was a particular uh, poignancy around um, Sharon talking about the importance of the clarity of the vision for the Fred Hollows Foundation. I thought that was a beautiful thing, um, the clarity of vision. Um, so anyway, just to, just to finish off, thank you everybody for attending this session. As you go on your own journey, some of you might be a long way down that journey. Um, you know, the train's already rolling. Some others might be still trying to find the station. Uh, it doesn't matter. The point is to, to get started, to get engaged with it. Uh, and I guess for me, the closing message is see the opportunity. See the opportunity for stakeholder communication and, and to actually help going back to the build back better. See that opportunity rather than just seeing compliance. Um, so that would be my um, closing message on that. Kia ora, everybody. Enjoy the uh, other sessions in the day. And um, we can start now. I've been given the, uh, the okay to start. So kia ora koutou. Uh, my name is Wayne Tukiri. I'm an audit partner with RSM. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this uh, second session in uh, room two. So hopefully, if you're looking for uh, the session, when, it is, when is it time to call it quits with Craig Fisher, you're in the right place. Uh, if you're looking for one of those sessions, you need to go to either room one or room three. So um, uh, once again, welcome everybody. Hope you enjoyed the previous session that you uh, you were in, involved in. So I guess this topic is a, is an interesting one. And we've uh, we're obviously been in the midst of COVID and dealing with COVID. And this is really, really looking at the situation whereby, uh, you know, this serious consideration as to whether it is time to call it quits as being the, the best option. So, you know, what are some of the, the key things to think about in that regard? And then, you know, how do we then go about implementing that in a, in a, in a, in a 
positive way, essentially. So Craig's going to share some of his experience on that. So um, as with all the other sessions, just a reminder, um, this is being recorded. So if, if you miss anything or any of the questions we don't get to at the end, um, we will be able to address that. Please use the chat function um, to put in your questions. We will have time um, to, uh, to address those later on, hopefully. Um, and um, yeah, hopefully just enjoy the session. Over to you. Cheers, Craig. Kia ora tato e te whanau. Ko karioi toku manga, ko whaingaroa toku moana. Um, ko Craig Fisher toku ingoa. Coming to you from um, lovely whaingaroa, lovely Raglan. Um, thank you, Wayne. Um, the usefulness of this meeting um, is being able to share uh, thoughts. And um, this particular session is actually about sharing some hard thoughts. So uh, the context that I come at this from is a, an audit partner with 30 years experience in audit and a consultant to many different organizations. I also uh, am involved in a number of not-for-profit governance roles and have been um, in quite a few in the past. Um, and I also come at this from a standard setting perspective. So I guess you could say that I've um, got quite a different number of hats there. We are all charged, whatever our roles, with making uh, informed strategic decisions at the moment in very uncertain times. And that requires good governance and great leadership. Um, so, so I'd just like to uh, share my screen here now with you, if that uh, works. Bear with me a second, folks. It's good to go, Craig. Good to go? Okay, excellent. Um, so first of all, I'd like to start off with a disclaimer. Um, this session is going to challenge and offend some of you and that's not my intention but it will happen sorry about that folks um, but really my whole aim here is to be quite blunt uh, it is to actually get people to take a very honest look in the mirror and um, you know, we all know that you know real honesty real objectivity is often very uncomfortable and can be very unsettling so uh, in one sense apologies for this um, but in another sense not um, because hard questions and hard decisions are actually a function of good governance. Good governance is not just an easy ride, folks. Um, sometimes we have to do the, the real hard things in organisations. And in charities, that means doing the best for our charitable purpose. So what I've seen over the years is that um, Successful charities and not-for-profits are really, really clear on their why, why they exist. Um, however, a lot of other organizations spend most of their time on the what and the how. And in fact, a lot of it in the how. So in the doing, um, rather than on why they exist and what their actual impact is. Um, the, the problem with that is that you know, we, can, we can all be very busy uh, and sometimes being busy uh, means that we don't get to see what we actually need to see in an organization. Um, we focus much more on the doing, we lose sight of the big picture. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of organizations where uh, brand protection seems to be more of the aim than purpose. Uh, and you know, if, you, if you really look at them hard, um, sometimes you do wonder about the level of impact that they're actually creating. Um, there's also some natural things that cause this, uh, and one of those is job protection. Uh, people working in organisations sometimes will struggle to make difficult decisions which may put their own job uh, in threat. Uh, and yet, if they truly looked at things objectively, 
they may see that the level of impact that they are actually achieving um, possibly is outweighed by the cost of what they're doing. Um, a cartoon here I came across recently. Um, unfortunately, I find this is a common scenario in many charities that I come across. They're so busy with their heads down doing some good work um, that they don't get a chance to actually sit back, look up and see, now hang on, are we doing this the best way that we could? Uh, are there other ways that we could achieve our purpose more efficiently, more effectively? Are there other organisations that actually are doing it much better than what we are? All good questions. Um, it's harsh, but it is very common for under-resourced charities to continue doing it hard um, just because they don't have that uh, time to, to look up. I once had a mentor uh, about 20 years ago, and um, he was a fantastic chap, Tom, at slapping me in the face. And uh, I remember um, he was busting me for uh, not having done something that I'd committed to do. Uh, and he said, Craig, are you being effective or are you just being a busy fool? When he listened to some of my excuses for why I hadn't done it. And, you know, that really hurt. But, you know, the more I reflected on that, the more I thought, yep, you know, um, yeah. I was actually caught up in being busy rather than actually focusing on what I really needed to do. And I think that's a great analogy for a lot of organizations. We need to stop sometime. We need to pause. We need to reflect and uh, see if what we're doing is the right thing. So we're in a really unusual time at the moment. Um, it's called COVID-19. And uh, I was recently involved in uh, doing a, a reasonably major bit of research on all of the INGOs operating out of New Zealand, um, combined with another independent consultant, Darren Ward from Direct Impact Group. Uh, and it was, a, was a comprehensive study that we did, desk study, a lot of interviews, um, a lot of research. And really what we sort of summed up the whole thing was with this picture, which was actually on the front page of our report, which is, is freely available, by the way, and um, I'll make sure that there's links put up for later on if anyone wants to have a look at that. Because while it was about um, INGOs operating out of New Zealand, a lot of the things that we found could actually equally apply to any charity operating in New Zealand. Um, and what we found was that COVID-19 is acting like a blowtorch. It is amplifying and speeding up existing issues that organizations were already facing. So a lot of organizations were already starting to be challenged with some of their revenue generation activities have found that COVID has sped that up considerably. Um, you know, it was interesting, Zoom made a comment, uh, the people that run Zoom made a comment that um, they've had uh, two years worth of development in the first two months of COVID. Uh, it's just sped up the challenges that they've had to deal with that allow us to all um, view this, this conference now over Zoom. Some of the other findings we found in this um, study was that um, business as usual or business as it was in the past is gone forever. Um, and a lot of people have not woken up to that fact yet. There are positives and negatives about the changes, but there are definitely changes. Um, some things won't go back to the way that they were. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're all benefiting uh, from some of these things like technology, like increased use of technology in the charitable sector. So sometimes it takes a, a major event to force some, some real hard questions. And I think COVID-19 is one of those things. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about COVID complacency now setting in. Um, people need to, uh, to make the most of this experience to get the most out of it for their organisations. So here's a picture of a tornado. 
Um, and early on in COVID, I was lucky enough to sit in on a webinar that Sir Bill English was presenting. And he was asked what the impact economically is going to be of COVID. And he said, well, think of a tornado. When a tornado goes through a town, it completely destroys some buildings. It completely months other buildings. And yet, just next door or just across the road, there are buildings completely unscathed. Uh, and that's a really interesting analogy that I think is very applicable for the COVID experience uh, on our economy and on, therefore on organisations. It's dramatically impacted some organisations, um, but not all of that's been negative. Some organisations have actually um, uh, showing record results thanks to this experience. Um, and unfortunately, COVID has very unequal impacts uh, and we need to um, be aware of this and, uh, and be used to it as we go forward and actually deal with it. And it may mean that, you know, for some organisations, life is easier and for others, life is going to get a heck of a lot harder, which again comes back to our question, should the organisation actually continue to exist? Does it still stack up in terms of its strategy and model of operation? Um, here's some gross generalisations, and I know this will offend some people, um, but they are what I've noted over 30 years in professional practice as an auditor of a huge number of entities. Our sector is characterised in the main by a large number of very small entities and often very poorly resourced. We have 115,000 not-for-profit entities in New Zealand. Uh, as of today, we have 27,735 registered charities in New Zealand. Um, that's an awful lot. Um, and of note about that is that a lot of them are very small or micro. Um, as a result, a lot of them are very operationally focused and not strategically focused. A lot have very weak financial models. Um, a lot have underinvested in IT and in people. Uh, and as I've said earlier, um, COVID is the blowtorch on this. It's making these impacts, in some cases, uh, stress already stressed, fragile organisations. So to affect change, you need a big motivator. And the concept of a burning platform springs to mind. Um, this one, I think, is particularly relevant given the whole climate situation. Um, so is COVID-19 the burning platform for change? You know, talking about climate change is really interesting. Uh, there used to be an awful lot of climate deniers. They're getting a bit thinner on the ground now as people are starting to see more and more evidence of significant climate change in their own lives. Um, so they take it a bit more seriously. Um, is COVID the opportunity to have a really serious look at your organisation? Um, my concern also is um, summed up by this cartoon. Is it enough of an issue to actually force organisations to really look hard, to really truly look at the issues that they've got? Um, we've done extraordinarily well in New Zealand from the health situation. Um, we've also done well from an economic situation, but actually that one is a bit masked because the economic situation is only going okay because our government has thrown an extraordinary amount of money at organisations and keeping the economy going. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are actually realising how much money has been pumped into the economy. But a stat that really drove it home for me was in the first, I think it was two and a half days of wage subsidy payout, more money was paid out than in all treaty settlements in New Zealand's history. And 
that just to me says, wow, you know, that's a lot of money gone out there and that's continued day after day. Um, because we've done so well on the health front, I think a lot of people are sitting back and waiting for things to go back to normal. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to go back to normal very quickly. Uh, and I fear uh, this COVID complacency. I'm much more concerned about next year than I am about the economic impact this year, because next year I believe we're going to see a lot more unemployment and uh, the devastating social and longer term impacts that that actually causes uh, on an economy. So is the burning platform enough? Mm. Stephen Moe and I, uh, early on in COVID, um, quickly whacked together a paper called Charting the Future, seven hard questions for uh, organizations to think about, to really question themselves on. Um, we've also uh, put together a webinar not long after that, and that's uh, also freely available. So we'll make sure that the links are, uh, are available for everyone to those. Um, but really, this is about what happens in a lot of organizations. Are organizations really clear on their purpose? Uh, in my experience, a lot of organizations have become generalists rather than unique specialists intensely good at one thing. Um, do they still have the right to exist? Does their impact outweigh their cost? Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, we have to appreciate that we operate in a very competitive environment. Uh, as auditor, I've, I've um, had horrible situations of, you know, four small organizations all struggling, all operating in the same area, all doing essentially the same thing, not very well and all sucking up resource in things that actually, if there was some sort of combination of effort, uh, would have produced a much more impactful result. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to get large and everyone needs to merge, um, but they needed to take a cold, hard look at themselves in terms of what they were doing. Uh, times change. Does the organisation still need to exist for what it was originally set up for? Here's a really brave question. Should we have an end date? You know, if we are truly trying to solve a wicked problem, when will it be done? And actually setting an end date changes your whole approach to strategy, your whole braveness and courageousness for how you might go about trying to deal with that wicked problem. A really important question in New Zealand is should we try and continue to go it alone? You know, a fantastic thing and output of COVID um, has been a lot more organisations collaborating and producing some brilliant results. But the danger of not collaborating produces some ridiculous examples. Uh, a good friend of mine, an ex-New uh, Zealand ambassador actually, now lives in Otahuhu. Um, he said that there was uh, three knocks on his door in one single day from different food organizations wanting to give his family a food parcel. Three in one day. And then nothing for three weeks. Now, where's the coordination there? You know, just a horrible example. He said it was embarrassing. So, you know, some hard questions to look at there and, uh, and things maybe that, um, that people might want to think about. Um, I'd also just like to, to read a really hard quote that came out of our um, INGO sector review from uh, one of the people that we interviewed. And it really, it really struck home to me. There is a stasis in the sector and in our organisation. It's like we're static and unable to get unstuck. We're continually peddling a bit harder just to stand still, not able to break through. COVID's been useful as it forces some change, gives the imperative and the balls to take action. But is the change actually going far enough? 
Our sector is slow. It's not as regularly or brutally accountable as the business sector is. There's also the disconnect between the funder, the agency, and the beneficiary. This complex relationship results in a lack of true accountability and creating the most impact. And to me, that last word, impact, was the main one out of that. That's what we need to be looking at in our organization. That's the lens that we need to be looking through. So does our impact truly justify our existence? And actually, how are we measuring our, measuring our impact? Because when I go into boards and management teams and ask this question, often I get given some really waffly answers and some metrics which, to be honest, are more about being busy than actually really creating a positive impact tied to the charitable purpose. We've got to get better at this in New Zealand. Um, there's some cool organisations out there uh, that are helping with this. Uh, impact Lab is one that's worth looking up if anyone hasn't already. Um, but we've got to get better in our organisations at actually measuring our impact and seeing how we are doing and therefore enabling that question of are we actually justifying our existence or actually are we just taking up sector resources that are taken away from possibly some more impactful providers. Another thing I wanted to quickly throw in here is that um, closing up actually may be the ultimate measure of success for an organization, job done. You know, think about that. We set up to address a particular issue, we've done it. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Wouldn't that be the ultimate measure of success? Um, so a lot of people think about closing something as actually a negative, um, it's not always a negative. It can be a fantastic positive. It may be that your organization has done as much as it can in the time that it had with the resources that it had, but actually going forward, it could be more impactful by tipping those resources into something else, collaborating with someone else. Um, and there's some, there's some different ways of doing that. So what are some other options, just quickly? Well, collaboration is really important. As I said, we've seen some fantastic examples. Um, merging. Now, merger really interests me. Um, I've been called the corporate antichrist in the past for mentioning mergers as a possible viable opportunity for some organizations. I'm not quite sure why it's seen as such a dirty word, um, but to a lot of people, they just associate it as bad. Um, what's really important to remember about mergers is that collaboration is a spectrum. At one end of that spectrum, the most extreme end is merger. At the other end of that spectrum is very loosely working together with some other organization and everything in between. So uh, collaborations are really a useful concept, but it's not just about merger and merger equals bad. So um, you've got to have a discussion around that in terms of what more can an organization do. Um, we also, when we look as accountants at organizations, we see how much money is utilized in administration. And then when you start seeing a whole lot of organizations in the same sector, and you look at how much is going into administration versus how much is actually going into purpose, you go, hmm, not sure this is being done the most efficiently. Um, I've seen some organizations wind up and gift their residual asset base to organizations that are doing similar things and they consider are doing them better than themselves. Uh, there's also a really cool organization called the gifttrust.org.nz. Look that one up. 
Um, that enables uh, organisations that may have been set up uh, long in the past and may now be struggling to um, gift their organisations to the gift trust, which will then manage the distribution of those funds on an ongoing basis if needed um, to other organisations addressing that particular charitable purpose. A good practical alternative. Um, some closer uh, considerations. Um, firstly, professionals, get some advice. Um, there is legal and accounting fish hooks in this stuff. Um, so legal and accounting advice is worth it. Um, and make sure you're getting good advice. All advice is not equal. Um, and also, if you can, make sure that advice is joined up. Um, as an accountant, I always hate it when lawyers race off and do something without uh, thinking about the financial implications. And I know from some of my legal friends, they hate it when accountants do the same and don't think about the legal um, side of things. So uh, yeah, make sure there is joined up thinking there. Um, winding up and closure uh, will be different depending on the entity type. Uh, and that's really important and the nature of your funding and your operations. Uh, for example, if you're an incorporated society, you're probably going to need an SGM because it's going to be a significant decision. It's quite a different process to a charitable trust, which is effectively just controlled by the trustees. Um, there's timing issues to deal with. I know a lot of uh, rules in incorporated societies make any decision like this about a two-year process. Um, you need to deal with the registrar of incorporated societies. If you're a company, a charitable company, you're going to need to deal with the company's office and the IRD and getting approvals and clearances and all those sorts of things. So there's quite a few things to be done. Likewise, winding, operation, winding up operations is not a, a simple and quick task. Um, you've got to uh, cancel a whole lot of contracts, sell assets, try and get the most for those, or actually is selling them the best approach or actually is gifting them to another charitable organization, probably a better approach. Um, bank creditors, setting liabilities, uh, final accounting processes. Uh, and you need to deal with charity services as well. And for anyone who's contemplating this, charity services have an excellent uh, explanation of uh, things to think about and what you need to do on their website if you are um, considering uh, winding up. Closure considerations, um, just some, some final things here, the hard stuff probably. And why is it hard? Because it involved those things called humans. Um, politics only ever come into play if there's more than one person in an organization, in my experience. Um, but if there is, there will be political issues. Uh, getting decision consensus and agreement is not easy. It's challenging. Um, there's a lot of people who got into the organization because of a passionate desire to do good. And they hang on to that passionate desire and sometimes it can blinker logical, rational thinking. Um, so watch out for passion. Um, there's a lot of it in the sector. Um, uh, there's some difficult things to negotiate sometimes. Uh, in my experience also, there's that lovely saying, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Uh, when it might do people out of jobs, uh, it's unlikely they're going to be favorably disposed towards it. Um, and that can be hard. Um, emotively influenced decision-making is always much harder than cold, hard, business, rational, black and white decision-making. Um, so just be aware for the, uh, the emotional uh, roller coaster that can be involved. Um, redundancies, payouts, pecuniary interests is a big thing. As an auditor, uh, we've come across some issues in the past of people um, looking to 
gain out of closures and that needs to be guarded against. Um, uh, there are some protections there in the law, um, but uh, it's something that needs very careful managing to handle. So um, yeah, just be aware that um, it's not easy dealing with the emotions and the passions uh, and people's lives uh, if you are having to make really hard calls and making a, a logical, rational decision that it might actually be time to call it quits in an organization. So I think I'm, I'm just about on time uh, and I'll leave you with um, a lovely quote from uh, Jim Morrison of The Doors, which probably just shows my age profile, um, from one of his songs, this is the end, beautiful my friend, the end. <laughs> to sum it up, take a really hard, honest, objective look at your organization. Look at for is there a better way of doing this? Looking through an impact lens, are we actually creating enough positive impact to justify the costs of what we're doing and all of that sector oxygen that we're taking up competing with other organizations? Maybe it might be time to call it quits. So that's the end of my formal presentation. I'm not sure if we've got time for any questions, Wayne. Um, yes, we do. If anyone's got a question, if you want to put it in the chat pod. Or... Can I just have a quick shout out then, because I see a very good point that I should have mentioned, and thank you for the reminder, um, J.R. McKenzie Trust. There is a fantastic Working Together More Fund that was set up by J.R. McKenzie, Tyndall's, Todd's, uh, I think the, the original ones of it. It's been around for quite a number of years, which is actually providing some funding for organizations that want to explore collaborating. It's a small fund. Um, however, um, it is a very effective way to help explore just some of these issues that we've talked about today. And very well done to those seven family foundations that got behind that and set it up years ago. Kapai. Kia ora, Craig. Thank you so much for those, uh, those words this afternoon. Um, and almost burst into song that was getting quite emotional there. And Craig Fisher is Jim Morrison from The Doors. You know, that what a bargain for 20 bucks. It was fantastic. <laughs> exactly. But I, th I think just as to close, um, you know, Craig's addressed a very, uh, very challenging topic. But I, I guess the it goes back to the old adage, to get great answers, you need to ask good questions, great questions. And so some of those questions that Craig posed are, are exactly the things that need to be asked when considering whether it is time to call it quits or not. So um, thank you so much to Craig. Uh, was oh, riding on the storm, Bob says. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so if there, is there any other questions that have come through? Um, okay, the hard conversations. Yes, exactly. So otherwise, um, I'll leave it to, we've actually got to 3.10. It's the time for the break in the program. And a big thanks again to Craig, Namiki Craig, and uh, to everybody. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. And we hope you enjoy the uh, next session. Oh, you got one thank more thing? You. Thank you, Wayne. And one more thing, we will post up the links to those two documents um, that I referred to. And there's also a webinar in there as well um, that may people may find useful if they want to explore asking hard questions and uh, some of the, the COVID issues that have, um, and how they've impacted organizations. Kia ora koto, ko Stephen Toku Ingwa, na o tatahi ao. It's a real privilege to welcome you all to this session. We've got um, Craig Fisher with us and Scott Moran and myself. And the three of us are really keen to talk with you about this topic. 
collaboration, mergers, and practical considerations of closing down. And the reason why we think this is important is that we are facing challenging times. And for some organizations, it's the right time to be thinking and asking some really hard questions. The purpose of this session is that the three of us have seen organizations go through this process. We've helped organizations go through this process and we've seen the practical realities of what it's like. So what we wanna do is download the information that we have in our heads as much as possible and share it with you and provide you with some thoughts, some challenges maybe, some new ways of thinking, but also give you some practical steps. So we really want this to be um, something that you'll go away from, maybe with some things that you need to talk with your boards about. We'd encourage you to put questions into the chat function. So um, feel free as we're talking to put your questions in. We'll do our best to answer them. What we're gonna do is each of us are gonna have a brief intro. So um, Scott and Craig, I'll ask you to just briefly introduce yourselves. And then we're gonna be diving into this topic. As an intro for myself, um, I'm Stephen and I'm a lawyer at Perryfield Lawyers where I help charities at their beginnings but also towards their endings, which sometimes happens. So I'm really keen to share with you what I've seen and observed, and also this concept of collaboration. What, that, what might that look like as well? Maybe, Craig, do you mind giving a, a really brief intro to yourself and, and set the scene, the context? Thank you, Stephen. I'm Kira Tata Etafano, Craig Fisher Tokuingwa, coming to you from the lovely Whaingaroa, or Raglan, hence my, um, my backdrop there. Um, I'm a chartered accountant, uh, commonly also known as shattered accountants, actually, uh, especially those that work in the charitable space. And I have about 30 years of audit experience, uh, a lot of experience in the charitable and not-for-profit area, um, also quite a lot of involvement in standard setting uh, for accounting and ethical and audit matters. Uh, and I sit on a number of boards myself in a governance capacity and consult to various boards. So I guess I come at this with a whole lot of different hats um, and like Stephen have helped a lot of organizations through some very difficult times and sometimes needing to help them ask the really difficult questions. Uh, one of the hardest being, um, actually, should we continue to go on? Can we continue to justify the, our existence as an organization? Is our impact uh, actually outweighing our costs and use of resources? So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's me and my frame of reference. Over to you, Scott. We've got some good um, geographic diversity here. I'm, I'm Scott Moran, based in Wellington, in uh, Duncan Cottrell's office here. Um, I've, I've been here for 20 years now, and right from the start, we've acted for a number of uh, not-for-profits, and, and of course, a lot, a lot of um, not-for-profits and charities have their head offices here in Wellington. Um, so over the years, I've done a lot of work with organisations, and certainly in more recent times, in the last five, there have been more and more merger type um, transactions that have occurred. And um, uh, as Stephen and Craig have said, uh, sometimes forced by the circumstances that um, that, that um, organisations find themselves in. And of course, we have some quite restrictive uh, in a very old Incorporated Societies Act. So often creative solutions are, are required to um, give effect to the purposes. Um, but yeah, looking forward to today's discussion. Perfect, thank you. And I think um, from memory, Craig, this, this, the idea for this session came because you and I collaborated on a paper 
which I'm going to um, put a link to in the chat, which looks like this, Charting the Future, a Framework for Thinking About Change. Um, so we'll put a link in the chat. Um, Craig, just I, I know as a result of that paper and, and talking generally, just can you speak to us a little bit about um, the current state we're in in terms of COVID and what has it sparked within organizations that, that are looking at these hard questions? Thanks, Stephen. Um, and yeah, I totally uh, endorse uh, you having a look at that paper that Stephen and I wrote, which was, was partly born out of frustration and partly born out of really wanting to help from what we'd seen out there. Um, I've actually been involved in another paper recently, which has very much been looking at the COVID impact on not-for-profit organizations, uh, and it is specifically uh, the COVID impact and the health of the INGO sector uh, operating out of New Zealand. However, what was interesting was that what we found in that particular study, while it was targeted specifically at INGOs operating from New Zealand, a lot of it was equally applicable to other charities. And what's relevant out of that paper is probably the cover page. And the cover page has a picture of a big blowtorch on it. Um, and that's possibly a, a good analogy we've found for what COVID has done to the sector. Um, it has amplified, it has sped up, it has put a lot more heat on existing issues that were already being faced by organizations. If an organization was already struggling with uh, getting volunteers to assist them, possibly COVID might have made that even harder uh, just due to the physical boundaries and issues there. Uh, likewise, um, you know, financial support. Um, certainly a lot of organizations in the sector are greatly challenged at the moment in terms of their ongoing revenue streams. And are they economically going to be able to survive going forward? Um, so what we, we are seeing with COVID, while it's been a, a really you know, horrible health exercise, New Zealand's done extraordinarily well at managing that or has been extraordinarily lucky, whichever way you look at that, um, by being a nice little island. It's having a big financial impact as well. And uh, I don't want to underestimate how big and how long that financial impact is going to be on our economy. I've always been much more concerned about 2021 rather than 2020 impacts in terms of the economy. Uh, and that's primarily because of the unemployment impact um, and the, the social disruption that that causes and the longer challenge to actually get out of that issue when you have um, a greater level of unemployment in an economy. We've done very well this year, but let's be honest, folks, we're operating on financial fairy dust in New Zealand at the moment. The government has pumped an inordinate amount of money into our economy, and a lot of people, unfortunately, are possibly falling into a bit of a COVID complacency at the moment. Um, it doesn't seem that bad from a health perspective, doesn't seem that bad from an economic perspective. Um, I think we need to, uh, to wake up a little bit uh, and take some really hard looks in our organizations and just see you know, what is realistic going forward, what this is going to mean. Yeah, that's really helpful, thank you. Um, I'd, I'd like to turn to you, Scott, and just ask a question, but I'll just frame it up a little bit. Um, so one of the things that I think um, would be good if we can talk about is from a legal perspective, some of the options, like let's, let's assume we're at the point where the board members are looking at each other around the table and they're saying, actually, we need to make a hard decision here. Um, but before we talk about that, which is, which is coming, I'm, I'm teasing, we are going to discuss that. Um, Scott, I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, in terms of what you're seeing 
uh, if we use the word collaboration, you know, not necessarily winding up, not necessarily merging, not necessarily distributing out and, and finishing. Do you have any thoughts about that kind of the step maybe before that or um, looking at collaboration? Any, any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, well, I, I, I'm, we are finding organizations are, are for the first time, I think, reaching out and probably it's, it's sort of touching on your question to Craig and I'm involved, I'm on a couple of sporting organization boards and they're a classic example whereby on one of them we made a, a tentative decision last year around a quite a significant um, work stream where we listened to all the stakeholders and ended up sort of timidly deciding on something in between that kept everybody happy. And I guess COVID has allowed us, uh, given everybody permission to make bold decisions now uh, because they have to. Uh, and and in, the, in the sporting sector, you've also got Sport New Zealand who are really driving that and, 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 and of course, gaming, gaming money and the availability of that is a key, key part. Um, so, and suddenly some of those barriers that, people have who are very who have been involved in organizations for decades and the last thing they want to do is collaborate or merge or do anything else are, are finding that they have to and that really there's a lot of peer pressure from both government and the rest of their organizations to actually do something so that's helped break, break down a lot of barriers for for our organizations and and think about restructuring internally and, and if there is one thing it has it has uh it has meant people have had to undertake a workshop where they strip the whole thing back and say, why have we been doing what we've been doing for 20 years? We need to think about uh, how, how we do it differently. So, so I guess the organizations are thinking broader and, and, and uh, trying to widen their thinking, knowing that actually the status quo is not going to work. And um, the, you know, the, the COVID, COVID in particular is, our, is the catalyst for change and, and whether that means a, a, a change in the board seat, whether it's a change in the CEO, whether it's a, whether it's a change in the membership structure. Um, and, and to that extent, also members are, go, are going to be perhaps slightly more receptive to, uh, to changes in the structure as well. So, so I guess that is the, that's the first people, people are, have got permission to be more critical looking internally as a first step. Stephen, can I riff on that? Um, and the concept of collaborations, I think one of the real benefits of COVID, and, you know, we have to look at the situation and that there's been some fantastic benefits as well as, you know, harsh things, is the increased collaboration. And often it's happened organically uh, and it's happened faster because people have had to move quite quickly. So we're seeing some lovely collaborations out there between charities, um, also across sectors with uh, charities operating with business. You know, I love the example of the, the volunteer student army getting together with one of the big supermarket groups, I forget whether it was progs or foodies, um, and delivering food um, you know, very effectively, that's cool. Um, but I think there's also another key thing about collaborations, and that is collaborations are a spectrum. At one end of that spectrum is a thing called merger, which is very scary and, uh, and a word that seems to terrify some people. Um, but is it, a, it is the extreme end of the collaboration spectrum. There are lots of very soft and very gentle collaborations at the other end of that spectrum and in between. And uh, when I look in my past experience at organizations that have got together and even some that have eventually merged, often they started by some gentle working together um, and then proved that actually their fears about this were unfounded and it was a lot more efficient and they could do a lot more collaboratively um, and then eventually over time, they'd got together and, and in a couple of cases actually merged organizations. Um, so I, I just, 
put it out there that collaborations is a spectrum and for people not to be um, afraid about that or a fear that it just means mergers. It's a great point, I think, Craig. And, and one of the things that I'd like to highlight is uh, somebody who, you know, Child Fund and the fact that they had their traditional charity um, doing amazing work out in the world and they um, had an office space. And what they've done is in April or May, they actually left where they had been and they've moved into Grid, which is a startup ecosystem space. And I was, I, I was talking with Paul and others there who said, you know, we bump into cryptocurrency specialists and, um, you know, software engineers and, and all of these new people that we never would have imagined would help shape the future of our organization. So I think that's a great example of intentional collaboration, putting yourself in the way of where you will meet people who are different to you, um, which as we know, we, we often tend to talk with people who think like us, who look like us, and maybe have done things the way that they've always been done. So collaboration can take many different forms. I think it's a great point. Stephen, just to riff on that, one of the examples that we had in the um, health of the INGO sector report was um, SurfAid. SurfAid is a charity that uh, was set up by some surfers, funnily enough, and uh, does some great work overseas. And they were really concerned about their office costs. Uh, and and they you know, make a lot of their money by running very large events, which obviously they can't do. Um, they ended up uh, getting a couple of other charities involved uh, to share their office space together. And one of those was a youth off the streets charity. And what they found was that not only did you know both entities actually save on costs, but they actually found that the purpose of the organisations had unintended benefits as well, and that um, the surf concept actually was really positive for these youth off the streets and their mental health and mental well-being. And they found a lovely crossover that enabled both organizations to be more impactful. So yeah, some cool examples out there. In fact, in, fact, in Wellington, uh, Hannah Checkley, who's in the room actually, is uh, helping um, a co-working space uh, establish itself with exactly that purpose in mind. And you know, it, it's actually a, a compulsory part of being part of that space that you're collaborating and looking to um, work with others in the space. So mm -hmm. it's another growing trend. Yeah, definitely. Well, Ewaka Eke Noah, we're all in it together, right? And I think COVID has highlighted that, that we're not just sort of sailing ships off distant, we're actually a fleet. We're all in this, we're headed in the same direction. And the more collaboration we can encourage, the better. But I want to move away from collaboration. <laughs> and um, I'm keen for your, your thoughts, Scott and Craig, just, you know, let's say that you, you're looking, you know, the business, the traditional business model for your charity, um, where the funding was coming from, it's just dried up. It, it, there's no other way to say it, or something has happened. Um, have you got any thoughts or um, um, I guess, yeah, any thoughts on what boards should be doing at that point um, and what some of the options are that they should be thinking through? I'll kick, I'll kick off then. Um, yeah, really good point, Stephen. Um, and I think, you know, one of the hardest things there is actually there's a sense of grief um, in that in organizations. And, you know, that's a shock and that's a difficult thing for people to actually deal with that, hey, maybe, you know, maybe it's time to call it quits. Maybe we should be doing something else. Um, and, and I think there's also another technique, and that is um, objectivity and getting real objectivity into those discussions. Because if it is, if it is this discussion just being had by people that have 
been intimately involved in the organization for so long, you won't be objective. Um, you need some more diversity of thought in that discussion. And you know, it can be a great time to call in external advisors, whether they be accountants, lawyers, whatever, um, to help provide some of that um, criticality of thinking and, and objectivity. So, yeah, just first kickoff point there from me. Yeah, and I, I guess just building on that, I, I guess we do see that quite a lot, uh, particularly in Wellington, where where government funding is often the main source of funding for organisations. Uh, and I, I guess what I've seen over the years is a number of times that in a particular area gets saturated with um, with service providers or with charities uh, and service providers. Um, and particularly in recent years, I think, and, and particularly with COVID, we've, we've seen people realising that actually there needs to probably only be one voice to government or to some of these funders rather than um, organisations competing with each other. Um, and so and so, what, what I've seen is, you know, the reference to peak bodies um, being, um, being referenced more than anything uh, in recent times. And so I, I guess what we we are seeing as, as organisations um, partnering with others to say how can we work together to go to government with a solution or, or fund our, 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 uh, equitably our services and often that is by way of setting up a peak body which is going to be the designated organisation to uh, interact with government or funders or or other key stakeholders in this in their sector. Um, Often it's quite confrontational for um, for organisations to consider mergers or one taking over the other because people are protective of their patch and, as I said before, may have a long history with it. Uh, and so often a new entity which is going to represent them um, in in the in the sector is is seen as a bit more uh, exciting and, and less confrontational to each organisation. So. Um, Certainly in the last uh, two or three years, we've had two or th three or four instances of that sort of uh, entity either being established or considered or, or partnerships being, uh, being, um, being formed with a view to creating one in the short term. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And um, I might just comment as well, something that I think you'd said, Craig, as well, just the legacy, the history. People have put their lives into these organizations, sometimes for decades. And one of the things that I always try to do if, I, if we're helping a merger or something to happen is in the new entity or in the revised trustee or whatever, to have some sort of an acknowledgement, even if it's just a couple lines in the introduction saying, you know, we acknowledge all that's gone on before, rather than it just being a complete cutoff, which is very clinical. Um, so it's just a, a thing for people to think about. Um, I think there are some common reasons for merging and, and we've kind of touched on them. It could be financial. It could be that the organization ended up having to go after funding and, and drifted away from its original purpose. And actually now it's, it's no longer, because the funding has now dried up, it's, it's no longer as viable. Um, there could be increased competition. Um, there could be a change in government policy or law, or there could be a change of, of purpose. So I think those are some of the the reasons, but now I want to get into the the nitty gritty of it. <laughs> oh yeah, you I go ahead. One more reason there, and that's often you know when you find an organisation setting up, it's generally set up by one or two passionate people that really want to create something. And you know what I've experienced over time is that uh, sometimes those people just get really tired, uh, and you know you only need to take one or two people out of an organisation, and the impetus to really make a big difference disappears. Um, because that person has, has run out of energy or has left the organization. So it's just a, a realistic assessment of that is needed sometimes. Yeah, it's a great point. 
Um, and, and I'm keen for your, your thoughts as well, Scott, on this next part, um, which is just thinking about structuring. And I'm talking particularly from a legal perspective, how would you actually go about doing this? Um, I think um, from my perspective, and, and you can add to, to what I'm saying, but it could be that there's a transfer of assets, which happens from one entity to another. It could be that there's a transfer of shares if there's a, a company involved. Um, or it could be that there's actually a, a liquidation or a winding up and the organization ceases and, and the assets get distributed. And one of the things I wanted to mention and highlight is that sometimes there are groups which are doing good work that could be supported um, by the entity that is winding up. And in particular, um, a shout out to the Community Foundations of New Zealand. Um, which uh, basically are representing the foundations across the country who do work regionally within their environments, th their communities. So sometimes an option for a charity that is wanting to wind up would be to transfer the assets it has to an already existing entity like that, which is more of an umbrella organization. And it can then use those assets for charitable purposes, which could be aligned with the original charity. Um, and the other shout out is to the gift trust. And I know Cheryl's on the, the line here, and I understand that they also are an option for people who want to transfer assets if they're winding their charity up, that actually the gift trust might be a way to, to go forward. So I'm going to put links to those organizations um, in the chat. And um, here in Christchurch, for example, where I am, there's the Christchurch Foundation. And I know they're very open to people if they're winding up charities, then you know, they're an option as well, because they can take them over, administer them, and, and um, use them for good of a region. Um, Scott, would you like to, any thoughts on that? Any any comments? And I'll while you're talking, I'll put it in the chat. <laughs> right. um, yes, no, I, I suppose most of the organisations I've probably been involved with who have needed to evolve this way have been sort of relatively single purpose trusts. And so they're quite passionate about keeping the assets they've accumulated for um, for their particular purpose. Um, and, and, and often, um, I guess we've seen it done in a number of different ways. Um, you, uh, I've, I have seen in some cases where there has been a merger or a wind down that a legacy trust has been set up. Um, so, so assets have been distributed into a, a, a trust for one purpose, but the, the, the balance of the entity merges into another entity. Um, and of course, the classic, which is an, another ongoing trend, and I'm sure Stephen and Craig are seeing a lot of this as well, is that uh, member organisations, which uh, in incorporated societies, I guess, as everybody gets busier and life goes on, it's, it's harder for some of those people who established these organisations decades ago to uh, put the volunteer time into them. Um, and so what I think a number of purpose trusts uh, organisations are finding is that, uh, that the, the member engagement isn't, isn't what, what it once was. They struggle to get uh, quorums at AGMs. Um, and, and in fact, they end up seeing that as a bit of a, a bit of a risk to the organisation because it does mean a, 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 an active few um, members can can have an undue influence on a, on, a, on an organisation. So, what what they uh, what an alternative these days is to is to wind the organisation up and set up a set up a charitable trust and run it as a trust with some with, with some robust. Um, 
uh, governance arrangements in place to carry on the purpose. Um, that, that, that's often quite challenging and you need, of course, generally you'll need to get a large number of your members on board to um, to arrange that. But I guess that's the other, the, the, probably the main type of restructuring that we do see. Um, that's not that's not that, that easy um, because you do need to set up another trust and, and you'll wind up procedures, particularly in older organisations, can be quite prescriptive prescriptive um, and you need to ensure the purposes are aligned but that's, that's probably what we see um, as the, the main um, type of, of evolution of an organization is from an incorporated society to a charitable trust. Stephen just to um, to give another shout out uh, that's possibly relevant here and that's to the Working Together More Fund. Um, this was a fund that was set up quite some years ago by a number of family foundations, the Tyndalls, the Todds, J.R. McKenzie uh, and I think there's now seven foundations that help fund it. Um, this is a fund that is available to provide um, a small amount of grants to uh, organisations that want to explore collaborating with other organisations so that they can be more efficient collaborating together. Um, so I've put a, a link in the chat notes there to that one, um, but that's very useful. Um, that's perfect. And I think the point is that there are options. People might have in their minds that this would be a really difficult thing to do. How would we identify what to do with the assets? And actually, there are groups out there that could be approached, have a discussion, see if there's options to collaborate in that sense as well, because there are groups that, that can take assets and make sure that the original purposes are also, you know, if your grandfather set the trust up, years and years ago, you want to know that it's actually going to something that's, uh, you know, advancing the charitable purpose. Um, thank you for your questions and comments in the chat. I am seeing them. And we've got a question there about IP and ownership. Um, so we'll turn to that in a second. Um, Scott, maybe you want to have a look at that as well, while I just say one other thing. Um, just in terms of the, the steps, I think it's really important that we always have to remember with organizations that they have founding documents. And in most cases, we're talking about what's called the trust deed. And sometimes, I'm sure you've seen, both of you have seen this, these documents were created many, many years ago. <laughs> I've seen some, you know, literally where the English, you look at it and you think, wow, is that how they used to talk? Because, you know, <laughs> 70 or 80 years ago. So I guess the point here is that when you come to wind up, if that's a step your organization is taking, and it might be that the trustee is only two years old or, or five years old, but you have to go back to the Bible, which is the trustee in this case, and say, well, what does the winding up cause say? And I am constantly shocked at how poorly drafted winding up causes are. <laughs> and they have steps, they have notice periods, they have to convene a meeting and get approvals. So it's a trick that you um, think you can just pass a resolution and that's it. You have to make sure you follow the correct procedure as outlined in your founding document. So I just wanna make sure that people don't just go away and say, right, we're passing a resolution it's important to go through and follow the process there. And, and the other thing is, if it's a charity, then you'll have charitable objects. And you always, as trustees or governors, have to ask, is what we're doing advancing the charitable purpose of our organization, even if our last purpose is to distribute the assets and, and wind things up? Um, yeah, and, and then I think Jen, Scott, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. Jen, uh, or some someone here was just asking, how to deal with IP of a charity in a potential merger and wind up. I mean, my first reaction is, well, IP is just another form of asset. 
And it's more, it's a bigger question here, which is what does the charity own? Who's written it down? And, and sometimes that won't be as well documented as it could be, but that's often a stage to go through as a due diligence process to say, okay, what do we own? Where is the, the papers about that trademark we filed and, and those types of things. So um, that would be my thing is you have to go through a DD process, identify the contracts that are in place, insurance, all those different things. Um, but Scott, have you got any thoughts or you'd like to share? No, I think you summarized it well, summarized it well, effectively, you know, your trademark or copyright that you've got in your manuals or whatever it might be is, 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 an, is an asset of the, the entity, the organization in the same way that cash in the bank is. So uh, to an extent, you think about all those, all, all those things, as Simon says, and, and, and ensure that all of them are being transferred. Um, if, if the IP is registered IP in the form of a registered trademark, there is an assignment process with um, that you'd need to go through and, and record that change with the intellectual property office, but um, but otherwise uh, it is it, it is an asset as as any other um, chair or piece of cash might be. Stephen, if I can just make an observation, it's interesting that you've got um, you know two lawyers and an accountant on this um, on this panel. Uh, I'm not sure the ratio is right there, but you know that's just my accounting thinking. Um, but I think it's a really important example that if you're going to consider this, you need to get good professional advice. And I'm not just being a cheerleader for our professions here. Well, no, I guess I am. Um, and that uh, you can avoid a lot of pain if you get good advice. Um, and I would stress that you do think about what advice you need, because um, I've come across too many situations where the lawyer has acted in isolation or an accountant has acted in isolation. Um, and therefore tripped up on legal or accounting implications. Um, so it's important that um, the advice you're getting is joined up advice, joined up thinking on this um, to get the right result for the organization or the best result for the organization. I'm glad you said that, Craig. And I can say it's important to get good accountants involved. And you can say it's important to get good lawyers. <laughs> but it, it actually is. And, and I'm sure all three of us have seen situations where the client has gone off and gotten either or of the advice and not yeah. thought to think, you know, okay, legally, these are the steps to take, but what about the accounting and tax implications of taking those steps? Because that's some, you know, the pieces of the puzzle, they do join up. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> um, that's really good. And just in terms of practical thinking, you know, in, if we're looking at a merger or, or a coming together of organizations, have you got any other thoughts on things that people should be thinking about? Um, I mean, from, from my perspective, one of the key things will be clear communication and telling people what the plan is, what you're doing both internally and externally. Um, yeah. Because I think sometimes that you assume that everybody understands and knows what you're doing and why but just spending a bit of time to explain really clearly what's going on is, is really vital, but sometimes not done very well. Um, any other thoughts from either of you? I'd riff on that, Stephen, and say it's not uh, spending a bit of time. It should be spending a lot of time on clear communication, in my experience. Um, I think that the hardest stuff that I have come across is actually the human factor. Uh, it's the people considerations, uh, and it comes back to that fact that most people involved in charitable organizations are there for a passion purpose. That's one of their key motivators and drivers, and we need to be respectful of that. Politics, organizational politics come into play. 
uh, and in my limited experience, whenever there's two people in an organization, you've got politics. Um, so you need to be very aware of um, that politics and be respectful of it, um, but also actually deal with it. Um, getting decision consensus and agreement in an emotionally charged environment can be challenging, can be difficult. Um, and again, that's why sometimes it's very useful in terms of having professionals in the mix who are objective um, parties to the debates rather than uh, those that are, are very personally uh, emotively involved. The other point I'd make would be around pecuniary interests. Um, there will be people that will be personally financially affected by such decisions as mergers, collaborations, uh, closures. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes that clouds good judgment. Uh, so that's something that um, you know you need to be very aware of uh, and ensure that there aren't issues with pecuniary interests. Um, obviously, you know charitable status only exists if there is not private pecuniary interest in play. Um, so yeah, taking care on that. I've seen some pretty alarming payout suggestions when organisations have been restructured or closed. Um, that you know until it was pointed out to certain people that that was illegal. Um, let alone completely immoral, um, <laughs> was, was a bit challenging. Um, so, yeah, ne people need to be aware that um, turkeys don't always vote for Christmas uh, and um, pecuniary interests can cause real challenge. Yeah, and just coming on, to, coming off the back of both, both uh, those observations, I, I, I guess the... the, the the um, disasters I've seen in these in these situations are when people have tried to um, uh, present really aggressive timelines, um, and and really the you know the objective of a merger or a, a winding up or something has only been formulated um, sort of weeks before the um, the timing of the uh, annual general meeting. Um, uh, agenda uh, and so, but the the best ones I've seen that have been worked through have have been very extensive consultation, which even I thought at the, at the outset was way way too long, but it it, it ended up being only just enough. Um, and and the the politics points that you mentioned, Craig, is, is so important. It, it feels manipulative in a way, but there's always five people who were there 30 years ago and set this up, um, and uh, and actually getting them on side and sometimes it's taken half a dozen meetings individually with uh, those particular people who have got an interest to, to really um, try to explain where, where the world's got to, why a merger or a winding up is, is necessary because you know the organisation isn't sustainable anymore um, or, or whatever it might be. Um, and and that, that, that's, that the successful ones have always had that feature as part of it. Um, and and I, I guess with that communication, it's more communicating more than once. And it's it's like if we're a member of our local tennis club, um, we, we've everyone's busy. We've got time to look at every fifth email they send us. Um, so you need to send the, need to send five if you want me to pick up that there's a, a significant thing coming. Um, so so it doesn't really matter. You can't tell your stakeholders um, uh, often enough. Well, I was once told by a, a very respected individual that um, it's only when you are completely and utterly bored with the message that it may have some hope of just getting through. Those are good thoughts. Thank you both. Um, if anybody has any questions, feel free to put them in the chat um, and we can try to address them. We've got about 10 minutes left or so. So 
Um, just curious, I guess, for, from, from both of your perspective, it's gonna be about the most open question that there is. Do you have any other thoughts uh, in terms of practical considerations or things that, that you see people maybe aren't aware of? Remember, we've got people watching this either now or in the future on YouTube who are maybe gonna be going to that board meeting on a Thursday night and they're gonna be sitting there with seven or eight other people around the room talking about these things. Any thoughts on, um, yeah, any other hints or, or practical considerations here? Um, I'd kick off with uh, use the impact lens. Uh, these discussions can often get mired in the detail of assets and closure and things like that, but you really want to keep it coming back to the original purpose of the organization and is it truly delivering impact to justify what has to go into it? Um, and that can help, um, I guess, put a little bit of space uh, into some of the detail and get people to see things a little bit more objectively. So using an impact lens, find your impact glasses and, uh, and take those along. And, and just actually on a side note, I note that most organisations in New Zealand are very poor at actually being able to measure and articulate their true impact. We have to get better in the charitable sector at this. Uh, we have to get a lot better in my view. And I believe that the successful charities of the future are those that have a laser-like clarity at why they exist and the impact that they are actually creating and are able to measure that and communicate it clearly. Yeah, and related to that, I think is is giving the giving uh, boards and even members um, and stakeholders the opportunity to, to take that step back to consider the, the purposes and why people are there, and and also in that collaboration sense, why you wouldn't um, go to your arch nemesis. Uh, uh, charitable trust and, and and say to them actually together we could probably do some pretty cool things even even if that's just to ask the question um, and uh, it and I think I think often people do fall too much into their uh, the board members in particular uh, into their comfort zone um, and and will turn up monthly and direct the, direct the chief executive if they're lucky to, enough to have one um, to do, to do a few things, whereas um, actually giving giving organisations the space to to think big, um, and 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 think about what their purposes are, how they can be impactful, um, certainly, uh, yeah, can can make a big difference. Yeah, that's really good. I think from my perspective, when I think about this, and Craig, we talked about this in the paper that is in the link there, treading the future. It's it's thinking about. Um, should we have an end date? And sometimes we perpetuate the organization because this is how it's always been done. And it's been going for decades. And this is our mission statement and, and all of that. And, and actually saying, well, why are we here? What is the thing that we were set up to solve? And are we the best ones to do it now? And, and the answer sometimes to that question may be, actually, you know what? these resources could be used better um, by this other organization. But what we're saying, all three of us are echoing each other, but it's true. It's really hard to have those conversations. And my hope actually is that this, this little short summary um, of us talking maybe will provoke some of you to ask some hard questions 
and maybe get those conversations going um, because we need to have more of them. We need to be able to have those hard conversations um, for the betterment of the goal, the purpose. Stephen, just to, to follow up on that, I love the end date concept, um, partly because it actually totally changes your level of courage, uh, your level of bravery and your level of innovation. If you are truly wanting to do yourself out of a job, you will do different, bigger, braver things than if you are just looking to perpetuate the organization. And I think it's one of the greatest failings, unfortunately, in the charity sector is that sometimes brand can trump purpose. And yet the sector is all about purpose. It's all about what we're there to do, not how good our organization looks from a brand perspective. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. I was fortunate years ago to um, attend a, a board meeting of a charity as an auditor and, um, and the chair started the meeting with a question to the trustees and management there saying, right, do we still need to exist? And they actually had a bit of a debate about that. And then they got on and did the meeting smahi. Um, because they had justified, yeah, they clearly did have a, a reason to exist. And I, and I actually queried them afterwards and said, you know, that was, that was a pretty interesting discussion. And he said, yep, I start all of my meetings with that question. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. What an interesting, clear thought process. Stephen, you've done a great job of uh, um, keeping the discussion moving and, and, and asking us questions and things like that. But but um, yeah, be really uh, interested to hear from you in terms of um, in terms of your reflections in that respect. Well, I've been trying to insert my thoughts as we go along. Actually, <laughs> um, yeah, I I just see I see so many people who are wanting to do wanting to do good, um, but you just are, are kind of stuck because this is the way it's always been done. And yeah, I, like I said before, I really hope that this recording and, and this thing will be something that maybe is the pivot point that, that crystallizes or catalyzes people to have those hard conversations. Um, as you both know, I'm doing a podcast called Seeds, interviewing inspiring people. So I'm meeting these amazing people week to week um, and, and on the most part, the organizations are headed in the right direction and it's awesome what they're doing. But I have met some people and I think actually, you know what? You're doing the mahi, but I know there's another group over here that could really use someone like you. And it would be great if you know somehow we could have a bigger conception of our place in the world that we don't all have to be the startups we don't all have to be the entrepreneurs who who founded the thing we some of us can be the workers doing the thing um, and i think unfortunately because of our focus in the west on status and and well i'm the founder of this thing um, it it means that there's not enough people willing to say well actually you know what you're never going to hear about me but I'm supporting the great work of this group over here. So those are some of my reflections. I think the word for me recently, this year particularly, has been kaitiakitanga, stewardship, thinking beyond ourselves, planting the tree, planting the seeds, knowing that we will never sit in the shade of the trees. If you can have those sorts of conversations, then it definitely changes your perspective on all types of things. So yeah, that would be my reflection. 
Stephen, and to riff off that, um, you know, another great concept of Te Ao Māori is um, where we came from. There's always a recognition of where we come from as what you do to start with before you can work out where you are and where you need to go. Uh, and, and that really, to me, um, makes perfect sense in the charitable sector because, uh, you know, any organisation stands on the shoulders of those that have gone before in it. And uh, even an organisation that is closing up um, there's still great things to be learnt and to carry on, maybe in another form. Uh, and so I think it's a lovely concept in terms of that whakapapa where you actually came from in order to look forward. Mm. That's great. Well, we're going to finish up now, but um, Scott and Craig, I'd love your final parting thoughts or words. Um, in the chat, I've put a link to an earlier discussion that Craig and I had about that paper that was mentioned. So we talked, I think, for an hour. We, we were ourselves so we have plenty of time said so i know scott and craig and i are all always open to supporting people feel free to send questions you weren't able to put in the chat or or you want to talk about um to to thrive and to grow and, and education is a part of that um sharing but I do want to say thank you so much, Craig and Scott, for being part of this panel. Um, would I would would you like to have a, a closing thought to leave with us? I'm happy to kick off, but really, really, it is to say I, th I think the 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 upshot of everything we've been talking about is that people should be collaborating and talking. And uh, I'm conscious, you know, Steve, Craig, and there are others on even in this room who have been involved in uh, driving this particular conference and, and these sort of discussions. Um, and uh, you know, th these are, these are great for that. And um, so, uh, just the more of this we can do, and people can be more aware of the options and the people to talk to. Uh, and other people in the sector, the, the better everybody's going to be in terms of um, sharing stories and talking to each other. So th thank you to all those um, uh, involved in organising the uh, conference. Stephen, that's always a hard question, isn't it? Final thought. I guess I'd, I'd riff on the um, uniqueness of New Zealand. Uh, you know, here in Aotearoa, we're very good at the number eight wire mentality. That's a fantastic advantage. We get on and do stuff, but it also holds us back. Uh, and that, you know, we're great at setting up small organisations and keeping them small, um, rather than thinking what's the best way to create the most impact. Um, but another great thing about our country is we're small. We have got access to so many people and so many resources. And, you know, I just think of, of um, the three organisations here in terms of Duncan Cottrell, Parryfield and RSM, um, you know, all of our organisations pump out material that's freely available uh, on our websites and things that people can um, can learn from. So I would just urge uh, anyone in the sector who's feeling that they're doing it tough um, not to do it alone um, and that there's great resources out there uh, for you to link in and great um, lessons to learn from people that have walked the path and, and maybe taking some pain so that you don't have to. Great. Well, thank you so, so much to both of you and a big shout out to Kaylee, who's helped behind the scenes. She's put in the, the link to the Zoom room that we're now moving to. And this is going to be a fascinating um, debate about has the concept of charity had its day. But thank you so much to Scott, Craig um, and myself <laughs> for the session here. And um, we'll see you in the next meeting in room number one. Cheers, everybody. Well, kia ora koutou, ko Stephen tokuingo, na o tatahi au. 
Hey, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this session. Um, I know that the other session has just finished, and so there will be a bit of a transition as people come across. So um, as, you're, as people are joining, they can just um, dive in. But it's a real pleasure to have you here because you are given options today, and you've chosen this room. And so it feels a little bit like a, a, a dating app. You've, you've chosen room three and impact investing, which I'm excited about, and I know our panelists here are excited. Um, my role is really to help facilitate a discussion. And what we're going to be doing is looking at this idea of impact investing, and in particular through the lens of charity. What does it mean for charities? What is impact investing? How does it intersect? Does it intersect? And so that's the topic that we're going to be grappling with um, for the next while. Um, I'd invite you as the speakers are talking and as um, there is discussion, we're hoping to have a bit of back and forth together. Hopefully we are not all going to agree on what we say. Um, and if you have a question for a speaker or you'd like to make a comment or something like that, then please use the chat function and we'll do our best to have a look at those and um, feed those out as appropriate um, as we get through. But just to um, set the scene, I thought I would just read what's in the program, just so that we have a, um, a guiding point of what it is we're here for. Um, so what we, what we said in the program was impact investing is growing. What will it mean for charities who by definition have positive social or environmental or other impact? Can they tap into the trend for more ethical investments? And if so, what sort of structures might work? If it's structured correctly, an impact investment can be more than the temporary fix of a donation or grant. But what are the risks? How can they be mitigated? This panel will explore how impact investing can help us build back better. So um, what we're gonna do is hear from our panelists and it would be great um, to learn a little bit about them. Their bios are in the program on another page, but I've just asked each of them to explain a little bit about who they are and how they fit in the context of our discussion today. Um, to do that for myself, I'm a partner in a law firm called Perry Field Lawyers, and I'm quite active in this area um, across social enterprise and helping charities, seeing lots of interest from both sides, um, for-profits and not-for-profits. Um, and I'm also the, the chair of a company called Community Finance, which is about social housing. And James will be speaking a little bit more about that, I think, in a minute. Um, so Rebecca, do you mind just explaining to the people who are watching um, a little bit of your context, how you fit into this um, interesting scene that we have here in New Zealand? Great, thanks, Stephen. And again, thanks for choosing our room this afternoon. We look forward to having a really exciting conversation. So um, my name is Rebecca Swan. I work at AMP Capital Investors. Um, I'm the Environmental, Social and Governance Investment Specialist at AMP Capital. Been here for about 19 years. Um, I've actually uh, worked with a lot of um, charitable clients in New Zealand, so I've got a really strong interest in this area and also a newfound interest in impact investing um, as it's part of the responsible investment spectrum and it's certainly an area that's evolving quite rapidly. And more and more of our clients that we talk to are um, making a purposeful allocation um, to this and considering how they can get exposure, but also considering how they can make their dollars go further and be more impactful. So rather than just making a grant or, a, or funding a cause, um, they can make an investment which has more of a long-term uh, impact on um, an issue or a situation. So yeah, that's my context and why I'm here today. So thanks for joining us. 
Great, thank you, Rebecca. And and how about you, David? Do you mind um, telling us a little bit about your contents? Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Woods. I'm Deputy Chair of the National Advisory Board for Impact Investing, and I spend most of my time in, involved in, in board work. I'm um, on the board of Fairawa, which is the savings company for, for Naitahu, on the New Zealand Green Investment Finance Company, on Hearinga Energy, and on the Gift Trust, and on Hearing, uh, Tipuna Hapari, which is the new community uh, infrastructure fund that's been set up by Brightlight. Uh, I've also been very active in the last few months with the work of the Sustainable Finance Forum, which most of you will have read about in the Herald Supplement yesterday, uh, which published its final report yesterday morning. Great, perfect. Thank you, David. So you've got multiple hats and lots of experience there to share with us. And I think I'll try to find um, the link to that report, or maybe one of you can, and we'll put it in the chat because it's an excellent read. And I know there was a lot of work put into it. Um, next up, James, can you give us a little intro to, to yourself? Yeah, kia ora. Uh, thanks, Stephen, and uh, good to be here. So uh, my name's James, and I'm the CEO of Community Finance. We were launched last year uh, with a range of foundations that put the money in behind us because we saw a real need for Aotearoa to embrace impact investing and to actually start investing in proven solutions that actually really do transform our country, both in relation to uh, particularly social housing and other affordable housing matters. So we launched last year with the Salvation Army Community Bond, and we've just successfully raised $40 million to finance the construction of 118 new houses. So excited to be here to talk about that and how we can all do more together with impact investing. Perfect, thank you, James. Um, I wonder, um, perhaps this is a question for you, David, um, but impact investing itself, how long has it been around? And um, just as a basic thing, you know, it feels like in New Zealand, it's a word that's used quite a lot these days. Um, but I'm just keen for perspective, because I know, David, you were overseas before New Zealand. Um, can you just set the scene a little bit in terms of the global context and sort of um, how long has this been around? That's quite a challenge in, in, in some ways, um, but I'll try and do it in a minute or less. Uh, basically, uh, impact investing has been around in some form or another for about 10 or 15 years. During the David Cameron prime ministership in the UK, the G7 set up a task force to look at impact investing in 2013. That became the global steering group for impact investing in 2015. And at first there were 10 or 11 countries. By the time New Zealand joined in 2018, we were the 21st country to join. There are now 33 countries there and the movement continues to gather pace. And we'll talk later about some of the things they're doing. But in the context of Aotearoa, although our National Advisory Board for Impact Investing was only launched in 2018, if we look at the iwi investing philosophy, essentially impact investing has been going on in New Zealand for years. Thank you, David. It's, it, it's, a, it's a great point. And I think it's one that we should come back through to throughout this talk is that um, I, I helped out with a session recently with Rangi Maria Price, who was explaining from her perspective, from a Te Ao Maori perspective, impact investing is just business as usual. This is how we think, you know, long-term intergenerational thoughts of kaitiakitanga and stewardship. Um, 
Rebecca, I'm, I'm just curious for your perspective. It does feel like it's a word and a concept that more people are getting these days. Um, and I just wonder, particularly given this year and COVID, um, do we think that that's had anything to do with it um, in terms of a heightened awareness? And also the reality is that interest rates are rock bottom. So people are maybe looking at it going, well, I could get this percentage from a bank investment or similar from an impact investment plus all the other impacts. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, good, good question, Stephen. Um, I think definitely COVID has um, brought to light a lot of these issues that impact investing addresses. So if you think about some of the societal issues um, that have become more apparent, so many of the wonderful charitable organisations in New Zealand who deal with some of these um, charities on a day-to-day -day basis know that there's some embedded um, problems in New Zealand and a real lack of um, inclusiveness in terms of, you know, there's a lot of differences between um, people and society and what they have and what they don't have. And what COVID has done has actually brought that to the forefront um, and made it a lot more visible to a lot of people who maybe didn't appreciate some of those challenges. So I think COVID um, has brought to light some of those things. And actually, um, David mentioned the Sustainable Finance Forum report that was released yesterday. Um, at the session that we had in Wellington, we talked about how while the COVID de 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 um, delayed the delivery of the report, what it did actually do is actually um, bring it forward more prominently that need for New Zealand to be, have more of an inclusive society um, and for you know a sustainable finance system to be more inclusive across all aspects. And I think um, one of the important aspects too for charities is that you know when you talk about interest rates being at all time lows at the moment, you know and um, a lot of the charitable organisations that we deal with, I mean, obviously the income that they generate from their capital base is really important for delivering um, on outcomes to their community stakeholders that they fund. Um, and a dollar is worth more in a year where there's been more um, volatility, like in a year like this year with COVID or during the financial crisis as well every dollar that they can grant, if it can be more effective in years like this and can go further, it's a lot more meaningful. So you know, I think, you know, a lot of charities are really thinking about how they um, leverage that capital base more effectively to make more use of the dollars rather than just funding to fix a temporary issue, maybe to fund or invest in an impactful way to have more um, impact on a longer term basis um, rather than just that, you know, putting the Band-Aid on the issue actually leveraging a project that can have more reach and be more scalable to have more of an impact on perhaps a nationwide scale, for example. You make a great point. And I think um, what we'll do is come back to that because I think that's a really critical thing because obviously lots of people watching this are from charities. So the question is, it's fine to talk about concepts, but what does it mean for us? Um, James, I'm curious to ask you the same question that I just asked Rebecca though, given the context of 2020, um, you just said that you've finished raising uh, $40 million, which is a lot. So can you give us your, your perspectives and, and what's been the attitude of investors and people who are interested in this? Yeah, um, thank you, Stephen. So it's a, it's a combination, I think. You know, it's, I think there has been, you know, I think about the, the windows and seeing people putting out teddy bears during that first lockdown in, in New Zealand. 
there was um, hopefully a bit of a look in the mirror for a lot of us about what we can do for others. Um, there is the role of the Māori worldview with this, you know, seeing as you've said, actually having that stewardship mentality and if I've got a dollar, I'm actually voting for the world I want with that. Uh, and then there's the fact that there are lower interest rates. The other challenge in, in Aotearoa has been, I don't think there's been a lot of opportunities to actually get into impact investing. Uh, we're starting to see a real rise in options now, which I think is really exciting. But, you know, you rewind a few years, there haven't been those opportunities for people to either invest uh, because there hasn't been the platforms or, or funds. Um, with the lower interest rates, there's been an extraordinary opportunity where you could offer investors a higher return than what they were getting for other fixed interest, so term deposits or bonds often, um, and you're able to then allow another charity to actually benefit from that money as a, as a loan to them and for it to significantly save the money from traditional mainstream lenders. So the nice thing here is we're seeing the opportunity for this to really be come mainstream to be a win-win. And, you know, if I look at something like the housing crisis, you can't solve it with the traditional grants or donations. It's too expensive. Um, so I think we need to, as a country, adopt this anyway to get lasting impact. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, just a reminder for all of you who are watching this, uh, we do have the chat function. So if you have questions, if you'd like us to go in a certain direction, um, then feel free to type things for everyone to see. And that way we can respond to you. Um, also, I noticed there was a little bit of feedback at, at times. So if, if, um, if it's possible to put yourself on mute, I think that would avoid any loops of sound that are echoing around. Um, it seems to me um, like when we come to charities, and I'm turning back to you, David, that there's, there's almost two sides to this. Uh, one side is um, some charities actually do have reserves and balance sheets. And I'm thinking in particular, um, some foundations or um, large groups like that. And for them, impact investing might actually be a way, rather than giving out donations or grants, that they might actually invest into projects, which is what Rebecca was, I think, talking about. Um, but it also seems to me like the other side of this is that charities who don't have those sorts of funds and might traditionally have been doing a street appeal or asking for donations, perhaps they could reimagine things and say, actually, what's our mission? What's our purpose? What do we want to achieve? And could we do that by asking people to partner with us by impact investing in this project or this, this goal that we want to do? Um, and so that might be an avenue as well for them. Um, David, is that is that a, a Good approximation, or are there other ways that you think charities um, might have scope or um, be able to tie in with impact investing? Thanks. I think it's a valid way of looking at it, although the first thing I'd say is every charity has a balance sheet. And even if you're completely dependent on donations as a charity to do the work you do, and many charities in New Zealand do fabulous work, they still need to be sustainable in order to keep doing that work. But I think there's there's two sides to it. If you if you look at the side of the donor or the funder, they're saying if we grant, then that's a complete write-off of the money we've given, and it may work or it may may not work. But if we lend or invest in another way, then there's a possibility that money will come back, and we can recycle it and we can lend it out again. 
if you look at the global level and what's going on at the moment, there's some big policy work going on in many countries and quite successfully to move towards more outcomes-based contracts or results-based finance, call it what, what you like. We've seen this in New Zealand, but we've seen it more and more in many other countries in the world, and it's come on further through the, the process of COVID, which highlighted, and as we've seen here, we have the Sustainable Finance Forum report that started being just environmental issues, but COVID helped us focus as well on some of the social issues. So I think you see in the report the final report delivered yesterday, a far greater um, taking account of social issues than was in the first report in uh, November 2019. So you've got this, this move at a global policy level to encourage governments to use outcomes. And there was a lot of encouragement in giving COVID finance and COVID aid to say, if we as a government give you aid, then you must do this in return. And it could be uh, environmental outcomes or social outcomes, but people were being asked to give a quid pro quo. The second thing that I think is really important for charities is the growth of measurement science and of uh, being able to report back and have independently verified the results you're able to develop, and you alluded to this a minute ago, Stephen, if you get a grant or an investment. And that measurement science is is doing two things. It's helping charities to focus more on the question you said, what's our purpose? What can we do? What can we deliver? But it's also helping bigger non-traditional impact investors say, these investments aren't listed, they're not very liquid, but if they deliver very clear outcomes, and if we can, particularly with a loan investment, we can adjust our rate of return if the outcomes are met or are not met, then this is something that's really interesting for us to do. So I think that whole area of measurement science is getting a lot of attention. And at the same time, the policy issue of linking financing to results is also getting a lot of attention. Well, that's that's a great point. And I'd love to pick up on that, in particular, that, that talking about outcomes um, and impact. Um, Rebecca, I'm going to turn to you, but first to James, just from a practical perspective, thinking about social housing, which is the area that you're focused on. Can you talk us through some of the outcomes or some of the impacts which yeah. you're trying to achieve, which investors are are wanting to, to see? Um, because leaving aside, the, it's kind of a given that they're investing, so they're going to get their money back and some interest. But what are the other sort of outcomes or impacts that you're seeing as a practical example of what David's talking about? Yeah, thank you. Good question. Uh, the interesting thing is with, with housing, there's more and more research coming out showing that you know, when it's done well, there's actually social and environmental benefits. Um, and so, you know, when you are in a situation like sadly so many Kiwis are, you know, we've got 20,385 people at the wait, on the social housing waiting list is the latest stat. You know, the reality is, is that you start looking at the poverty impact of someone that is unable to get a secure and affordable home. You're looking at impacts on health, you know, so when you're in somewhere that might be damp, you've got a real issue about getting sick. 
when there are children involved and you're moving from suburb to suburb or city to city, the social impact on them going from school to school, you know, friends, there's mental health as well as education issues. And there's also a lot of evidence around recidivism as well when you look at crime. You know, if you can provide a whānau a warm, dry, safe, affordable and secure tenure, that's when you can achieve some extraordinary things there. And so if you're doing that and you're also saying, hey, let's, let's do this in a way where we're looking at the environment for the impact on the construction, if we're doing it to a high standard so that it is warm and dry with ventilation too, um, it's quite extraordinary how much you can achieve with every dollar invested. And I agree, with, sorry, Stephen, but I agree with James completely. And I think one of the challenges with government is how can we get them to link up the transfer pricing? So yeah. you, you put people into a better house and the health outcomes and education outcomes improve, but there's no method for health and education departments to transfer that benefit back to the housing provider. That's a good point. And, and I like the, the emphasis that you've got, James. In a way, it's a holistic view which is actually looking um, at, at the bigger picture. It's not just saying there's one thing that we're after, which is the monetary return or the interest rate or something like that. Because you, you just mentioned in the space of one minute, um, you know, the environment, clean, green energy, children, education, employment, like it's a vast range of things, isn't it? Um, one question I have for, for you panelists, perhaps starting with you, Rebecca, but it's fine to talk about impact like that, but how do we measure it when so much of our world is focused on money, balance sheets? How can we get some sort of way to actually talk about impact um, and understand it without using monetary terms? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, great question. So I think with impact investment and responsible investment, um, some of the things that brings it to light is really telling the stories around what that investment is doing for people. So when defining the investment objectives of the in impact investment, you know, actually setting really clear KPIs around, you know, if we go back to James's housing example, you know, well, you know, how many families are going to be um, put into these homes as a result of that? You know, what is the lesser burden going to be on the health system from them being in a dry, warm home? Um, you know, what is the benefit of the schooling outcomes for them going to school every day and hopefully achieving national standards. Um, so actually putting clear KPIs at the very outset of the investment objective, obviously with some research around what those outcomes could look like and then measuring them through the period of um, the project. So at the end of the project, then, you know, we can see how successful it was and also, you know, whether people, that also A, sells for whether people will invest into it into the future because they can see all the great positive outcomes that it's had um, and also makes it more scalable um, and more meaningful. So it gives it a really great um, backdrop for the success of the impact investment. So it's about defining it at the outset with really clear KPIs um, and measuring that throughout the project so you can see that um, benefit and then you know, it makes it scalable. Yeah, that's really good, thank you. Does anybody else have any thoughts they wanted to share on that that sort of impact measurement piece? And then we've got a few questions in the chat now. So thank you everyone for sharing your questions there. Um, the, the thing that strikes me about this is that how do you compare that the apples and the oranges, you know, and, and we're talking about housing, um, education, health, um, they all will have a certain type of impact, but it's difficult to compare them across um, different sectors. 
Well, it it is and it isn't, Stephen. I mean, I think there are there are standards around, and there's a lot of work uh, being done that we try to take advantage of in in other countries. I mean, Big Society Capital in the UK has just done a huge study on um, housing impact, and people who do measurement here are looking at what they've come out with and what we might adapt. So, I mean, James knows the the detail very well, but I think one of one of the key things is that when you as an investor, look at an impact investing in housing with the beneficiaries who you are financing, you must involve both people in deciding what you're going to measure, how you're going to measure it, and who's going to measure it. And Stephen, I, I, I think some of this is also about subjectivity. You know, it's a bit like when you make a donation, but the lovely thing about an impact investment is that it's still an investment, but it's it's and. And so, you know, there, I don't think there's also right and wrong. You know, for some people, they're passionate about the social justice side of housing inequality. There are other people that are more passionate about some of the environmental and sustainability um, options there. And, and they're actually all positive, and, you know, as long as they're well run and managed. So, you know, with housing, we've seen some people are saying, we just want to know from the impact reporting that if we've financed this, that the houses are actually filled with people. You know, so for them, it can be as simple as we already know without the data that housing someone who was homeless is innately good, you know, if it's a warm, dry home. Others are going down the far more technical road, and I think it's, it's great. I mean, I, I like seeing people, and I think a lot of what just doing the right thing for others with their SIPOs wanting to get that more technical analysis is, is absolutely appropriate too. Mm. That's good. Thank you. And I admit to being playing devil's advocate here, just simply trying to push this conversation along. Um, I'm, I'm curious um, about one thing, because I'm keen that we don't just keep this at a theoretical level and at a high level sort of discussion. What are the practical realities for charities, for people who may be watching this now or in the future, um, that, that stop them from investigating or exploring this? And is it possible to think about how to make it more approachable, more of a concept that they could look into? The example that I'm thinking about, of course, is that for a charity, if they're a registered charity, then there will be a trust deed and the trustee will set out the purposes of the charity and there will be powers. And there may even be a statement about investments and their performance. So it's likely that those are gonna to need to be revisited in the light of this option to check that they actually have the power to do it. And if they don't, then maybe revisiting that. Rebecca, I see you nodding. Do you mind commenting or, or any, any other thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's something we see a lot, actually, because, um, you know, a lot of these charities were, were established, you know, decades ago. And um, even though we want these documents to be kind of living, breathing documents, they don't always get up to dated um, that regularly. So so sometimes there is a change that needs to occur in the trust deed. And then there's another thing called the Statement of Investment Policy and Objectives. Um, and that's sort of like the investment guidelines for the charity, how they're going to invest and that's usually quite prescriptive in there. Now, this too is a living, breathing document, and um, so there might be some amendments that need to be need to be made as well. And I think also, um, I, I don't want to dish any investment consultants should they be on on the call, but um, 
sometimes the traditional way that finance has been established and how investment has started for these entities um, is not helpful. So, um, you know, when things have been established such a long time ago, that was fine for back in the day when things were done that way. But as the financial system and investment options and spectrum has evolved, um, you know, the, our approach and our documentation needs to evolve with it as well. So um, sometimes it's hard to see where an investment like this might go because it's not a traditional asset class um, and it's hard to perhaps define from a risk return um, point of view. But often how we're seeing it incorporated into investment guidelines is that um, either it's um, being captured under um, an alternatives bucket. So often um, in the strategic asset allocation of a charity, there may be a, an alternatives bucket and it's forming an allocation in there. Well, then we've actually seen some charities actually turn the model completely on its head and actually think about, you know, when I talked about before about them wanting their um, their capital to, capital to be more impactful longer term and rather just granting and funding quick fix projects and um, that they want that to be more meaningful. So they're actually thinking about how they're going to invest throughout their portfolio. Um, and, you know, when they generate that social and environmental outcome and also a financial return, they're able to recycle that capital back. So they're actually, you know, challenging the traditional model. So, you know, I think things are changing out there. Yeah, I'm interested in, James and David, any any barriers that you've seen um, in talking with people who are looking into this um, and, and things that maybe we can share with other people who are on that journey on this call. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's a, you know, I like the way that you said it, Rebecca, you know, we view these things as living documents, but sometimes they get stuck in the past. But the challenge there is that maybe we do need to update things. Maybe it is time to revisit it and actually look at the way that we do things. And certainly COVID has taught us that you can change, you can adapt, you can do different things. And I think for charities in particular, this actually might be the opportunity to seek out new ways of doing things by approaching investors to invest in a project that fulfills the charitable purposes of the charity. So it's kind of a, you know, opening your eyes, looking blue skies. But um, David or James, have you got any thoughts on barriers that you've seen trying to make this practical for people? I think one of the main barriers is, is uh, simply mindset that for many charities, they've always worked with donations and the idea of having to meet performance targets uh, in order to um, have an investment continue to work is just something new to them. And it's taking time, but many of them are getting used to it and starting to, to, to learn to, to live with it. It's not that different to the way charities operate today because today they tend to get one-year grants or if they're very lucky, three-year grants. And depending on what they do with that money and depending on how well they perform, that determines how much they're going to get in the next grant round. Yeah, exactly. James, any thoughts? Yeah. Um, again, probably multiple answers here. One of the things we found going out was there was actually a real lack of awareness about what impact investing is. You know, and so that that is one of the barriers that's been out there. Is I, I think in some ways we're behind a lot of other countries in the knowledge about it and the acceptance of it, um, despite a lot of evidence to support it. Uh, so that was one of the challenges. And perhaps you know, 
my thinking has been because of the absence of some of the options there, there's been a, a very big push about uh, negative screening. So look, we don't now invest in say, you know, cluster munitions or, or things like that. From my point of view, probably should never have been investing in that anyway. But it's, it is that understanding that, you know, what are the things we don't want to invest in? And that's absolutely important. But the other side is, what are the things we do want to invest in that are positive? And we normally have far more capital and, and, and our balance sheet is larger than the return we get on that that we can allocate to donations as a charity. So actually, it's a whole new world where you can achieve so much more when you're purposeful with your, with your capital. And we're seeing a lot of big groups uh, in the charity space and the faith-based side as well that are on the journey towards this. And, and I think that's important. And I think there will be a bigger spotlight on charities because if you're asking for money and donations, there probably needs to be a spotlight on, are you doing the same thing? Are you practicing what you preach with your own money? Yeah, it's a great a point. Go ahead, David. Sorry, I was just going to add to James's last point because I think it is really interesting. There was an article recently by a guy called Paul Vallelli, who's written a book on philanthropy and a, an excerpt from that was published in The Guardian, essentially saying that philanthropists give to people who look like themselves. So most philanthropy out of the big US philanthropic donations goes to the same elite universities that philanthropists themselves went to uh, and goes to their type of donations. And they don't tend to see often what the real needs in the charity sector might be. And that creates a potential problem with charities relying on philanthropy and charities now need, I think, to look further than that. It was really interesting in the Sustainable Finance Forum workshop on inclusiveness that many people at that workshop did not realize how big a problem it is for people who don't have enough minutes on their phone to hold online for wins to ask about their benefits. Yeah, thank you. I think, um, James, you, you mentioned as well the, the faith-based thing. Somebody's put in the chat a link to a report, um, which I've actually read, and it is really interesting, called Ewake Eke Noa Motion 11 Report on Fruitful Stewardship Through Mission-Aligned Investment, which has come out from the Anglican um, Church. So, yeah, that's uh, interesting if people want to see that in the chat. And just looking, there's some great questions which have come through, so thank you all. Um, as always, we can never go through all of them and we are nearing the end of this session. Um, but some people have said things like they're attending from Melbourne, Australia. They were wondering about, is this traditional finance companies, individuals, charities, or a mixture of the above? And David, you answered that um, saying it's a lot of different people. Many people are engaging. Um, and somebody else um, asked about um, are underwritings as opposed to loans considered impact investing? And again, David, you've answered, well, it can be equity bonds or loans. So yes, underwriting is a part of the picture. Um, and then somebody else has commented um, in terms of the future, would the government step in and provide some concessional capital or grants to catalyze blending finance um, to solve community needs? And I kind of want to hear from each of you because we are drawing to a close. Can you give us your thoughts about the future and, and things that you're seeing, predictions, any thoughts on how we can improve an understanding of impact investing? And in particular with that charity lens, what does this mean for charities? Any, any final thoughts from any of you? After you, David, we both clicked on mute. 
um, I think to that que specific question on blended finance, I think the government is really only looking at giving concessional capital in part of its uh, um, overseas aid budget. It, I don't think, although you've got lots of different systems of granting money for various kinds of initiatives, which often goes to charities, there's no all-inclusive concessional capital uh, initiative uh, that I know of. I mean, that you've, you've got the, the winter fuel subsidy and various other things which might count. Uh, I think what we're going to see going forward is a recognition of the need to be more creative in the way we fund charities, in the way we support charities doing the work that they, they do today. We rely quite heavily on charities in New Zealand, which is partly because we, we don't have the, the higher tax system that exists in many European countries and allows government to fund things. So we do rely on more people getting involved. We do need our charities very much. We do need to find different ways to fund them. But we really need the government to pull its strategy together and to the point we made with James earlier on. If you're going to finance housing, find a way that the health and education benefits are then channeled back to the housing provider and that sort of linking up needs to happen. Yeah, so. Um, sorry, Rebecca. Okay, James. Um, yeah, so just I think the thing is, the, the government, uh, despite it being 2020, still has a balance sheet that that can do things that the rest of us cannot. And, you know, there are charities that run on a very efficient model that do some extraordinary wraparound services in, in all sorts of areas. Looking at the, the housing lens, um, what could the government do to step in to help the market do more and to get better outcomes? Well, there's a lot of wood to chop. And the government's really stepped up with its um, social housing program, but we've got a lot of rock stars in the community housing space, you know, household names that do some extraordinary work for, for individuals in Farnell. So a lot of entities are already coming to try and support them like community finance. What the government could do is say, how can we accelerate this or, or how could we make it go further? And so one of the things they could look at is something like in Australia with the NHFIC where their government guaranteed social bonds. So if you can enable more investors to feel comfortable to come into the space and you can suddenly have an investment grade credit rating, imagine having that and being able to then invest that money into charities and proven solutions. Um, so that's where the government could help accelerate this. Um, probably just to add things from a different perspective, because I think um, James and David have um, answered that really well. I think um, one of the things I think is mindset change. I think, you know, with the Sustainable Finance Forum roadmap that's now been released, I think that that's a challenge for us all to take leadership in this space and requires a bit of a mindset change. I think also charities probably need to think about um, replacement of decreasing donor funds. So we have a lot of charities in New Zealand. Um, and a lot of them are very well supported, but you know, fighting for that dollar is becoming harder and harder. So, looking at something like impact investing um, can actually, hopefully, you know, make your capital go further and make you more sustainable in the longer term. Um, yeah, and I think you know, one of the, some of the other, I guess, comments from charities that we deal with over the last sort of six months, what we've heard is that a lot of them created initial response funds after uh, COVID sort of started in early March. Um, and then they actually found that they, they weren't actually getting a lot of um, demand for support from their stakeholders because the government had actually stepped in and were prov providing that relief initially. 
so that's sort of an interesting dynamic. Um, yeah, so that's just some thoughts from me. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah, well, this is the this is why I've enjoyed this session because it's a growing area. It's definitely happening now. I think earlier on we were talking about impact investing, like maybe one day, maybe it will come, but it's on the ground. It's actually a reality, which is really, really exciting. And I think there is real potential for charities to be able to um, look at it from those two lenses, either investing themselves, whereas traditionally they may have given donations or grants or something to others, um, or actually um, setting up their own funds and looking at their purposes and their objectives and saying, how can we implement our and achieve our charitable purpose by having a project that others actually invest in. Um, so uh, yeah, it is happening, it is possible, and it's worth exploring. I know each of the panelists here are accessible people. I'm sure that they would welcome questions if you've got them. Um, you can find more information about them in the bios that are happening. Um, and thank you for your engagement in the chat as well. Um, just one little thing is I'm working on a paper right now with the Center for Social Impact, which is part of Foundation North, and that's an overview of impact investing in New Zealand. And we've gone out and talked with four different case studies. Um, so that's the Tyndall Foundation, talked with New Zealand Green Investment Fund, we've talked with Foundation North, and we talked with Community Finance. And we've given an overview of what the current status is. So that's with the designers at the moment, it's being done as we're talking, um, but it will be released very soon. So if you're interested, keep an eye out, um, watch, watch out um, in the internet, it will be out pretty soon. Um, but yeah, if you have questions, feel free to send them our way. Um, we're really interested in um, continuing to engage on this topic. I think each of us feel really passionate that this is an area that is gonna grow more and more. And part of that is education and helping us all learn what the options and possibilities are here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So we're here at the conference. There's other rooms in the conference, like I said at the beginning. Um, what you're going to, I think um, I'm just getting a message here saying the other rooms are a couple minutes delayed. Um, so I think what we'll do, though, is, is finish our session up and then um, work out which of the other rooms. So just a reminder, there's um, what's happening in this room. If you're interested in co connecting, the next one um, in this room is we're not gonna be recording it. It's called a community connection time. And I'll be asking a series of questions so that you can get to know people you may know, you may not know them. I've got at least four or five different topics to be able to um, share and then in room number two, when is it time to call it quits? That's the session there. And in uh, room number one, how to be sustainable when asset rich and cash poor and trust versus foundations and their sustainable interrelationships. So our session is now done. Feel free to go and find um, wherever you'd like to go. Thanks everybody. And thank you very much to our panelists. Okay, welcome back, Kia ora Koto. Welcome back from your break. Um, for those of you that have been in uh, room two before, uh, you already know that my name is Wayne Tukiri and I'm an audit and people partner with RSM here in, uh, in Auckland. Uh, for those of you that are just joining us in room two, you've missed a couple of fantastic sessions. But the beauty is the, that they have been recorded, so I'm sure you can catch up with it later on. Um, and also trust that whatever it is that you've been to so far, you've enjoyed and, uh, and got engaged with. So 
The same rules will apply here in respect of um, engagement. So at any time you can put into the chat pod uh, a question and we will look to address that later on as we get uh, towards the, uh, the end of the session. So it's very much my pleasure to introduce this, uh, this session and it's a, a New Zealand accounting standards update. And I'm gonna have very shortly pass over to Anthony Heffernan and Jamie Cattle from um, XRB to take us through this particular topic. So if that's the topic you're wanting to join, then um, hopefully you have, uh, you've come to the right place. So um, but we're just loading up the slides now. So it's been about five years since the, uh, we've embarked on this, this journey in terms of into the new standards for not-for-profit um, reporting. And um, you know, it's now time for a, an update and a refresh of that. And that is essentially what Anthony and Jamie are gonna take us through. It's a really important topic. So I hope you enjoy it. And as I say, get engaged and um, I'll hand over to the team now. Hi, thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, we've already had an interesting day here where we've been in the midst of the New Zealand Accounting Standards Board meeting, um, but very happy to, to break out of that and come talk to you. Uh, so, so welcome to this um, virtual room two um, session. Um, I understand people have got options of where they, which ones they attend, so hopefully we've got a good number attending this session. Uh, very easy to say that there's plenty happening in financial reporting, and in many ways, financial reporting for charities, we're entering a new chapter of many challenges. Uh, we've had five to six years now of charities reporting under the new standards issued by the XRB. So they have had time to, to settle down, um, but now we've got new challenges. And those new challenges are twofold and um, in many ways competing. And the first of those challenges is on one hand, there is a call for increased uh, reporting into wider types of reporting. Uh, so that's when we start to think about environmental reporting, climate related disclosures, uh, people are wanting more reporting on governance matters and more reporting on the social objectives of entities. Uh, charities already do that, the social aspect through service performance reporting, but there's definitely a call for this wider reporting. At the same time, the competing factor with that is also a call or let's call it a concern around the cost benefit of reporting by charities, especially smaller charities the current accounting standards for those tier three, tier four entities, are they really hitting the, the mark from a cost benefit uh, discussion perspective? So you've got competing things going on there. So we've got an, an exciting presentation for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, covering lots of areas. Uh, this presentation is not going to be at least what I'll describe as the, the standard financial reporting update where we walk through all the new standards coming through in the next year or so, the next standards in the next two to three years, and maybe everything that's happening on the international stage. Uh, instead of doing that, we're covering off what we would feel are the, the hot topics at the moment. Uh, in terms of new changes coming through, nothing significant this year or the next year. Of course, there's stuff going on, um, but we can talk about that in the next forum or in a couple of years time when they get closer. Uh, so hopefully everyone knows who we are, uh, the External Reporting Board. I'm the Director of the New Zealand Accounting Standards Board. 
of specific responsibilities for developing and issuing accounting standards, those standards that charities follow when they prepare their financial statements and with those financial statements that get submitted to charity services uh, need to follow those standards issued by the XRB. Uh, yeah, and also joined here today by Jamie Cattell, uh, project manager here at the External Reporting Board. Um, so you, you won't have to listen just to me, which is great uh, for, for you and for me. Okay, so just an overview of what's coming your way. And um, first of all, we'll talk about, can't escape it, sorry. Um, although New Zealand's doing very well, we are still living with the, the long lasting impacts of COVID-19. And of course, um, the rest of the world is feeling the impact of that at the moment with significant spikes through Europe and the US and that will have an impact on the New Zealand economy and the ability of, of charities to continue operating in New Zealand, pressure on the donation dollar and other impacts. So we'll talk about COVID-19. Uh, then we'll talk about uh, building back better. Uh, many people have identified uh, COVID-19 as an opportunity to come out of that and, and do things better, uh, not letting a, a crisis, uh, an op crisis be a waste of an opportunity. Uh, so talk about that and the focus on climate-related disclosures. And just to give you the heads up now that the, the, the call a very strong call for increased disclosures around climate-related disclosures and the impact that climate-related change is having on an entity. At the moment, that's really only in the for-profit space. Um, but I'll give you the news of what's happening there because anything happening in the for-profit space will eventually come to charities, uh, but maybe a few years away. Then we'll swap over to Jamie and getting back into what's happening now and what's happening now is the New Zealand Accounting Standards Board has recently commenced a review of the tier three and tier four standards. We have heard that smaller entities are struggling to comply with these standards in some aspects. Uh, we've also heard that many entities love the standards and they love what they're producing and they're producing um, increased compliance, they're producing increased comparability. So we hear different stories, some good, some bad around tier three and tier four. So this post-implementation review is all about clarifying what's working and maybe more importantly, what's not working so we can improve those tier three and tier four standards. So Jamie will talk about that. And then we'll finish with an interesting discussion on um, some of the questions that arise around determining whether a charity is a PBE entity or not, a public benefit entity. Because if you're not, then for financial reporting purposes, you're classified as a, a for-profit entity, which might seem quite unusual for a charity to be a for-profit entity for financial reporting purposes, but it does happen. So Jamie will talk about that. And then we'll see how we go for, for timing, whether we've got time for questions or um, happy for people, to, very happy for people to email us directly after the meeting. Okay, COVID-19 and um, the, the NZASB's response. So like many organisations or just about all organisations in New Zealand, around that February, March, April period, uh, we were asking ourselves, what do we need to do in response to COVID-19? Uh, do we need to significantly change our accounting standards? Um, everyone was talking about COVID-19 being an unprecedented event. 
Uh, my oldest boy at home was sick of that word, unprecedented, was all over the news. It's the only word reporters used. Um, so we were considering what we need to do as standard setters. And I think the, the first key message is that when we looked at the standards for for-profit entities, public sector, the government, and for charities, we reached the conclusion pretty quickly that the standards did continue in the most part to remain fit for purpose. Uh, many of the charities that we got have resulted out of the outcomes of the global financial crisis. Yes, COVID-19 is completely different, but the standards did remain fit for purpose. And probably the more important message is that compliance with standards and providing good reporting is more important in this environment than ever. Uh, people want clear information around the financial impacts of COVID-19. They want clear information on the impact on your services. They want clear disclosures around can your organisation continue to operate or not. And those disclosures already exist within the standards. So the upshot was that while the standards themselves did not require substantial change, uh, we did see a need for increased guidance. And the XRB has been, as a result of COVID-19, increasing what they do around guidance material. Uh, we've been issuing alerts. Uh, we've issued frequently asked questions, specifically for tier three and tier four entities, uh, really challenging ourselves and writing that in simple English and very happy to anyone to give us feedback on if we've achieved that. But that's our continued challenge. Uh, we do recognize that smaller charities are looked after volunteers. Uh, they're looked after by non-accountants. So it can be hard for us as standard setters. Uh, we need to get out of our technical speak when dealing with those smaller charities. Uh, no disrespect to them at all. They're trying to do fantastic charitable work. So we need to make the reporting as easy as possible so they can tell their story. So we've issued resource material and I encourage everyone to take a look at that. Um, actual changes. So I see there was no changes to the accounting standards, but there was some, and there was only two. And they were that we've, as a response to COVID-19, saying, is there any way we can provide relief for entities? We realise entities were struggling. Um, there was shutdowns, um, struggling to get auditors in. So in response to that, we have deferred the new standard for Tier 1 and Tier 2 entities on service performance reporting. Uh, reporting on how have you achieved your charitable objectives and what charitable activities have you delivered in the year. Uh, we've had a, issued a new standard that was effective 21. We've deferred that to 22, 1 January 2022. Uh, that new standard requires a lot of deep thinking if you haven't reported service performance information before. Um, so we are encouraging people to continue with their plans with, for implementation, gathering all the information they need, talking to their auditors about how they prepare service performance reporting that will be audited, that will be part of your financial report or your service performance report, sorry, that goes to charity services. So you still need to be preparing for that, but we're giving you another year. And then after that, the only other change was we introduced new specific disclosures around going concern. When we looked at the standards as they currently exist, largely we thought, yep, they still work, they're still fit for purpose, but we recognise that going concern is a significant issue that will be a significant issue for many charities um, struggling in the current environment. So in thinking about going concern, it is useful to remind ourselves, what do we mean by going concern? 
And when you look at the definition of whether you're a, a going concern or not, it's quite a th high threshold before you decide, no, we're not a going concern, we can't continue operating. So until uh, your board or your trustees decide that they're gonna cease operating, they actually make an active decision that they won't continue to exist in the next 12 months, or based on the information they've got on hand, they have to accept they've got no other realistic ability but to accept they cannot continue operating, then you do cease to be a going concern. So we looked at that and realized there's a whole lot of judgment between happy days, you continue to be a going concern and, and not. And we recognize that many people wanted information around an entity's ability and intention to continue to be a going concern. And it was interesting looking at the accounting standards as they currently stand. And when you look for going concern, a fundamental principle, because if you're not a going concern, that fundamentally changes how you prepare your financial statements. Effectively, you have to prepare your balance sheet on a realization basis. What can you sell your assets? What can you dispose of your liabilities at? That's very different than carrying assets at cost or revaluation amounts. So going concern has only got two mentions in the accounting standards at the moment. A little bit of a surprise being this a fundamental principle. And there's only one disclosure requirement and that's around if you've got material uncertainties in relation to going concern, if there's significant doubt around whether you'll continue to be a going concern and you conclude that there are material uncertainties, then you have to provide disclosures. And of course, as soon as you decide you're not a going concern, I talked about that high threshold, management decides that yes, we are gonna wind up, then there's specific disclosures around that. So we looked at that and realized there's not many requirements at the moment. And then we looked at the auditing standards. And this is not a new issue. This is not only a response to COVID-19. We knew about this pre-COVID-19. And when you look at the auditing standards, the disclosures that auditors expect when they come along and knock at your door to do the audit, they expect more disclosures on going concern than what the accounting standards require. And that's just wrong. <laughs> accounting standards should drive the disclosures and the auditors come along and check it. Um, but for auditors to tell you that you have to do something that doesn't exist in the accounting standards, um, something's not quite working there. And the main area that the auditing standards have is that if there's material uncertainties, they expect you to disclose as a charity management's plans to mitigate that risks. So if you're uncertain about the future, if you're uncertain, if you can continue to exist or not, you're not sure how that's gonna unfold in the next 12 months, the auditors will say, you have to disclose your plans for managing that, for alleviating that risk. How, you, how is management gonna help the charity get through that difficult period in the next 12 months? Uh, the auditors will say, where is that disclosure? Um, but it's not there in the accounting standards. So we look to close that gap. Uh, what was the issue? We had issues around diversity and practice. Um, everyone was doing different things around going concern. Some people were providing, charities were providing really good disclosures and um, telling a full story and being upfront about it. And others were providing very little around their going concern position. And also we had the disconnect with the auditing standards. So it's interesting when we think about going concern and when you think about going concern as a charity, this may be useful and that we had four outcomes. And this was influenced by our good friends in Australia, came up with this kind of framework, doesn't exist in the accounting standards, 
that has been provided in guidance material issued by Australia and New Zealand. And the first is when you're thinking about going concern as you reach the conclusion that there's no events or conditions that may cast significant doubt. Uh, the way you're operating, you expect to operate in the next 12 months. We're the same you, you expect, the same way you've operated for the last five years. Nothing's really changed. Uh, you've got funders that will continue to buy funding. Uh, you've got clear objectives. You'll continue to deliver those activities. Um, happy days from a going concern perspective. So no specific disclosures required there. Uh, what we have been saying is that even if there's no indicators that you will not continue to be a going concern, uh, you just expect to continue operating as normal, uh, that we are encouraging entities to provide disclosures around the impact of COVID-19. Regardless of whether there's been any impact, anyone that picks up a set of financial statements over the next 12 months, the first question they'll be asking, what has been the impact of COVID-19? So it'll be nice to answer that question, even if it's negative or positive, to provide clear disclosures around that. Um, so that's the first one, only an encouragement, but if there's been no indicators, there's no disclosures. And then it's if there's been any events or conditions that cast significant doubt, whether significant judgment is involved is the yellow, significant judgment and reaching the conclusion that there are no material uncertainties. And then you move into the orange that you have identified material uncertainties. So for these middle two, we've introduced new specific disclosures that don't exist under the previous standards that wouldn't have existed in previous years, but the auditors would have been knocking at your door saying, we want these disclosures so we can give you a clean audit opinion. So lots of wording and these slides will be made available later, um, but it's just easier to put in the exact new disclosures we've introduced. And these new disclosures that we've introduced are effective from 30 September this year. Normally, every time I talk about new disclosures for a new accounting standard, I'll be saying it's effective for 2022 or 23 or maybe even 24. These are new disclosures that are required now if you've got a 30 September balance date or a 31 December balance date or onwards. So it makes a, a clear requirement that if you have made the conclusion that you are going concerned, but that requires significant judgment that you will need to provide disclosures around that. You will need to tell how you reach that conclusion when there's significant judgments in deciding whether you can continue operating for the next 12 months. So that's the first one. I would argue that that was already required under the accounting standards, but we've just made that much more explicit that we're expecting that type of disclosure. So um, that's that first one. So significant judgments. The second one is where life gets more exciting, at least from my perspective as a standard setter, and we're introducing a lot more new specific requirements. And that's around where you've assessed your going concern and you need to assess whether you're a going concern annually. Management have made that assessment and considered material uncertainties, that there are material uncertainties and material uncertainties that exist. Uh, like many things in the accounting standards, uh, there's not a definition of material uncertainties. So that introduced significant judgment. Um, but for me, what do we mean by material uncertainties? That means for me that there's an outcome in the future that may result in you not being a going concern over the next 12 months. And at the reporting date, when you're approving your financial statements, you're not really sure what that outcome would be. And the best example for me is that to think about the closure of the New Zealand border or the restrictions around the New Zealand border at the moment. 
So it makes sense from a for-profit perspective. So I'll use that example, but think about it for charities. But from a for-profit perspective, it's if the, you've got a 30 June balance date, 2020. And as a, as a business, you say that if the border in New Zealand, if the restrictions remain in place till December, we can continue operating. We can just survive. Uh, we'll keep being a going concern if the border restrictions remain in place till December. But if the border restrictions remain in place till 30 June 2021, no way. We cannot survive that long. Uh, we're reliant on those borders opening and we will no longer be a going concern. So at 30 June 2020, you don't know the outcome of that. So that's the material uncertainty that may result in you not being a going concern. So if you've got uncertainty of that level, now we've got specific disclosures that you need to disclose management's plans for helping entities, for helping your charity navigate the next 12 months so you can continue operating, so you can mitigate the risks of those material uncertainties. So specific disclosures around that. So those are the, the new requirements. Uh, maybe when you're seeing them for the first time, but technical and hard to take in quickly, but just note that any judgment around going concern, tick, I have to look at these new disclosures. Uh, just a feedback we've received, we did consult on these. Uh, they were exposed for comment, and now they've issued as a final pronouncement with effective date of 30 September balance dates onwards. Uh, we got strong support from the auditors. Uh, they liked it because it's eliminating that, uh, that tension that arises when the auditors say, you must disclose this, but directors then say, show me the accounting standards, it doesn't exist. Um, the regulators like it because the regulators, including charity services, they want clear disclosures, and that's, that's ultimately what this is promoting. Uh, we're not introducing compliance for compliance sake. We're encouraging entities to tell their full story. Uh, users want information around whether a charity will continue operating for the next 12 months. Uh, if you're going to donate to that charity, fair enough, <laughs> would be my harsh opinion. Uh, the professional accounting bodies also supported this and the major accounting firms. And uh, we tried to get as across many users and charities as possible. And generally there was support for it. Okay, uh, just moving into COVID-19 implications and other things to think about. And we just got a couple of slides here, mainly because of time and I want to allow Jamie to get into the next sessions. And thinking about, so moving away from standards, thinking about what should you be thinking about when preparing your financial statements. Uh, many of you may already move, already um, got through 31 December and your 30 June balance dates. Uh, but if you're still working on your annual financial statements, um, our encouragement is to provide clear and transparent disclosures. Uh, think about the impact of COVID-19. And I'm, just, I'm encouraging entities to disclose what was the impact of COVID-19 during the period of the shutdowns and um, the border restrictions and the social restrictions? What was the impact of that during the last period? What was the impact of COVID-19 and all those restrictions at your year end? So that might be the measurement and valuation of your assets. And what is the impact on future risks and providing clear disclosures around that? So a bit of the past, the present, and the future, providing the full story around the impact of COVID-19. Even if there hasn't been an impact, I go back to the fact that users want to know how did COVID-19 impact your charity, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, anywhere where there's significant judgments, estimates that you've applied previously, 
COVID-19 requires you to open them all up again and um, consider them very carefully. Uh, so closing messages around the impact of COVID-19 and what to think about when you're preparing financial statements is starting early, uh, involving your auditors, talking to them as early as possible, um, involving the governing board. You don't want the governing board re reviewing your charity's financial statements when you're asking them to approve it. Uh, they should be seeing them much earlier than that and should be having a discussion with them around the level of disclosure and the impact of COVID-19 much earlier than that. Um, what we're hearing uh, from preparers and um, volunteer accountants is that COVID-19 is resulting in them considering every element of the financial statements. Uh, many balance on your balance sheet or your profit and loss or your notes that you copy and paste from last year and happy days, no changes needed. Um, that doesn't work in a COVID-19 environment. Uh, you have to question everything that you've previously reported. The copy and paste idea doesn't really work and um, consider though every disclosure and how that's changed in response to COVID-19. Of course, it depends on the impact. Some entities, some charities are continuing as they normally do, but others have been significantly impacted, either on the nature of their operations or the nature of their funding. Um, so yeah, consider very carefully how you're gonna tell your story. So I keep going back to that. It's all about providing clear, transparent, tell your story around the impact of the, on your charity around COVID-19. Uh, building back better. Um, so yeah, I'll cover this very quickly. So I highlighted at the start, this is thinking about the future and this is not the immediate future for charities yet, but it will come. And it's interesting, I use this picture when talking to students to highlight, summarize where financial reporting's going. And financial reporting, at least when I started as a graduate and moved into auditing, was the, the gray box, the little one. And that was financial materiality. We focused on the financial statements, debits and credits, and financial reports didn't go much further. And even for charities, it didn't go much further. Back then, we didn't even have service performance reporting. So financial materiality. Um, impacts on value creation. Uh, that works very nicely with charities around your charitable objectives. And that gray box, we really, we've moved into that already for charities around service performance reporting that you need to tell your story about how you're delivering on your charitable objectives. But what we're moving now into is increasing demand for um, an entity's wider impacts and reporting on that. And the easiest example is climate change. And for for-profits, um, the news is that we are gonna be um, introducing mandatory requirements for companies to report on the impacts of climate change. In a few years time, we'll start to have that discussion for charities. And the middle gray box is where we're at at the moment, that entities need to disclose the impact on climate change on that entity. So what impact is climate change having on that reporting entity itself? In the future, we might get to the yellow, and that's what many people want, is the impact of climate change, the impact the entity itself is having on, having on climate change. So the impact of the company's activities, if they're dumping a whole lot of chemicals into rivers, they should be reporting on that. That's the yellow, the impact that the reporting entity itself is having on the wider community. We're not there yet, but there's an increasing demand for it. And um, you can see where this is heading. So I'm not gonna talk through the next three slides, only to say the headline news is that uh, the minister, Mr. Minister Shaw, 
just before the election, um, has announced through cabinet papers that to introduce uh, law to require all companies of a significant size to report on their climate-related disclosures. Um, so that's that's coming in for companies, and in a few years' time, it will come for for charities. I suspect. Uh, watch this space. We have not had that discussion yet. So in these slides that are distributed, if you're interested in the space, you'll see the information around which entities are impacted. But for this audience, it's not charities. <laughs> it's the issuers, it's the banks, it's the um, insurance companies, uh, first of all. And the XRB has got a mandate for developing standards in the space. Uh, good challenge. Uh, we're just starting in that. Um, but that's enough for that. So that's headline news. I'll hand across to Jamie and get back to now. And we are aware of um, concerns around tier three and tier four. So Jamie will talk about that. Apologies for the transition. We're both having to work off a single laptop uh, where we are at the moment. Uh, kia ora koutou. I'm Jamie Cattell. I'm a project manager at the XRB. Some of you may have come across me before in my previous role uh, as senior accountant at Charity Services. So perhaps fittingly, the first thing I'm gonna be talking to you about is the post-implementation review of the tier three and tier four standards that has just been commenced by the NZASB. First though, a quick reminder of what the tiers of reporting that apply to public benefit entities are. Um, in New Zealand, we have four tiers and those have graduated accounting requirements based on the size of an entity and whether or not it has public accountability. So this review is dealing with tiers three and four, uh, which with tier three applying to PBEs that have total operating expenditure of less than 2 million and tier four applying to PBEs that have total operating payments of less than 125,000. And those are the simple format reporting standards, accrual for tier three, cash for tier four, although I'm sure most of you probably know that by now. So what is it that this review is actually looking at? First is the standards themselves. Uh, these standards are quite special among the suite of standards that we have because they're wholly unique to New Zealand. They were written uh, specifically for small charities and in recognition of the large number of small charities, I say charities, it should be PBEs, small PBEs that we have. Uh, and the main goals in writing those were that we wanted to have a, a single standard that used less technical language, had simpler requirements and mainly focused on the common transactions for small PBEs. Uh, so the first thing that is being reviewed is the actual content of those standards. But published alongside those, uh, we also have optional performance reporting templates and guidance notes that help explain what goes into those templates. And given how many people use those templates, uh, it's rather important that we are reviewing these together, and particularly if given that that template is intended to help people meet all the requirements of the standards, if there were to be any changes to the standards, it's important that the templates are changed to also reflect that. 
and that the guidance provides the appropriate support to be able to use both of those. Uh, and to put into perspective just how important we know these standards are, approximately 95% of charities use the tier three and tier four standards. Um, so what is it that we actually want to know? Um, well, the purpose of a post-implementation review, and this one in particular, uh, is to address or answer these three questions. So are the standards working as intended and achieving their objectives? Have any new issues emerged since the standards were issued? And do the benefits of applying the standards uh, exceed the cost? Um, and if, if that, if the answer to any of those is no, or there are significant issues, that's the sort of thing that we may want to address. Um, the way that we've been explaining it in general, uh, especially when we're soliciting feedback is, tell us what what is working well, what's not working well, and what else do you need us to tell you to understand uh, the requirements? It's fair to say that in the five years that these standards have been in place, uh, we've had a lot of feedback, and some of that feedback is specific, and some of it is general. If we start by looking at some of what we've heard already uh, that is in the general camp, uh, we've heard mixed feedback. As Anthony mentioned earlier, there have been people who have been particularly uh, enthusiastic about the standards and there are people that have been less so. Um, among those, the people that generally like them have noted to us that they improve accountability, improve comparability, uh, which is good to hear because that was one of the goals of putting those standards in in the first place. Uh, the service performance information is one thing that people seem to be particularly keen on because it helps people understand what a charity has actually done. Uh, and funders are a group from which we hear that a lot. Uh, on the other hand, and again, as I'm sure a lot of people in this audience will know, there are concerns uh, that the standards are still slightly too complex and difficult for volunteers to use. And we know that most of those will sit in tier four charities. Uh, there have been concerns raised by both charities and uh, their advisors or accountants and their auditors about preparing service performance information. How do you collect it? How do you ensure it's correct? How do you have it audited? Uh, then as you get sort of below those general levels, you get a lot more particular um, issues that people have found with the standards. And those relate to specific parts. Uh, a lot of it actually relates to what the tier three standards allow you to do. And there are quite a few people that would like the tier three standards to cover a wider range of transactions and to allow for different choices to be made in terms of how you prepare your accounts. Uh, in order to allow some time for questions at the other end of this, I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time on here, uh, except to say that these are some examples of specific 
issues that have been raised uh, and they're the ones that we hear about most commonly. Um, I think the ones that you may have, have heard about are whether or not investments um, should be allowed to be recorded at fair value. Uh, and then also the use of the minimum categories, people have found those particularly difficult to understand and have struggled to classify everything that they're in every, every revenue and every expense into those categories in a neat way. And there is some inconsistency there. Multi-year grants and donation revenue and expenses as well on the other, uh, on the other hand are something uh, that people often comment on. People seem to want uh, the ability to defer revenue where the standard only allows you to do so under very specific conditions. And then as you get to tier four, the number of specific issues goes down, but it's interesting that the minimum categories crop up there just as frequently as they do in the tier three. Um, and then beyond that, a lot of the comments we've had are that parts of it just seem like they're not really needed and they're too much for a small entity. Um, so in terms of giving feedback, we would love everybody in the audience here to give us feedback or at least pass this information on to uh, clients of theirs or people that they know that work in charities that they think could give good feedback. Uh, we know that some people are going to want to give us a lot of feedback while others will only want to comment on one or two things. Uh, so what we've done is created three different streams through which you can give us feedback. First is a simple online survey, which should take no longer than 10 minutes. Uh, and that's probably best for people that only want to comment on one or two things or uh, don't have an awful lot of time. And supplementing that, we have a feedback form with similar questions, and that's available through our website. Um, finally, we have the standard method of submitting a full written submission letter, which is probably best suited to people that want to give a lot of feedback. Uh, all links to all of those ways of giving feedback, as well as more information can be found on our website. If you go to xrb.govt.nz and click reporting requirements uh, at the top of the page and review of simple format reporting standards, you'll find it there along with the full request for information and the one page summary that we've prepared. Uh, we've actually got two versions of that, one for not-for-profits and one for public sector. And those would be particularly useful um, if you are wanting to share uh, information about the review around more widely. Right, so getting on to the final thing that Anthony mentioned we were gonna talk about today and something I think could be of particular interest to this audience uh, is the definition of, of a, a public benefit entity, because that can change what type, what set of financial reporting standards you have to use in New Zealand. And the reason we're talking about it uh, is that there have been recent amendments to XRBA1, which is the standard that governs uh, making that distinction and sets out the criteria by which you make that call and how you go about doing it. Um, just as a broad overview, in New Zealand, we have uh, two recognised reporting sectors with different reporting requirements for each. On the one hand, you've got your for-profit entities, and 
not for uh, and public benefit entities have to use PBE IPSAS or public benefit entity international public sector accounting standards, which is a mouthful, I know. Uh, so determining, whoops, to go back, determining whether or not an entity is a for-profit entity or a public benefit entity. It's quite an interesting case because the, the definitions that are actually included in XRBA1 are definitions of what is a public benefit entity. Uh, and if you don't fall into that definition, you just are a, a for-profit entity by default. Uh, and what is a public benefit entity? Well, that is an entity whose primary objective is to provide goods or services for community or social benefit and where equity has been provided to support that objective rather than for a financial return. Uh, and the and is important there. You have to have both of those elements in order to qualify as a PBE. Also important to remember is that when that assessment is being made, it's being done at the individual entity level and it considers only that entity. So even if that entity is in a group that might be considered broadly to be a public benefit group of entities, uh, that individual entity still has to have a separate assessment based only on itself. Why am I telling you this? Uh, I'm at a charities conference, so they're all PBEs, right? Well, it's not quite true. Uh, most charities will be PBEs, but not all of them will be because not all registered charities will actually meet that primary objective definition of a PBE. Um, so how do you go about making that sort of an assessment? Uh, it's, it's based on several key indicators that preparers of financial statements need to consider all of, at least as far as they're relevant, uh, when making their judgment. And some of those indicate, well, those indicators that are listed in XIBA1 are on the slide there, which are your, your stated objectives, the nature of the benefits, are they financial or non-financial, uh, who receives those benefits, uh, the nature of any equity interests that you have, how are the assets used, and how is, is the entity funded. Uh, and to give an example, this is a very simple example, and obviously there are things that could change it depending on um, the structure of agreements if you were to apply a similar thing in real life. But consider a subsidiary company of a charity that has been established to carry out an unrelated business activity. The objective of that, the stated objective, is to generate financial returns for its parent uh, charitable trust. And it has to apply that to its charitable purposes. But the goal of that individual entity is to generate a return. All of the shares are owned by the parent charitable trust. There are no restrictions on how the asset may be applied. Uh, and there's been a small capital contribution when it was set up, but it's otherwise going to be self-funded. Uh, so if you run down that list and you consider it against uh, the, if you run down the list of the indicators and consider what that says about its primary objective, you kind of stack it all up and you get to the end and you go, well, 
it actually looks a lot more like a for-profit and than it does uh, a public benefit entity. So at the company level, in that case, the primary objective is to generate financial returns for the parent. Whether or not the parent applies those surpluses to its charitable purposes uh, is completely irrelevant to assessing that individual entity as a standalone. So if you were reporting for that entity, even though it may be a registered charity or controlled by a registered charity, it would still be a for-profit entity, which would mean it would have to use NZIFRS. Uh, and then that runs into some other interesting things when you can end up with a group and the whole group might be a public benefit entity group, which would be using PBEPSAS while that subsidiary, if it had a separate reporting obligation, uh, would be using IFRS. Why is this relevant in the real world uh, as opposed to being a simply theoretical thing? Uh, we know that there are a lot of charities that operate uh, for-profit businesses to generate funds for the charitable purposes. Uh, and if those businesses are registered as charities in their own right, they will have a separate reporting obligation under the Charities Act. Uh, and this has been compounded by changes to the Income Tax Act, which would require uh, any of those business subsidiaries that still want to claim the business income tax exemption uh, to register as charities. Uh, and that can, or it may have led to additional businesses being registered. So this is really just a cautionary tale uh, that if you are dealing with an entity that's like that, that is a subsidiary of a charity that operates a business, don't just assume that because they're a charity, they are a PBE. And if you need any more information on uh, any of the accounting standards, recent approvals, or just to see what's been going on, um, you can go to our website at xrb.govt.nz or email us at inquiries at xrb.govt.nz. And I think I've managed to make it through within <laughs> the time frame. So if we have time for questions, I'm happy to take any now. Um, otherwise, thank you. Sorry, I'm just trying to, it's Wayne here. I'm just trying to get my video up. But we did have the one question while that's doing that um, from uh, from the team here about going concern changes. Um, and I don't know if you saw that in the chat, Anthony or um, Jamie. It's about going concern changes. How do they link to the various MB, MSD and IID business viability tests to qualify for wage subsidies, small business loans, et cetera? So I guess it's, you know, is it the same sort of tests or how would it compare to that? Um, well, in terms of whether or not there's a linkage there, um, I, I don't see that there is any direct link to them. If what you're talking about is that there are real world indicators that relate to it that could disqualify you from um, some of those other tests, and then it could be similar information that's relevant, but it's not, I wouldn't say there's a direct link between the two. Um, unfortunately, Anthony's had to duck out, so he might have had some more to add to that. Um, but if, if you do have any other questions on that, feel free to email us and or call us and I can get him to get back in touch with you. Uh, 
we had another one here, Jamie. Uh, you were just talking about the PBE issue. If the entity that makes money for the charity, the PBE, is not a separate entity, but is part of the overall PBE, does that put the PBE structure at risk for the charity? Mm. So, if the entity... Okay, so we're, what we're talking about here is if it's not a separate entity, but is part of just part of the entity, yeah? Like a division. Um, yes, in that case, it, it really comes down to what is the primary objective. So you might be looking at some of those indicators as you go through and find that they're mixed, and often they are. Uh, some will point one way, some will point another, but you have to consider on balance, it, does it look like this entity meets that definition of a PBE or does it not? Um, so I can see where uh, that business started to become the main thing that entity did it having to switch over. Uh, but that's not to say that having a business as part of you is enough to switch you over. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the other one here was if a PBE determines that reporting under IFRS should be applied, wouldn't the ID look more seriously at the charity to see if the business is not a charity? And therefore should be taxed. So I guess it's by the fact that it's applying IFRS is that indicating that uh, uh, it, it should be it should be a taxable entity. I mean, I would caution against making an assumption that just because an entity is for profit that means it's not charitable. Uh, raising funds for charitable purposes, as far as I understand it, is sufficient to be a charity, um, as long as those funds that you're raising are being distributed to a parent charity or to other charities that are applying them to charitable purposes. Um, okay, oh, I'm back on the screen. Okay, fantastic. So uh, I guess it's just um, up to me to say thank you very much uh, on behalf of everybody that has attended the session today to Anthony and to, uh, to Jamie uh, for um, updating us on the, um, the accounting standards. Um, I mean, and, and I guess I would just throw out my final comment on this is, uh, get engaged in the standards. I mean, you know, it's, sometimes it's easy to throw stones once they've been implemented, but you know, they, they do go through a process of consultation. Uh, so my um, my challenge or my, my suggestion to you is to is to have your say in advance of that. And, uh, you know, and that they do very much welcome that and take that on board. So um, thank you so much again. Thank you everybody for, this, for joining the session and we'll see you um, back in room one. Great, thanks very much. Um, look, the... Charity and that, that concept hasn't had its day. Um, it's with pleasure to be able to work, to introduce Sarah Baird from the General Council of Oxfam Australia, who will be chairing this session, um, I think, and I see her on screen, so welcome. And uh, it'll be wonderful to hear a, a neat lineup of speakers that you've, uh, that, that's been arranged and things for us. So brilliant, let's go forward, thank you. Um, and thanks for the welcome. I'm going to just quickly skate through our presenters um, who will speak on really interesting topic of has the concept of charity had its day. Um, we will go from straight from one presenter to the other to allow sufficient time for six speakers. We have Jennifer Batruni kicking off, Jennifer Batruni QC, followed by professors David Gilchrist and Matthew Harding, um, and then comes Associate Professor Ross Hickey, Stephen Riley from Charity Services, the Acting General Manager, and finally, Jared Walker, who's a partner at Chapman Troop. 
And before I invite Jennifer to start, I'd just acknowledge that um, Philippa Wilkie is an apology for today, but um, was also an active contributor to this topic. So Jennifer, could I invite you to share with us your reflections? Thank you. Can you hear me all right? Yep. Kia ora tātou. As is the Australian way, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land which I am on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So the question today is, has the concept of charity had its day? Well, I don't think it has. In the leading case of Pemsel, Lord Wilberforce noted that the law of charity is a moving subject which has evolved to accommodate new social needs as old ones become obsolete or satisfied. That's the beauty of the concept of charity. It allows the law to evolve in tandem with society's values. It has a malleability, a humanity, residing with the judiciary of the day, which enables it to embrace new purposes as they arise. In my view, the law is unfolding on the whole as it should. Can I give you some examples? The telecommunications industry ombudsman was held to be charitable by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Its purpose was to provide a cheap and efficient scheme for resolving disputes between individual telephone users and their telecommunications providers. It was found to be charitable on the ground that it facilitated the proper administration of the law and also because it relieved the public purse by reducing the burden on the courts of resolving these types of disputes. In the New Zealand case of the Foundation for Anti-Aging Research, it was found that research on cryonics fell within the charitable purpose of advancing education, despite the fact that cryonics itself was a dream of the future. Finally, in the New Zealand case of Latimer, a purpose to help inform the Maori Native Title Tribunal was found to be charitable under the new charitable category of the pursuit of racial harmony and social cohesion. Reflecting on that case, Justice Joe Williams has suggested that within limits, the law of charity could extend to any purpose directed at community cohesion and the maintenance of the infrastructure of civil society. In addition, he suggested, as Ty has in his pre previous session, that if the law of charities is to be fit for purpose in 21st century New Zealand, it would be really good if we infuse Māori principles, tikina Māori, into that law. These principles, as I understand it, include obligation to community, the responsibility to care and nurture, individual dignity and social justice. But what are those limits referred to by Justice Williams to be? It's been held that the purposes of teaching poodles to dance and running a school for pickpockets would not be charitable because there was no subjective public benefit in their pursuit. So should the boundaries just be that the purpose is of public benefit and is not of private benefit? Statutory codification of the law of charities in both New Zealand and Australia has not really sought to change the equitable concept of charity, but in essence, so far as Australia is concerned, simply reached back to bring within the law purposes rejected by equity, such as closed contemplative orders, 
because there was no public benefit, or Indigenous Family Welfare Trusts because they involve private family benefit. The statutory law in Australia also includes various purpose, purposes such as advancing culture, perhaps simply in order to avoid doubt. Regardless, the characterisation of a purpose as charitable or not is still firmly rooted in the equitable concept of charity. So these are the reasons why I think the concept of charity has not had its day. Over to you, David. Thanks very much, Jennifer. And I too would like to acknowledge uh, the uh, First Nations people here in Western Australia from where I'm presenting. That's the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. Pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And also to pay my respects to those elders of First Nations people uh, from around the country and around the world where, from where the audience uh, may be listening to this uh, presentation. I'd like to take a slightly economics view for my four minutes. And I'd also like to just make a bit of a um, comment that asking an academic to speak for only four minutes is a bit of a cruel and unusual punishment, but nevertheless, uh, I'll give it a go. Um, I think we are very, very uh, strongly um, schooled and instructed in terms of the finance of the charitable and not-for-profit sectors uh, across the region. That is, we know where the money comes from and where it goes, and we have a general, uh, I think, appreciation of the broad uh, strategies and frameworks through which those monies are divested, but we don't have a strong appreciation of the true economics of the charitable sector. That is, what is the economic model under which it operates and how does it operate? And I think this is a critical aspect of appreciating why charities have not had their day. In fact, I think the charity uh, sector, as does the broader not-for-profit sector, contributes significantly to economies around the world in very economic and uh, economic building ways, if you like. But also in terms of those economies, this sector is very much entrenched and an important part of the way we look after those people who have, if you like, hit the safety net requirements as we see them in our various societies. One of the things that is clear after COVID is that the World Bank has identified for instance, that uh, poverty in the world is going to increase substantially for the first time in about a decade in 2020. We expect that there will be about 10% of the world's population or, or around 804 million people living in extreme poverty by the end of 2020. Now, interestingly, extreme poverty is defined, as I'm sure many people would be aware, uh, for those people living on $1.90 US a day or less. So those fat cats living on $10 a day US uh, need, to, uh, need not to be supported, apparently, in relation to that. Why do I say that? I think because the demand for the services and supports provided by charitable organisations in Australia, in New Zealand, around the world, are climbing all the time. Everywhere we look, and indeed we had an editorial in the local daily today, looking at the fact that there is gross amounts of unmet demand across social services in Western Australia, as I'm sure there are in all the jurisdictions represented uh, in the um, uh, presentation today. At the end of the day, I think that we need to understand two things. One is that charities and not-for-profit organisations are a critical part of the economy, and we sit on an economy uh, metric or, or schema it starts off with planned socialism in the extreme left, which we've all rejected as a result of the Cold War and other things, but goes through the welfare state and then extreme capitalism on the right. And I think we reject extreme capitalism on the right as well. So the key issue is about what the nature of that welfare state should be. And regardless of the certainly developed countries, 
uh, in US, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, we all have welfare states of one form or another in which the charitable and not-for-profit sectors play a critical role in service development and, and service uh, implementation. And so I think that not only has the not-for-profit and charitable sector not had its day, I think it is an absolutely embedded part of the economic structure of our societies, as well as a part of the human humanity of our societies going forward. And in fact, when you see the size of poverty increases expected, when you see the size of unmet demand across well-developed and wealthy nations, like those represented um, in some of the um, presenters and also the participants today, I think that there is a clear need for us to perhaps focus less on this type of question and focus more on how we leverage that sector to be able to deliver those services much more effectively. And indeed, given the size of the world population, its growth, and given the uh, challenges that we're facing, not only through COVID, but also through global warming uh, and through conflict around the world, then I think not only as Charities not had their day yet, but their day is yet to come because I think there is a far greater contribution that those organisations can make. Thanks very much. That's my opening bidding, and I'm to hand over to Matthew Harding. Thank you, David. Um, and hello again, everybody. Um, so my take on this is um, to start by um, recognising that the concept of charity is conceptualised or given content in different ways. Uh, and I want to focus on just one conception of charity, which is the one that has been developed and expressed in the law. Uh, this is the conception that recognises as charitable purposes that are analogous to the purposes set out in the preamble of the Statute of Elizabeth of 1601, and that are demonstrated to be of public benefit, except to the extent that an assumption of public benefit is made as it is in some cases. That's the conception of charity I wanna focus on, the legal one. In trying to get a handle on whether this conception of charity is worth persisting within the law, let's try to understand its various functions in the law. One function is to draw a distinction between valid and invalid purpose trusts. That's an old function, it goes back hundreds of years in equity. One function is as a trigger for tax preferments. That's the flashpoint for a lot of litigation around charity today. One function is as a trigger for special regulatory treatment. And I want to suggest to you that maintaining the conception of charity in law uh, cannot be justified in light of any of these three functions. Let's take the legal distinction between valid and invalid purpose trusts. That's always been hard to understand. The concern here is usually said to be that purpose trusts can't be enforced and controlled by the court, except where they're for public benefit purposes, where the Attorney General can do that enforcement. But there are many jurisdictions where the enforcement of purpose trusts for non-charitable purposes is achieved as a routine matter. Think of offshore jurisdictions. Moreover, the core concern of trust law should be promoting the autonomy of trust set laws, surely. And it's hard to see how we can achieve this where we tell some set laws that their purpose trusts are invalid just because the purposes are not charitable. Let's turn to tax. Charity in the legal sense was confirmed as the trigger point for income tax exemptions in the Pemsel case. And it's been the trigger point for different tax preferments since then. But remember, there are many other trigger points that enable not-for-profit organizations to access tax preferments. Indeed, my colleague Anne O'Connell 
has shown that there are only a couple of tax preferments in Australian law that depend on charity status and can't be accessed in any other way. And they don't include income tax exemption or gift deductibility. So the objects of tax law in giving preferments to not-for-profit organisations for public benefit could be fully met without the legal conception of charity being in the legal system. And why extend tax preferments only to organisations that have purposes within the equity of the Elizabethan preamble? I can't think of any defensible answer to that question. Finally, regulation. The idea here is that those who pursue charitable purposes should be subject to special regulatory oversight because their assets are being applied to public benefit purposes. Well, the same problem arises as arose with tax. This doesn't explain why charity in law is circumscribed with reference to the Elizabethan preamble. Surely the application of assets for all public benefit purposes should be regulated in the same way, whether or not the purposes are within the equity of the preamble. Moreover, it's unclear, at least to me, why fiduciary stewardship of assets should be regulated differently depending on whether or not the assets are applied to a public benefit purpose. A high standard of fiduciary stewardship should apply whether or not trustees are public benefit oriented. It should apply to the trustees of private trusts too. So maybe the legal concept of charity has had its day. But maybe the legal concept of charity could perform a useful function even in a world where it played no role in trust law, tax law, or regulation. Maybe it enables the state to endorse certain types of purpose as especially worthy and commendable. This state endorsement might set expectations and influence sector behavior. How might it look in practice? You could imagine a system where charities are registered, but only for the purpose of approving them and for other purpose. Is that a desirable policy objective? It might be. It might not. We can talk about that more in question time. But note, if it is a desirable policy objective, it's for reasons that have nothing to do with trust law, tax law or regulation. So I'm handing over to Ross. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. That's uh, three, three tough acts to follow. Um, I'd just like to say uh, my acknowledgements of the, um, the traditional uh, owners of the land that I'm on here in Canada, the uh, Okanagan Silix people and uh, contested with the Sequimic people, of course, because that's the way uh, land claims are here in Canada in the, the old Hudson Bay Company, um, or the new version of the Hudson Bay Company. Um, I'm gonna take a very, even narrower view on, the, on uh, the concept of charity and say that uh, this concept has had its day and that's to look almost exclusively as an economist at the tax price um, dimension. And so uh, when I think about charities, um, I mean, I think about there being the act of charity, that is the giving of voluntary contributions. And I think about the way that we have intermediaries that we call charities, that are the recipients of those uh, voluntary contributions. And uh, as Matthew mentioned, uh, largely those um, recipients uh, through regulation have the ability to, to themselves be eligible for tax concessions and to issue tax receipts to the donors. Okay, um, and those tax concessions take the form in uh, New Zealand and Canada as uh, non-refundable charity tax credits and in Australia as a, a, a designated gift recipient uh, deduction. Okay, uh, and these have quite large impacts on what we as economists would call the tax price of a charitable donation. Uh, so in New Zealand, if you were to give a dollar to charity, if it's above $5, that's the minimum threshold, but for every dollar given above $5, you get a tax credit of 33%, which means that 
after taxes, that one, that dollar, extra dollar donation costs about 67 cents. And the range, if we think about this tax price across Canada, the US, New Zealand, um, Australia, is usually in the range of anywhere from paying the full price if you have no taxes owing, right? That one, if you don't owe taxes with these non-refundable tax credits and these tax deductions, those who owe no tax get no benefit from the tax receipt. But those who owe taxes get a tax benefit to the effect of the, the value of the tax credit or their uh, after-tax marginal, so their marginal um, tax rate. So um, this is not this is uh, not news, I'm sure, to many of you. Um, but it's something that's not important to most people. Okay, and that's one of the first uh, reasons why I think the concept of charity has had today is because of the the inequality with which this uh, treatment of charity bears out in society. That is that. In Canada, um, only about 25% uh, of people when asked recognize that there is a charity tax credit that their donations are eligible for. That's with 80% of people who have been asked claiming to have given money to charities, okay? Um, of those who are aware, only about 60% claim that they will actually claim the tax credit. So we clearly have a, a tax uh, benefit system here for promoting charities that is not really getting accessed by some members of society, but it is being accessed by quite a few members of society, particularly the higher income earners. And in research that I have done with other co-authors, we've seen that in Canada and in Australia that uh, the 80-20 rule tends to apply for uh, claimed charitable donations by income tax filers. That is 80% of all donations made come from the top 20% of donors, which also occupy the top income brackets of the income distribution, okay? So I, I claim that we have to ask ourselves, is it worth it to continue having this concept of charity that we promote in this way? I say, it's not clear that we're getting the value um, that we, from this intermediation that we're looking for, okay? Um, so just quickly, uh, a couple of points on that, on that notion of where the inefficiency lies. One way is common agency. That is that these charities are increasingly relying on government grants and they're also looking for donations from donors and pleasing both of those two sets of funders at the same time becoming more and more difficult. If we add in large donors, the philanthropists, as opposed, along with the retail donors, then there's an even more uh, desperate common agency problem. Um, as I mentioned already, the tax concession is regressive um, and uh, that's, that's quite uh, a issue, much more so with a deduction in Australia than in New Zealand with a tax credit. Um, there's, there's a problem of matching donations to, to causes. And I just would say for a local reference to that, one need look no further than the New South Wales Rural Fire Service that the, a charity receiving $51 million in one year uh, for a typical annual uh, expenditures of under a million dollars. Uh, seems like a gross uh, displacement of funds that we have subsidized by the state. Um, and I would say one, la one last thing I'd like to, to mention here, uh, I think I have time, is just that um, what we've seen, you know, as we've, we've seen the, the, the rise of the role of government in government grants uh, involved with charities and the increasing inequality of donors, uh, we have a much more transactional notion of, uh, of charitable donations as opposed to a expressive or a relational notion of, of charitable donations. 
And, uh, and that can be a problem as we see when we have charities like uh, the New South Wales uh, Rural Fire Service receiving a lot of funds, but not being able to allocate those to their purpose. It's, it's beyond their capacity. Um, and so we might see much more of this volatility and inefficient matching of donations to the eligible causes. That's all, thanks. Thank you. Tina tātou katoa. Ko nā rātonga kōpapa ata whai mahi, ko Stephen Riley toko ingoa, nō reira, ki ora tātou katoa. Thank you, Sari. Last Saturday, I went whitewater rafting on the Tongarero River, one of our beautiful rivers. We shared the grade three rapids with the Fio, New Zealand's native blue duck. These birds thrive on clean, fast-flowing rivers and streams. If you see the Fio, you know the awa is healthy. Most New Zealanders will know the Fio from our $10 banknote. But with a population of only a few thousand, the Fio is officially vulnerable. It's only one step away from endangered. The Fio needs protection from introduced predators such as stoats. Our rafting guide, Evan, was very proud to tell us about the charity that his employer started. The charity works to protect the Fio in their natural habitat. It does this by deploying an army of volunteers who trap the Fio's predators. Since the charity was established 10 years ago, Evan told me, the Fio population they look after has increased from around a dozen to some 200. So when I was back in cell phone range after the, rain, after the rafting, I had a look at the charity's reporting on the register, and this told me a bit more about their great mahi. So has the concept of charity have its day? My answer is a resounding no, but perhaps there is room for improvement. The concept of charity has great support publicly and it's easy to see why. We know charities provide huge benefits to New Zealand and our uh, international friends across a range of sectors. Despite the challenges that we heard about earlier, we also saw the charity's awesome response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The government recognises these benefits in New Zealand through a range of tax concessions that are administered by uh, Inland Revenue Department. Although tax is not a matter for the charities regulator in New Zealand, it's the Charities Act that brings transparency to all of this by requiring charities to report publicly on their activities. The register holds a wealth of information about New Zealand's almost 28,000 charities. Our annual review document for 2020 provides a snapshot of the sector's impact and is now on our website. Alongside the Independent Charities Registration Board, we regulate New Zealand's charities. For us, this is mostly about assisting organisations to register and then supporting them to remain registered and tell their story of their great mahi through their annual reporting. We want to see a well-governed, transparent and thriving charitable sector with strong public support. The board makes its re registration decisions by applying the law, which comprises the Charities Act and, as we know, many years of case law. What the courts require in charitable purpose decisions is a connection between what a charity is set up to do, its co-papa, and a benefit to the public. Now, as we've heard earlier, the idea of public benefit can be quite subjective. And of course, as Matthew was saying, it's all bound up by analogy. The idea of connecting the charity's purpose was something that the courts have previously accepted as charitable. Charities aside, there are other, there are other types of beneficial structures. The social enterprise model seeks to deliver both positive social outcomes and profits to owners and investors. There are also membership bodies and other non-profits who don't focus on charitable purposes, but still deliver important outcomes in their communities. Then there are the groups that have been here much longer than the shadow of Queen Elizabeth I, Hiwi, Hapu and Whanau, also delivering for communities. And we've heard about the importance of the important place of tikanga from Thai. Returning to charity, there is definitely, definitely something worth holding on to here, but there's also room for change. 
the previous government opened the door for some of these conversations and we've heard a lot more about that today. As a regulator, we don't routinely comment on charities law or policy, but recent court decisions have shown that the law can be difficult to apply. We'd like the law to be as clear as possible. All in all, I don't think there will be much argument that charities shouldn't exist. I think the better question for decision makers is, do we have the best framework to support charities? Whatever that looks like, I think a public charities register with transparent reporting remains an essential part of the picture. In the meantime, the concept of charity is worth protecting. Just like the feel. Thank you, and I'd like to introduce our next speaker, who is Jared Walker from Chapman Trip. Kia ora katoa, and thank you for the opportunity to speak. Um, I'd like to acknowledge Philippa Wilkie, who's the um, head of our practice area in this firm, who couldn't be here today. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not only uh, tail end Charlie, but I'm a stand in for a PIP, uh, which doesn't give me a great um, great boost of confidence. But um, one other point I'd like to make is that all the I have some speech notes here, which I was going to run through, but they've been uh, far more eloquently covered by the, by especially a couple of speakers earlier, Matthew and Ross. And so really what I'd like to do today is to lend my support to, to what they were saying. Um, I think that the the concept of charities has not had its day. Charities is very much part of our society and, and fulfills a wonderful part of our society. But the legal structures have not kept up with the, with the social needs. And, and I do think the tax system has a, a significant role to play there. Um, I'll give you one simple example. A, a, a charity that I'm involved in, I sit on the, on the trust board, we would love to pay income tax, but we never have enough money to actually, or enough revenue rather, to actually do so. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't do public good. We've been around for many decades. Uh, we simply never have enough money left over in the kitty because we plough it back into the purposes for which we were established, which is exactly what we should be doing. Um, so tax, tax in some ways is not actually an incentive for us. Uh, and I suspect there are many charitable organisations out there or organisations that would like to register as charities for whom tax is not actually the driver. Um, now, Ross and Matthew cover this as well. There are many levers within the tax system which can be used to provide incentives and benefits to organisations that do public good without a simple exemption from income tax. Uh, there are examples within our tax system at the moment which could be easily adapted to, uh, to apply in this area. For example, research and development expenditure. Um, that's a good example of where, the, with the simple drafting of a provision within the tax legislation, uh, tax incentives to drive spend expenditure in a certain area can easily be, be, um, be implemented without the need to provide a full income tax exemption. And I think once you take tax out of the picture, uh, the, the, the qualification for charitable status becomes less relevant, I suspect. And what I'd like to suggest there is we have a ready-made structure uh, which can be easily implemented into our law which would enable um, entities which would, might not otherwise qualify for charitable status, because I'm not suggesting that we take away tax exemptions from charities as they are now. Uh, and that's the purpose trust, um, which as Matthew was, was talking about earlier, there's, there's no logical reason to my mind why purpose trust should not be um, legislated into validity. It's an accident almost of case law and history that they are, apart from exempt, uh, um, recognized exemptions such as charities, uh, invalid under our law. Other jurisdictions have done it. It would be a very simple amendment to our Trusts Act to, to legislate for purpose trusts to be valid. And then if you had a purpose trust uh, with, without the tension of the income tax exemptions, you'd have a great, uh, a great structure 
already recognised uh, in, in, in legal framework within New Zealand and within the community for uh, for-purpose entities to pursue their ends without all the tensions that, that, that comes with trying to squash uh, what would what really suits a trust structure into a company or a lim limited partnership um, uh, or, or an incorporated society. That those are all good legal frameworks for structures, but they don't suit often what we're trying to achieve in the, in this area of the of of, of the um, of the community. Now, a purpose trust, I'm, as I would suggest it, uh, in, as I say, it would be a very simple thing to legislate. It would be a case of tacking it onto the existing structures that we've already got. It'd be great to be able to have them in a parallel register to, to charities because there are real advantages in having public registration. Um, they were already mentioned earlier, but regular, regulatory oversight, transparency, confidence that that lends then to investors, uh, people to, to participate in the governance structure of these organizations, getting good people in to, to help guide them. Uh, it would be through this mechanism, an already existing mechanism, and that's the point here, there's not a great deal of reform needed. Uh, we would be able to provide the framework for uh, for for-purpose uh, entities to more naturally develop their um, their 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 goals. So, um, without wanting to repeat any more what Matthew and Ross and the other speakers have said before me, I think this is where uh, we could get some easy wins in charitable reform. And I'm not suggesting we rest on our laurels and, and say that that's all we should do. It'd be great to have a thorough overhaul of charities law in New Zealand, but this is an easy topic that we could, uh, or an easy point that we could push forward. Um, uh, to, to quite, quite simply create a good structure for people to, uh, to pursue. Uh, so I will uh, stop there and hand back to, uh, to the organisers. Thank you so much, Jared. And there's a couple of comments in the side chat um, endorsing your view, Jared, um, and also a, copy, a comment about um, employment and the contribution that charities make through the um, tax structure as well, if I'm reading that correctly. Um, I'm conscious of time and that we may not have sufficient time for questions now, but the questions that we are um, have received can be responded to outside the conference time. Could I just check with Brent, have I understood that correctly that we go directly to the close? It, it, absolutely. And, and with all of the questions that have come through, you know, either during or subsequent to, um, the, the team will, will stop, re-review and get back where appropriate. So that's no problem thanks. at all. Thank thanks. You. I'd just like to thank the speakers for their really important reflections and hand back to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. And um, I think you've summed up very well in terms of the passion that's obvious from the attendance and the insights and, and debate that's coming through in the sessions. I, um, I, I agree with the panellists. I think most of them are saying that the concept of charity law has not had its day, but there are some opportunities for change and reform, which is always good. Um, but I think like the concept of charity itself, the concept of this conference also hasn't had its day. So it's the third iteration of the conference this year. I think as Brent said, it was we're actually on the fourth conference because he and the committee organized a third one which was overtaken by COVID. Um, but my sense is the conference just gets better and better and that it's worked really well. 
here on, on Zoom this afternoon in this four-hour session, but it would be obviously wonderful to meet face-to-face -face and have all the networking that goes with a normal conference at the next iteration, uh, whether it be next year or the following year. So we at Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand are committed to the Kaupapa, uh, to supporting charities uh, generally and, and also the Charities Reporting Awards. But I think in particular with the conference, we're committed to partnering with uh, the Charities Law Association of Australia and New Zealand and with Charities uh, Services. The cross-disciplinary and collaborative approach, uh, I think, works really well and is absolutely appropriate for, um, for this sector. Um, the sessions, as you all know, the sessions have been recorded and will be shared with everyone. I, like everyone, I only had the opportunity to go to three of the breakout ones. The, ones on, uh, the one on um, the statements of service performance, uh, which was um, a good call out from Craig Fisher and Sharon Orr and, and, uh, uh, and Henry McClintock and um, Joanne uh, from the XRV calling out uh, the benefits, uh, making sure that the lens on, on the statement of service performance is about the value it adds and the storytelling um, and the, the huge benefit of it rather than seeing it as a compliance burden. I then went into Craig's session, which was his, he was his normal provocative self in asking whether um, it's time to call it quits. And he had some great questions there. Um, is there a better way of doing this? Does our impact justify our existence? Should we continue to go it alone? Um, is COVID-19 the burning platform for change? Um, and um, I really love the one, you know, does our impact justify our existence? So do listen to that one if you haven't heard it. And then for me, it was the Charities Law Reform session. Again, four um, very key perspectives, different perspectives from Jane, from Tai, from Mihiarangi and um, from so um, covering lots of lots of different um, issues from the political purpose doctrine that uh, Justice Kosha talked about through to the, the contribution of tikanga Māori, uh, the principles of Araha Natafai and Mihiarangi gave us a practitioner's perspective. So all really valuable. And Sue then talked about, you know, the opportunity for a world leading framework for charities law, uh, which she and, and all of you are working on, which sounds like a great co-papa as well. So um, I think that this just leaves me perhaps on behalf of Matthew as well and Charity Services to make some thank yous to the conference committee, to Matthew, to Stephen, to Andrew, to Brent, to Craig, to Jamie, to Sue, to Wayne and to Mike. Thank you for a fantastic uh, effort in pulling this all together. Um, to Charity Services and the Charities Law Association for working together with us um, and for the collaboration. To all of our sponsors, Baker Tilly, Staples Rodway, BDO, Chapman Trip, Duncan Cotterill, Doherty Solutions, Grant Thornton, Mahoney Horner Law Lawyers, MYOB, Parry Field Lawyers, Public Trust and RSRM. Um, to our three MCs who have done a great job, to Brent, Wayne and Stephen. Um, to the behind the scenes team, uh, which is at CAANZ, uh, running the, the Zoom behind the scenes, to, to Jean, Kaylee, and Kim, and, and to Mike, um, who uh, they all work together in our Wellington office. To all the presenters for all your insights and your commitment to this uh, conference. To all of our overseas guests, um, and that by that I mean Australia as well as beyond Australia. Um, and um, to everyone for attending. I'm sure 2021 will bring new challenges uh, and also new opportunities. And the challenges and opportunities are obviously for building back better. And if I could just finish on a karakia whakamutunga, a closing karakia, ka whakairia te tapu, kia wātea ai te ara, kia tūriki whakataha ai, kia tūriki whakataha ai, homie, huie, Thank you.